Chapter 29 Career Advice But why haven't you got occlumency lessons anymore? said Hermione, frowning. I've told you, Harry muttered. Snape reckons I can carry on by myself now I've got the basics. So you've stopped having funny dreams, said Hermione skeptically. Pretty much, said Harry, not looking at her. Well, I don't think Snape should stop until you're absolutely sure you can control them, said Hermione indignantly. Harry, I think you should go back to him and ask. No, said Harry forcefully. Just drop it, Hermione, okay? It was the first day of the Easter holidays, and Hermione, as was her custom, had spent a large part of the day drawing up study schedules for the three of them. Harry and Ron had let her do it. It was easier than arguing with her, and in any case, they might come in useful. Ron had been startled to discover that there were only six weeks left until their exams. How can that come as a shock? Hermione demanded, as she tapped each little square on Ron's schedule with her wand so that it flashed a different color according to its subject. I don't know, said Ron. There's been a lot going on. Well, there you are, she said, handing him his schedule. If you follow that, you should do fine. Ron looked down it gloomily, but then brightened. You've given me an evening off every week. That's for Quidditch practice, said Hermione. The smile faded from Ron's face. What's the point? he said dully. We've got about as much chance of winning the Quidditch Cup this year as Dad's got of becoming Minister of Magic. Hermione said nothing. She was looking at Harry, who was staring blankly at the opposite wall of the common room while Crookshanks poured at his hand, trying to get his ears scratched. What's wrong, Harry? What? he said quickly. Nothing. He seized his copy of Defensive Magical Theory and pretended to be looking something up in the index. Crookshanks gave him up as a bad job and slunk away under Hermione's chair. I saw Cho earlier, said Hermione tentatively, and she looked really miserable too. Have you two had a row again? What? Oh, yeah, we have, said Harry, seizing gratefully on the excuse. What about? That sneak friend of hers, Marietta, said Harry. Yeah, well, I don't blame you, said Ron angrily, setting down his study schedule. If it hadn't been for her... Ron went into a rant about Marietta Edgecombe, which Harry found helpful. All he had to do was look angry, nod and say, Yeah, and that's right, whenever Ron drew breath, leaving his mind free to dwell ever more miserably on what he had seen in the pensive. He felt as though the memory of it was eating him from inside. He had been so sure that his parents had been wonderful people that he never had the slightest difficulty in disbelieving Snape's aspersions on his father's character. Hadn't people like Hagrid and Sirius told Harry how wonderful his father had been? Yeah, well, look what Sirius was like himself, said a nagging voice inside Harry's head. He was as bad, wasn't he? Yes, he had once overheard Professor McGonagall saying that his father and Sirius had been troublemakers at school, but she had described them as forerunners of the Weasley twins, and Harry could not imagine Fred and George dangling someone upside down for the fun of it, not unless they really loathed them. Perhaps Malfoy, or somebody who really deserved it. Harry tried to make a case for Snape having deserved what he had suffered at James's hands, but hadn't Lily asked, What's he done to you? And hadn't James replied, It's more the fact that he exists, if you know what I mean. Hadn't James started it all simply because Sirius said he was bored? 
Harry remembered Lupin saying back in Grimald Place that Dumbledore had made him prefect in the hope that he would be able to exercise some control over James and Sirius. But in the pensive he had sat there and let it all happen. Harry reminded himself that Lily had intervened. His mother had been decent, yet the memory of the look on her face as she had shouted at James disturbed him quite as much as anything else. She had clearly loathed James, and Harry simply could not understand how they could have ended up married. Once or twice he even wondered whether James had forced her into it. For nearly five years the thought of his father had been a source of comfort, of inspiration. Whenever someone had told him he was like James, he had glowed with pride inside, and now, now he felt cold and miserable at the thought of him. The weather grew breezier, brighter, and warmer as the holidays passed, but Harry was stuck with the rest of the fifth and seventh years, who were all trapped inside, traipsing back and forth to the library. Harry pretended that his bad mood had no other cause but the approaching exams, and as his fellow Gryffindors were sick of studying themselves, his excuse went unchallenged. Harry, I'm talking to you. Can you hear me? Huh? He looked around. Ginny Weasley, looking very windswept, had joined him at the library table where he had been sitting alone. It was late on Sunday evening. Hermione had gone back to Gryffindor Tower to review ancient runes. Ron had Quidditch practice. Oh, hi, said Harry, pulling his books back toward him. How come you're not at practice? It's over, said Ginny. Ron had to take Jack Sloper up to the hospital wing. Why? Well, we're not sure, but we think he knocked himself out with his own bat. She sighed heavily. Anyway, a package just arrived. It's only just got through Umbridge's new screening process. She hoisted a box wrapped in brown paper onto the table. It had clearly been unwrapped and carelessly rewrapped, and there was a scribbled note across it in red ink, reading, Inspected and passed by the Hogwarts High Inquisitor. It's Easter eggs from Mum, said Ginny. There's one for you. There you go. She handed him a handsome chocolate egg, decorated with small iced snitches, and, according to the packaging, containing a bag of fizzing whisbies. Harry looked at it for a moment, then, to his horror, felt a hard lump rise in his throat. Are you okay, Harry? asked Ginny quietly. Yeah. I'm fine, said Harry gruffly. The lump in his throat was painful. He did not understand why an Easter egg should have made him feel like this. You seem really down lately, Ginny persisted. You know, I'm sure if you just talk to Cho... It's not Cho I want to talk to, said Harry brusquely. Who is it then? asked Ginny, watching him closely. I... He glanced around to make quite sure that nobody was listening. Madame Pince was several shelves away, stamping out a pile of books for a frantic-looking Hannah Abbott. I wish I could talk to Sirius, he muttered, but I know I can't. Ginny continued to watch him thoughtfully. More to give himself something to do than because he really wanted any, Harry unwrapped his Easter egg, broke off a large bit, and put it into his mouth. Well, said Ginny slowly, helping herself to a bit of egg, too, if you really want to talk to Sirius... I expect we could think of a way to do it. Come on, said Harry dully, with Umbridge policing the fires and reading all our mail. The thing about growing up with Fred and George, said Ginny thoughtfully, is that you sort of start thinking anything's possible if you've got enough nerve. Harry looked at her. Perhaps it was the effect of the chocolate. 
Lupin had always advised eating some after encounters with Dementors, or simply because he had finally spoken aloud the wish that had been burning inside him for a week. But he felt a bit more hopeful. What do you think you are doing? Oh, damn, whispered Ginny, jumping to her feet. I forgot. Madame Pince was swooping down upon them, her shriveled face contorted with rage. Chocolate in the library, she screamed. Out, out, out. And whipping out her wand, she caused Harry's books, bag and ink bottle to chase him and Ginny from the library, whacking them repeatedly over the head as they ran. As though to underline the importance of their upcoming examinations, a batch of pamphlets, leaflets and notices concerning various wizarding careers appeared on the tables in Gryffindor Tower shortly before the end of the holidays, along with yet another notice on the board which read, Career Advice. All fifth years will be required to attend a short meeting with their head of house during the first week of the summer term, in which they will be given the opportunity to discuss their future careers. Times of individual appointments are listed below. Harry looked down the list and found that he was expected in Professor McGonagall's office at half-past two on Monday, which would mean missing most of divination. He and the other fifth years spent a considerable part of the final weekend of the Easter break reading all the career information that had been left there for their perusal. Well, I don't fancy healing, said Ron on the last evening of the holidays. He was immersed in a leaflet that carried the crossed bone and wand emblem of St. Mungo's on its front. It says here you need at least an E at any WT level in potions, herbology, transfiguration, charms, and defense against the dark arts. I mean, blimey, don't want much, do they? Well, it's a very responsible job, isn't it? said Hermione absently. She was poring over a bright pink and orange leaflet that was headed, So you think you'd like to work in muggle relations? You don't seem to need many qualifications to liaise with muggles. All they want is an OWL in muggle studies. Much more important is your enthusiasm, patience, and a good sense of fun. You'd need more than a good sense of fun to liaise with my uncle, said Harry darkly. Good sense of when to duck, more like. He was halfway through a pamphlet on wizard banking. Listen to this. Are you seeking a challenging career involving travel adventure and substantial danger-related treasure bonuses? Then consider a position with Gringotts Wizarding Bank, who are currently recruiting curse breakers for thrilling opportunities abroad. They want a rithpancy, though. You could do it, Hermione. I don't much fancy banking, said Hermione vaguely, now immersed in have you got what it takes to train security trolls. Hey, said a voice in Harry's ear. He looked around. Fred and George had come to join them. Ginny's had a word with us about you, said Fred, stretching out his legs on the table in front of them and causing several booklets on careers with the Ministry of Magic to slide off onto the floor. She says you need to talk to Sirius. What? said Hermione sharply, freezing with her hand halfway toward picking up. Make a bang at the Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes. Yeah, said Harry, trying to sound casual. Yeah, I thought I'd like... Don't be so ridiculous, said Hermione, straightening up and looking at him as though she could not believe her eyes. With Umbridge groping around in the fires and frisking all the owls? Well, we think we can find a way around that, said George, stretching and smiling. It's a simple matter of causing a diversion. Now, you might have noticed that we have been rather quiet on the mayhem front during the Easter holidays. 
What was the point we asked ourselves of disrupting leisure time? Continued Fred. No point at all. We answered ourselves. And of course, we'd have messed up people studying too, which would be the very last thing we'd want to do. He gave Hermione a sanctimonious little nod. She looked rather taken aback by this thoughtfulness. But it's business as usual from tomorrow, Fred continued briskly. And if we're going to be causing a bit of uproar, why not do it so that Harry can have his chat with Sirius? Yes, but still, said Hermione, with an air of explaining something very simple to somebody very obtuse. Even if you do cause a diversion, how is Harry supposed to talk to him? Umbridge's office, said Harry quietly. He had been thinking about it for a fortnight and could think of no alternative. Umbridge herself had told him that the only fire that was not being watched was her own. Are you insane? said Hermione in a hushed voice. Ron had lowered his leaflet on jobs in the cultivated fungus trade and was watching the conversation warily. I don't think so, said Harry, shrugging. And how are you going to get in there in the first place? Harry was ready for this question. Sirius's knife, he said. Excuse me? Christmas before last, Sirius gave me a knife that'll open any lock, said Harry. So even if she's bewitched the door so Alohomora won't work, which I bet she has. What do you think about this? Hermione demanded of Ron. And Harry was reminded irresistibly of Mrs. Weasley appealing to her husband during Harry's first dinner in Grimauld Place. I don't know, said Ron, looking alarmed at being asked to give an opinion. If Harry wants to do it, it's up to him, isn't it? Spoken like a true friend and Weasley, said Fred, clapping Ron hard on the back. Right then, we're thinking of doing it tomorrow just after lessons, because it should cause maximum impact if everybody's in the corridors. Harry will set it off in the east wing somewhere, draw her right away from her office. I reckon we should be able to guarantee you, what, twenty minutes? He said, looking at George. Easy, said George. What sort of diversion is it? asked Ron. You'll see, little bro, said Fred, as he and George got up again. At least you will if you trot along to Gregory the Smarmy's corridor around about five o'clock tomorrow. Harry awoke very early the next day, feeling almost as anxious as he had done on the morning of his hearing at the Ministry of Magic. It was not only the prospect of breaking into Umbridge's office and using her fire to speak to Sirius that was making him feel nervous, though that was certainly bad enough. Today also happened to be the first time he would be in close proximity with Snape since Snape had thrown him out of his office, as they had potions that day. After lying in bed for a while thinking about the day ahead, Harry got up very quietly and moved across to the window beside Neville's bed, staring out on a truly glorious morning. The sky was a clear, misty, opalescent blue. Directly ahead of him, Harry could see the towering beech tree below which his father had once tormented Snape. He was not sure what Sirius could possibly say to him that would make up for what he had seen in the pensive, but he was desperate to hear Sirius's own account of what had happened, to know of any mitigating factors there might have been any excuse at all for his father's behavior. Something caught Harry's attention. Movement on the edge of the forbidden forest. Harry squinted into the sun and saw Hagrid emerging from between the trees. He seemed to be limping. As Harry watched, Hagrid staggered to the door of his cabin and disappeared inside it. Harry watched the cabin for several minutes. Hagrid did not emerge again, but smoke furled from the chimney. 
so Hagrid could not be so badly injured that he was unequal to stoking the fire. Harry turned away from the window, headed back to his trunk, and started to dress. With the prospect of forcing entry into Umbridge's office ahead, Harry had never expected the day to be a restful one, but he had not reckoned on Hermione's almost continual attempts to dissuade him from what he was planning to do at five o'clock. For the first time ever, she was at least as inattentive to Professor Binns in History of Magic as Harry and Ron were, keeping up a stream of whispered admonitions that Harry tried very hard to ignore. And if she does catch you there, apart from being expelled, she'll be able to guess you've been talking to Snuffles, and this time I expect she'll force you to drink Veritas Serum and answer her questions. Hermione, said Ron in a low and indignant voice, are you going to stop telling Harry off and listen to Bins, or am I going to have to take notes instead? You take notes for a change, it won't kill you. By the time they reached the dungeons, neither Harry nor Ron was speaking to Hermione any longer. Undeterred, she took advantage of their silence to maintain an uninterrupted flow of dire warnings, all uttered under her breath in a vehement hiss that caused Seamus to waste five whole minutes checking his cauldron for leaks. Snape, meanwhile, seemed to have decided to act as though Harry were invisible. Harry was, of course, well used to this tactic, as it was one of Uncle Vernon's favorites, and on the whole was grateful he had to suffer nothing worse. In fact, compared to what he usually had to endure from Snape in the way of taunts and snide remarks, he found the new approach something of an improvement and was pleased to find that when left well alone, he was able to concoct an invigoration draft quite easily. At the end of the lesson, he scooped some of the potion into a flask, corked it, and took it up to Snape's desk for marking, feeling that he might have at least scraped an E. He had just turned away when he heard a smashing noise. Malfoy gave a gleeful yell of laughter. Harry whipped around again. His potion sample lay in pieces on the floor, and Snape was surveying him with a look of gloating pleasure. Whoops, he said softly. Another zero, then, Potter. Harry was too incensed to speak. He strode back to his cauldron, intending to fill another flask and force Snape to mark it, but saw to his horror that the rest of the contents had vanished. I'm sorry, said Hermione with her hands over her mouth. I'm really sorry, Harry. I thought you'd finished, so I cleared up. Harry could not bring himself to answer. When the bell rang, he hurried out of the dungeon without a backward glance and made sure that he found himself a seat between Neville and Seamus for lunch so that Hermione could not start nagging him about using Umbridge's office again. He was in such a bad mood by the time he got to divination that he had quite forgotten his career appointment with Professor McGonagall, remembering only when Ron asked him why he wasn't in her office. He hurtled back upstairs and arrived out of breath only a few minutes late. Sorry, Professor, he panted as he closed the door. I forgot. No matter, Potter, she said briskly but as she spoke, somebody else sniffed from the corner. Harry looked around. Professor Umbridge was sitting there, a clipboard on her knee, a fussy little pie frill around her neck, and a small, horribly smug smile on her face. Sit down, Potter, said Professor McGonagall tersely. Her hands shook slightly as she shuffled the many pamphlets littering her desk. Harry sat down with his back to Umbridge and did his best to pretend he could not hear the scratching of her quill on her clipboard. Well, Potter, this meeting is to talk over any career ideas you might have and to help you decide which subjects you should continue into sixth and seventh years, said Professor McGonagall. Have you had any thoughts about what you would like to do after you leave Hogwarts? Uh, 
said Harry. He was finding the scratching noise from behind him very distracting. Yes? Professor McGonagall prompted Harry. Well, I thought of maybe being an auror, Harry mumbled. You'd need top grades for that, said Professor McGonagall, extracting a small dark leaflet from under the mass on her desk and opening it. They ask for a minimum of five N.E.W.T.s, and nothing under exceeds expectations grade, I see. Then you would be required to undergo a stringent series of character and aptitude tests at the Auror office. It's a difficult career path, Potter. They only take the best. In fact, I don't think anybody has been taken on in the last three years. At this moment, Professor Umbridge gave a very tiny cough, as though she was trying to see how quietly she could do it. Professor McGonagall ignored her. You want to know which subjects you ought to take, I suppose, she went on, talking a little more loudly than before. Yes, said Harry, defense against the dark arts, I suppose. Naturally, said Professor McGonagall crisply. I would also advise... Professor Umbridge gave another cough, a little more audible this time. Professor McGonagall closed her eyes for a moment, opened them again, and continued as though nothing had happened. I would also advise transfiguration, because Auros frequently need to transfigure or untransfigure in their work. And I ought to tell you now, Potter, that I do not accept students into my N.E.W.T. classes unless they have achieved exceeds expectations or higher at ordinary wizarding level. I'd say you're averaging acceptable at the moment, so you'll need to put in some good hard work before the exams to stand a chance of continuing. Then you ought to do charms, always useful, and potions. Yes, Potter, potions, she added with the merest flicker of a smile. Poisons and antidotes are essential study for Auros, and I must tell you that Professor Snape absolutely refuses to take students who get anything other than outstanding in their OWLs, so... Professor Umbridge gave her most pronounced cough yet. May I offer you a cough drop, Dolores? Professor McGonagall asked curtly, without looking at Professor Umbridge. Oh, no, <laughs> thank you very much said Umbridge, with that simpering laugh Harry hated so much. I just wondered whether I could make the teeniest interruption, Minerva. I dare say you'll find you can, said Professor McGonagall through tightly gritted teeth. I was just wondering whether Mr. Potter has quite the temperament for an oral, said Professor Umbridge sweetly. Were you? said Professor McGonagall haughtily. Well, Potter, she continued as though there had been no interruption. If you are serious in this ambition, I would advise you to concentrate hard on bringing your transfiguration and potions up to scratch. I see Professor Flitwick has graded you between acceptable and exceeds expectations for the last two years, so your charm work seems satisfactory. As for defense against the dark arts, your marks have been generally high. Professor Lupin in particular thought you... Are you quite sure you wouldn't like a cough drop, Dolores? Oh, no need, thank you, Minerva, simpered Professor Umbridge, who had just coughed her loudest yet. I was just concerned that you might not have Harry's most recent defense against the dark arts marks in front of you. I'm quite sure I slipped in a note. What, this thing? said Professor McGonagall in a tone of revulsion as she pulled a sheet of pink parchment from between the leaves of Harry's folder. She glanced down at it, her eyebrows slightly raised, then placed it back into the folder without comment. Yes, 
As I was saying, Potter, Professor Lupin thought you showed a pronounced attitude for the subject, and obviously for an auror. Did you not understand my note, Minerva? asked Professor Umbridge in honeyed tones, quite forgetting to cough. Of course I understood it, said Professor McGonagall, her teeth clenched so tightly that the words came out a little muffled. Well then, I am confused. I'm afraid I don't quite understand how you can give Mr. Potter false hope that— False hope? repeated Professor McGonagall, still refusing to look round at Professor Umbridge. He has achieved high marks in all his defense against the dark arts tests. I'm terribly sorry to have to contradict you, Minerva, but as you will see from my note, Harry has been achieving very poor results in his classes with me. I should have made my meaning plainer, said Professor McGonagall, turning at last to look Umbridge directly in the eyes. He has achieved high marks in all defense against the dark arts tests set by a competent teacher. Professor Umbridge's smile vanished as suddenly as a light bulb blowing. She sat back in her chair, turned a sheet on her clipboard, and began scribbling very fast indeed, her bulging eyes rolling from side to side. Professor McGonagall turned back to Harry, her thin nostrils flared, her eyes burning. Any questions, Potter? Yes, said Harry. What sort of character and aptitude tests do the Ministry do on you, if you get enough NEWTs? Well, you'll need to demonstrate the ability to react well to pressure and so forth said Professor McGonagall. Perseverance and dedication, because auror training takes a further three years, not to mention very high skills in practical defense. It will mean a lot more study even after you've left school. So, unless you're prepared to... I think you'll also find, said Umbridge, her voice very cold now, that the Ministry looks into the records of those applying to be aurors. They're criminal records. Unless you're prepared to take even more exams after Hogwarts, you shouldn't really look at another. Which means that this boy has as much chance of becoming an Auror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to this school. A very good chance, then, said Professor McGonagall. Potter has a criminal record, said Umbridge loudly. Potter has been cleared of all charges, said Professor McGonagall even more loudly. Professor Umbridge stood up. She was so short that this did not make a great deal of difference, but her fussy, simpering demeanor had given place to a hard fury that made her broad, flabby face look oddly sinister. Potter has no chance whatsoever of becoming an Auror. Professor McGonagall got to her feet, too, and in her case this was a much more impressive move. She towered over Professor Umbridge. Potter, she said in ringing tones, I will assist you to become an Auror if it is the last thing I do. If I have to coach you nightly, I will make sure you achieve the required results. The Minister of Magic will never employ Harry Potter, said Umbridge, her voice rising furiously. There may well be a new Minister of Magic by the time Potter is ready to join, shouted Professor McGonagall. Aha! shrieked Professor Umbridge, pointing a stubby finger at McGonagall. Yes! Yes, 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 of course. That's what you want, isn't it, Minerva McGonagall? You want Cornelius Fudge replaced by Albus Dumbledore. You think you'll be where I am, don't you? Senior undersecretary to the minister and headmistress to boot. You are raving, said Professor McGonagall, superbly disdainful. Potter, that concludes our career consultation. Harry swung his bag over his shoulder and hurried out of the room, not daring to look at Umbridge. 
He could hear her and Professor McGonagall continuing to shout at each other all the way back along the corridor. Professor Umbridge was still breathing as though she had just run a race when she strode into their Defense Against the Dark Arts lesson that afternoon. I hope you've thought better of what you were planning to do, Harry, Hermione whispered the moment they had opened their books to Chapter 34, Non-Retaliation and Negotiation. Umbridge looks like she's in a really bad mood already. Every now and then Umbridge shot glowering looks at Harry, who kept his head down, staring at defensive magical theory, his eyes unfocused, thinking. He could just imagine Professor McGonagall's reaction if he were caught trespassing in Professor Umbridge's office mere hours after she had vouched for him. There was nothing to stop him simply going back to Gryffindor Tower and hoping that sometime during the next summer holiday he would have a chance to ask Sirius about the scene he had witnessed in the pensive. Nothing except that the thought of taking this sensible course of action made him feel as though a lead weight had dropped into his stomach. And then there was the matter of Fred and George, whose diversion was already planned, not to mention the knife Sirius had given him, which was currently residing in his school bag, along with his father's old invisibility cloak. But the fact remained that if he were caught, Dumbledore sacrificed himself to keep you in school, Harry, whispered Hermione, raising her book to hide her face from Umbridge, and if you get thrown out today, it will all have been for nothing. He could abandon the plan and simply learn to live with the memory of what his father had done on a summer's day more than twenty years ago. And then he remembered Sirius in the fire upstairs in the Gryffindor common room. You're less like your father than I thought. The risk would have been what made it fun for James. But did he want to be like his father any more? Harry, don't do it, please, don't do it, Hermione said in anguished tones as the bell rang at the end of the class. He did not answer. He did not know what to do. Ron seemed determined to give neither his opinion nor his advice. He would not look at Harry, though when Hermione opened her mouth to try dissuading Harry some more, he said in a low voice, Give it a rest, okay? He can make up his own mind. Harry's heart beat very fast as he left the classroom. He was halfway along the corridor outside when he heard the unmistakable sounds of a diversion going off in the distance. There were screams and yells reverberating from somewhere above them. People exiting the classrooms all around Harry were stopping in their tracks and looking up at the ceiling, fearfully. Then Umbridge came pelting out of her classroom as fast as her short legs would carry her. Pulling out her wand, she hurried off in the opposite direction. It was now or never. Harry, please, said Hermione weakly. But he had made up his mind. Hitching his bag more securely onto his shoulder, he set off at a run, weaving in and out of students now hurrying in the opposite direction, off to see what all the fuss was about in the east wing. Harry reached the corridor where Umbridge's office was situated and found it deserted. Dashing behind a large suit of armor whose helmet creaked around to watch him, he pulled open his bag, seized Sirius's knife, and donned the invisibility cloak. He then crept slowly and carefully back out from behind the suit of armor and along the corridor until he reached Umbridge's door. He inserted the blade of the magical knife into the crack around it and moved it gently up and down, then withdrew it. There was a tiny click, and the door swung open. He ducked inside the office, closed the door quickly behind him, and looked around. It was empty. Nothing was moving except the horrible kittens on the plates continuing to frolic on the wall above the confiscated broomsticks. Harry pulled off his cloak and, striding over to the fireplace, found what he was looking for within seconds, a small box containing glittering flue powder. 
He crouched down in front of the empty grate, his hands shaking. He had never done this before, though he thought he knew how it must work. Sticking his head into the fireplace, he took a large pinch of powder and dropped it onto the logs stacked neatly beneath him. They exploded at once into emerald green flames. Number twelve, grim old place, Harry said loudly and clearly. It was one of the most curious sensations he had ever experienced. He had traveled by flu powder before, of course, but then it had been his entire body that had spun around and around in the flames through the network of wizarding fireplaces that stretched over the country. This time his knees remained firm upon the cold floor of Umbridge's office, and only his head hurtled through the emerald fire. And then, abruptly as it had begun, the spinning stopped. Feeling rather sick, and as though he was wearing an exceptionally hot muffler around his head, Harry opened his eyes to find that he was looking up out of the kitchen fireplace at the long wooden table where a man sat poring over a piece of parchment. Sirius! The man jumped and looked around. It was not Sirius, but Lupin. Harry! he said, looking thoroughly shocked. What are you... what's happened? Is everything all right? Yeah! said Harry. I just wondered, I mean, I just fancied a, a chat with Sirius. I'll call him, said Lupin, getting to his feet, still looking perplexed. He went upstairs to look for Creature. He seems to be hiding in the attic again. And Harry saw Lupin hurry out of the kitchen. Now he was left with nothing to look at but the chair and table legs. He wondered why Sirius had never mentioned how very uncomfortable it was to speak out of the fire. His knees were already objecting painfully to their prolonged contact with Umbridge's hard stone floor. Lupin returned with Sirius at his heels moments later. What is it? said Sirius urgently, sweeping his long dark hair out of his eyes and dropping to the ground in front of the fire so that he and Harry were on a level. Lupin knelt down too, looking very concerned. Are you all right? Do you need help? No, said Harry. It's nothing like that. I just wanted to talk about my dad. They exchanged a look of great surprise, but Harry did not have time to feel awkward or embarrassed. His knees were becoming sore by the second, and he guessed that five minutes had already passed from the start of the diversion. George had only guaranteed him twenty. He therefore plunged immediately into the story of what he had seen in the pensive. When he had finished, neither Sirius nor Lupin spoke for a moment. Then Lupin said quietly, I wouldn't like you to judge your father on what you saw there, Harry. He was only fifteen. I'm fifteen, said Harry heatedly. Look, Harry, said Sirius placatingly, James and Snape hated each other from the moment they set eyes on each other. It was just one of those things. You can understand that, can't you? I think James was everything Snape wanted to be. He was popular. He was good at Quidditch, good at pretty much everything. And Snape was just this little oddball who was up to his eyes in the dark arts. And James, whatever else he may have appeared to you, Harry, always hated the dark arts. Yeah, said Harry, but he just attacked Snape for no good reason, just because, well, just because you said you were bored. He finished with a slightly apologetic note in his voice. I'm not proud of it, said Sirius quickly. Looping looked sideways at Sirius and then said, Look, Harry, what you've got to understand is that your father and Sirius were the best in the school at whatever they did. Everyone thought they were the height of cool. If they sometimes got a bit carried away. If we were sometimes arrogant little burks, you mean, said Sirius. Lupin smiled. He kept messing up his hair, said Harry in a pained voice. Sirius and Lupin laughed. 
I'd forgotten he used to do that, said Sirius affectionately. Was he playing with the snitch, said Lupin eagerly. Yeah, said Harry, watching uncomprehendingly as Sirius and Lupin beamed reminiscently. Well, I thought he was a bit of an idiot. Of course he was a bit of an idiot, said Sirius bracingly. We were all idiots. Well, not Mooney so much, he said fairly, looking at Lupin, but Lupin shook his head. Did I ever tell you to lay off Snape, he said. Did I ever have the guts to tell you I thought you were out of order? Yeah, well, said Sirius, you made us feel ashamed of ourselves sometimes. That was something. And, said Harry doggedly, determined to say everything that was on his mind now he was here, he kept looking over at the girls by the lake, hoping they were watching him. Oh, well, he always made a fool of himself whenever Lily was around, said Sirius, shrugging. He couldn't stop himself showing off whenever he got near her. How come she married him? Harry asked miserably. She hated him. Nah, she didn't, said Sirius. She started going out with him in seventh year, said Lupin. Once James had deflated his head a bit, said Sirius, and stopped hexing people just for the fun of it, said Lupin. Even Snape, said Harry. Well, said Lupin slowly, Snape was a special case. I mean, he never lost an opportunity to curse James, so you couldn't really expect James to take that lying down, could you? And my mum was okay with that. She didn't know too much about it, to tell you the truth, said Sirius. I mean, James didn't take Snape on dates with her and jinx him in front of her, did he? Sirius frowned at Harry, who was still looking unconvinced. Look, he said, your father was the best friend I ever had, and he was a good person. A lot of people are idiots at the age of fifteen. He grew out of it. Yeah, okay, said Harry heavily. I just never thought I'd feel sorry for Snape. Now you mention it, said Lupin, a faint crease between his eyebrows. How did Snape react when he found you'd seen all this? He told me he'd never teach me occlumency again said Harry indifferently, like that's a big disappoint. He what? shouted Sirius, causing Harry to jump and inhale a mouthful of ashes. Are you serious, Harry? said Lupin quickly. He stopped giving you lessons? Yeah, said Harry, surprised at what he considered a great overreaction. But it's okay. I don't care. It's a bit of a relief to tell you the... I'm coming up there to have a word with Snape said Sirius forcefully, and he actually made to stand up, but Lupin wrenched him back down again. If anyone's going to tell Snape, it will be me, he said firmly. But Harry, first of all, you're to go back to Snape and tell him that on no account is he to stop giving you lessons. When Dumbledore hears, I can't tell him that, he'd kill me, said Harry, outraged. You didn't see him when we got out of the pensive. Harry, there is nothing so important as you learning occlumency, said Lupin sternly. Do you understand me? Nothing. Okay, okay, said Harry, thoroughly discomposed, not to mention annoyed. I'll, I'll try and say something to him, but it won't be. He fell silent. He could hear distant footsteps. Is that creature coming downstairs? No, said Sirius, glancing behind him. It must be somebody your end. Harry's heart skipped several beats. I'd better go, he said hastily, and he pulled his head backward out of Grimald Place's fire. For a moment his head seemed to be revolving on his shoulders, and then he found himself kneeling in front of Umbridge's fire with his head firmly back on, watching the emerald flames flicker and die. Quickly, quickly, 
he heard a wheezy voice mutter right outside the office door. Ah, she's left it open. Harry dived for the invisibility cloak and had just managed to pull it back over himself when Filch burst into the office. He looked absolutely delighted about something and was talking to himself feverishly as he crossed the room, pulled open a drawer in Umbridge's desk and began rifling through the papers inside it. Approval for whipping, approval for whipping. I can do it at last. They've had it coming to them for years. He pulled out a piece of parchment, kissed it, then shuffled rapidly back out of the door, clutching it to his chest. Harry leapt to his feet and, making sure that he had his bag and the invisibility cloak was completely covering him, he wrenched open the door and hurried out of the office after Filch, who was hobbling along faster than Harry had ever seen him go. One landing down from Umbridge's office and Harry thought it was safe to become visible again. He pulled off the cloak, shoved it in his bag and hurried onward. There was a great deal of shouting and movement coming from the entrance hall. He ran down the marble staircase and found what looked like most of the school assembled there. It was just like the night when Trelawney had been sacked. Students were standing all around the walls in a great ring. Some of them, Harry noticed, covered in a substance that looked very like stink sap. Teachers and ghosts were also in the crowd. Prominent among the onlookers were members of the Inquisitorial Squad, who were all looking exceptionally pleased with themselves, and Peeves, who was bobbing overhead, gazed down upon Fred and George, who stood in the middle of the floor with the unmistakable look of two people who had just been cornered. So, said Umbridge triumphantly, whom Harry realized was standing just a few stairs in front of him, once more looking down upon her prey. So, you think it amusing to turn a school corridor into a swamp? do you? Pretty amusing, yeah, said Fred, looking back up at her without the slightest sign of fear. Filch elbowed his way closer to Umbridge, almost crying with happiness. I've got the form, headmistress, he said hoarsely, waving the piece of parchment Harry had just seen him take from her desk. I've got the form and I've got the whips waiting. Oh, let me do it now. Very good, Argus, she said. You too, she went on gazing down at Fred and George are about to learn what happens to wrongdoers in my school. You know what? said Fred. I don't think we are. He turned to his twin. George, said Fred, I think we've outgrown full-time education. Yeah, I've been feeling that way myself, said George lightly. Time to test our talents in the real world, do you reckon? asked Fred. Definitely, said George. And before Umbridge could say a word, they raised their wands and said together, Arceo Brooms! Harry heard a loud crash somewhere in the distance. Looking to his left, he ducked just in time. Fred and George's broomsticks, one still trailing the heavy chain and iron peg with which Umbridge had fastened them to the wall, were hurtling along the corridor toward their owners. They turned left, streaked down the stairs, and stopped sharply in front of the twins, the chain clattering loudly on the flagged stone floor. We won't be seeing you, Fred told Professor Umbridge, swinging his leg over his broomstick. Yeah, don't bother to keep in touch, said George, mounting his own. Fred looked around at the assembled students and at the silent, watchful crowd. If anyone fancies buying a portable swamp, as demonstrated upstairs, come to number 93, Diagon Alley, Weasley's Wizarding Wheezes, he said in a loud voice. Our new premises. Special discounts to Hogwarts students who swear they're going to use our products to get rid of this old bat added George, pointing at Professor Umbridge. Stop them, shrieked Umbridge, but it was too late. 
As the inquisitorial squad closed in, Fred and George kicked off from the floor, shooting fifteen feet into the air, the iron peg swinging dangerously below. Fred looked across the hall at the poltergeist bobbing on his level above the crowd. Give her hell from us, Peeves! And Peeves, whom Harry had never seen take an order from a student before, swept his belled hat from his head and sprang to a salute as Fred and George wheeled about to tumultuous applause from the students below and sped out of the open front doors into the glorious sunset. Chapter 30 Grawp the story of Fred and George's flight to freedom was retold so often over the next few days that Harry could tell it would soon become the stuff of Hogwarts legend. Within a week, even those who had been eyewitnesses were half convinced that they had seen the twins dive-bomb umbrage on their brooms, pelting her with dung-bombs before zooming out of the doors. In the immediate aftermath of their departure, there was a great wave of talk about copying them, so that Harry frequently heard students saying things like, Honestly, some days I just feel like jumping on me broom and leaving this place. Or else, one more lesson like that, and I might just do a Weasley. Fred and George had made sure that nobody was likely to forget them very soon. For one thing, they had not left instructions on how to remove the swamp that now filled the corridor on the fifth floor of the East Wing. Umbridge and Filch had been observed trying different means of removing it, but without success. Eventually the area was roped off, and Filch, gnashing his teeth furiously, was given the task of punting students across it to their classrooms. Harry was certain that teachers like McGonagall or Flitwick could have removed the swamp in an instant, but just as in the case of Fred and George's wildfire whiz-bangs, they seemed to prefer to watch Umbridge struggle. Then there were the two large broom-shaped holes in Umbridge's office door, through which Fred and George's clean sweeps had smashed to rejoin their masters. Filch fitted a new door and removed Harry's firebolt to the dungeons where, it was rumoured, Umbridge has set an armed security troll to guard it. However, her troubles were far from over. Inspired by Fred and George's example, a great number of students were now vying for the newly vacant positions of troublemakers-in-chief. In spite of the new door, somebody managed to slip a hairy-snouted niffler into Umbridge's office, which promptly tore the place apart in its search for shiny objects, leapt on Umbridge on her re-entrance, and tried to gnaw the rings off her stubby fingers. Dung-bombs and stink-pellets were dropped so frequently in the corridors that it became the new fashion for students to perform bubble-head charms on themselves before leaving lessons, which ensured them a supply of fresh, clean air, even though it gave them all the peculiar appearance of wearing upside-down goldfish bowls on their heads. Filch prowled the corridors with a horsewhip ready in his hands, desperate to catch miscreants, but the problem was that there were now so many of them that he did not know which way to turn. The Inquisitorial squad were attempting to help him, but odd things kept happening to its members. Warrington of the Slithering Quidditch team reported to the hospital wing with a horrible skin complaint that made him look as though he had been coated in cornflakes. Pansy Parkinson, to Hermione's delight, missed all her lessons the following day as she had sprouted antlers. Meanwhile, it became clear just how many skiving snack boxes Fred and George had managed to sell before leaving Hogwarts. Umbridge only had to enter her classroom for the students assembled there to faint, vomit, develop dangerous fevers, or else spout blood from both nostrils. Shrieking with rage and frustration, she attempted to trace the mysterious symptoms to their source, but the students told her stubbornly they were suffering Umbridgeitis. 
After putting four successive classes in detention and failing to discover their secret, she was forced to give up and allow the bleeding, swooning, sweating, and vomiting students to leave her classes in droves. But not even the users of the snack boxes could compete with that master of chaos, Peeves, who seemed to have taken Fred's parting words deeply to heart. Cackling madly, he soared through the school, upending tables, bursting out of blackboards, toppling statues and vases. Twice he shut Mrs. Norris inside suits of armor, from which she was rescued, yowling loudly, by the furious caretaker. He smashed lanterns and snuffed out candles, juggled burning torches over the heads of screaming students, caused neatly stacked piles of parchment to topple into fires or out of windows, flooded the second floor when he pulled off all the taps in the bathrooms, dropped a bag of tarantulas in the middle of the great hall during breakfast, and, whenever he fancied a break, spent hours at a time floating along after umbrage and blowing loud raspberries every time she spoke. None of the staff but Filch seemed to be stirring themselves to help her. Indeed, a week after Fred and George's departure, Harry witnessed Professor McGonagall walking right past Peeves, who was determinedly loosening a crystal chandelier, and could have sworn he heard her tell the poltergeist out of the corner of her mouth, It unscrews the other way. To cap matters, Montague had still not recovered from his sojourn in the toilet. He remained confused and disorientated, and his parents were to be observed one Tuesday morning, striding up the front drive, looking extremely angry. Should we say something? said Hermione in a worried voice, pressing her cheek against the charm's window so that she could see Mr. and Mrs. Montague marching inside, about what happened to him, in case it helped Madame Pomfrey cure him. Course not. He'll recover, said Ron indifferently. Anyway, more trouble for Umbridge, isn't it? said Harry in a satisfied voice. He and Ron both tapped the teacups they were supposed to be charming with their wands. Harry's spouted four very short legs that would not reach the desk and wriggled pointlessly in midair. Ron's grew four very thin spindly legs that hoisted the cup off the desk with great difficulty, trembled for a few seconds, then folded, causing the cup to crack into two. Repero, said Hermione quickly, mending Ron's cup with a wave of her wand. That's all very well, but what if Montague's permanently injured? Who cares, said Ron irritably, while his teacup stood drunkenly again, trembling violently at the knees. Montague shouldn't have tried to take all those points from Gryffindor, should he? If you want to worry about anyone, Hermione, worry about me. You, she said, catching her teacup as it scampered happily away across the desk on four sturdy little willow-patterned legs and replacing it in front of her. Why should I be worried about you? When Mum's next letter finally gets through Umbridge's screening process, said Ron bitterly, now holding his cup up while its frail legs tried feebly to support its weight, I'm going to be in deep trouble. I wouldn't be surprised if she sent a howler again. But it'll be my fault Fred and George left you wait, said Ron darkly. She'll say I should have stopped them leaving. I should have grabbed the ends of their brooms and hung on or something. Yeah, it'll be all my fault. Well, if she does say that, it'll be very unfair. You couldn't have done anything. But I'm sure she won't. I mean, if it's really true they've got premises in Diagon Alley now, they must have been planning this for ages. Yeah, but that's another thing. How did they get premises? said Ron, hitting his teacup so hard with his wand that its legs collapsed again, and it lay twitching before him. It's a bit dodgy, isn't it? They'll need loads of galleons to afford the rent on a place in Diagon Alley. She'll want to know what they've been up to to get their hands on that sort of gold. Well, yes, that occurred to me, too, 
said Hermione, allowing her teacup to jog in neat little circles around Harry's, whose stubby little legs were still unable to touch the desktop. I've been wondering whether Mundungus has persuaded them to sell stolen goods or something awful. He hasn't, said Harry curtly. How do you know? said Ron and Hermione together. Because... Harry hesitated, but the moment to confess finally seemed to have come. There was no good to be gained in keeping silent if it meant anyone suspected that Fred and George were criminals. Because they got the gold from me. I gave them my Triwizard winnings last June. There was a shocked silence. Then Hermione's teacup jogged right over the edge of the desk and smashed on the floor. Oh, Harry, you didn't, she said. Yes, I did, said Harry mutinously. And I don't regret it either. I didn't need the gold, and they'll be great at a joke shop. But this is excellent, said Ron, looking thrilled. It's all your fault, Harry. Mum can't blame me at all. Can I tell her? Yeah, I suppose you'd better, said Harry dully, especially if she thinks they're receiving stolen cauldrons or something. Hermione said nothing at all for the rest of the lesson, but Harry had a shrewd suspicion that her self-restraint was bound to crack before long. Sure enough, once they had left the castle for break and were standing around in the weak May sunshine, she fixed Harry with a beady eye and opened her mouth with a determined air. Harry interrupted her before she had even started. It's no good nagging me, it's done, he said firmly. Fred and George have got the gold. Spent a good bit of it, too, by the sounds of it. And I can't get it back from them and I don't want to, so save your breath, Hermione. I wasn't going to say anything about Fred and George, she said in an injured voice. Ron snorted disbelievingly, and Hermione threw him a very dirty look. No, I wasn't, she said angrily. As a matter of fact, I was going to ask Harry when he's going to go back to Snape and ask for occlumency lessons again. Harry's heart sank. Once they had exhausted the subject of Fred and George's dramatic departure, which admittedly had taken many hours, Ron and Hermione had wanted to hear news of Sirius. As Harry had not confided in them the reason he had wanted to talk to Sirius in the first place, it had been hard to think of things to tell them. He had ended up saying to them truthfully that Sirius wanted Harry to resume occlumency lessons. He had been regretting this ever since. Hermione would not let the subject drop and kept reverting to it when Harry least expected it. You can't tell me you've stopped having funny dreams, Hermione said now, because Ron told me last night you were muttering in your sleep again. Harry threw Ron a furious look. Ron had the grace to look ashamed of himself. You were only muttering a bit, he mumbled apologetically, something about just a bit farther. I dreamed I was watching you lot play Quidditch, Harry lied brutally. I was trying to get you to stretch out a bit farther to grab the quaffle. Ron's ears went red. Harry felt a kind of vindictive pleasure. He had not, of course, dreamed anything of the sort. Last night he had once again made the journey along the Department of Mysteries corridor. He had passed through the circular room, then the room full of clicking and dancing light, until he found himself again inside that cavernous room full of shelves on which were ranged dusty glass spheres. He had hurried straight toward row number 97, turned left and ran along it. It had probably been then that he had spoken aloud, just a bit farther, for he could feel his conscious self struggling to wake, and before he had reached the end of the row, he had found himself lying in bed again, gazing up at the canopy of his four-poster. "'You are trying to block your mind, aren't you?' said Hermione, looking beadily at Harry. "'You are keeping going with your occlumency.' "'Of course I am,' said Harry, trying to sound as though this question was insulting, but not quite meeting her eye. 
The truth was that he was so intensely curious about what was hidden in that room full of dusty orbs that he was quite keen for the dreams to continue. The problem was that with just under a month to go until the exams and every free moment devoted to studying, his mind seemed saturated with information when he went to bed, so that he found it very difficult to get to sleep at all. When he did, his overwrought brain presented him most nights with stupid dreams about the exams. He also suspected that part of his mind, the part that often spoke in Hermione's voice, now felt guilty on the occasions it strayed down that corridor, ending in the black door, and sought to wake him before he could reach Journey's end. You know, said Ron, whose ears were still flaming red, if Montague doesn't recover before Slytherin play Hufflepuff, we might be in with a chance of winning the cup. Yeah, I suppose so, said Harry, glad of a change of subject. I mean, we've won one, lost one. If Slytherin lose to Hufflepuff next Saturday... Yeah, that's right, said Harry, losing track of what he was agreeing to. Cho Chang had just walked across the courtyard, determinedly not looking at him. The final match of the Quidditch season, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw, was to take place on the last weekend of May. Although Slytherin had been narrowly defeated by Hufflepuff in their last match, Gryffindor was not daring to hope for victory, due mainly, though of course nobody said it to him, to Ron's abysmal goalkeeping record. He, however, seemed to have found a new optimism. I mean, I can't get any worse, can I? He told Harry and Hermione grimly over breakfast on the morning of the match. Nothing to lose now, is there? You know, said Hermione, as she and Harry walked down to the pitch a little later, in the midst of a very excitable crowd, I think Ron might do better without Fred and George around. They never exactly gave him a lot of confidence. Luna Lovegood overtook them with what appeared to be a live eagle perched on top of her head. Oh, gosh, I forgot, said Hermione, watching the eagle flapping its wings as Luna walked serenely past a group of cackling and pointing Slytherins. Cho will be playing, won't she? Harry, who had not forgotten this, merely grunted. They found seats in the topmost row of the stands. It was a fine, clear day. Ron could not wish for better, and Harry found himself hoping against hope that Ron would not give the Slytherins cause for more rousing choruses of Weasley is our king. Lee Jordan, who had been very dispirited since Fred and George had left, was commentating as usual. As the team zoomed out onto the pitches, he named the players with something less than his usual gusto. Bradley, Davis, Chang, he said, and Harry felt his stomach perform less of a backflip, more a feeble lurch as Cho walked out onto the pitch, her shiny black hair rippling in the slight breeze. He was not sure what he wanted to happen any more, except that he could not stand any more rows. Even the sight of her chatting animatedly to Roger Davis as they prepared to mount their brooms caused him only a slight twinge of jealousy. And they're off! said Lee. And Davis takes the quaffle immediately. Ravenclaw Captain Davis with a quaffle. He dodges Johnson. He dodges Bell. He dodges Spinet as well. He's going straight for goal. He's going to shoot and... and... Lee swore very loudly. And he scored! Harry and Hermione groaned with the rest of the Gryffindors. Predictably, horribly, the Slytherins on the other side of the stands began to sing. Weasley cannot save a thing. He cannot block a single ring. Harry! said a hoarse voice in Harry's ear. Hermione! Harry looked around and saw Hagrid's enormous bearded face sticking between the seats. Apparently he had squeezed his way all along the row behind, for the first and second years he had just passed had a ruffled, flattened look about them. 
For some reason, Hagrid was bent double as though anxious not to be seen, though he was still at least four feet taller than everybody else. Listen, he whispered, can you come with me now while everyone's watching the match? Uh, can't it wait, Hagrid? asked Harry, till the match is over. No, said Hagrid. No, Harry, it's got to be now, while everyone's looking the other way, please. Hagrid's nose was gently dripping blood. His eyes were both blackened. Harry had not seen him this close up since his return to the school. He looked utterly woebegone. Course, said Harry at once. Course will come. He and Hermione edged back along their rows of seats, causing much grumbling among the students who had to stand up for them. The people in Hagrid's row were not complaining, merely attempting to make themselves as small as possible. I appreciate this, you two, I really do, said Hagrid as they reached the stairs. He kept looking around nervously as they descended toward the lawn below. I just hope she doesn't notice us going. You mean Umbridge, said Harry. She won't. She's got her whole inquisitorial squad sitting with her, didn't you see? She must be expecting trouble at the match. Yeah, well, a bit of trouble wouldn't hurt, said Hagrid, pausing to peer around the edge of the stands to make sure the stretch of lawn between there and his cabin was deserted. Give us more time. What is it, Hagrid? said Hermione, looking up at him with a concerned expression on her face as they hurried across the lawn toward the edge of the forest. Yeah, you'll see in a moment, said Hagrid, looking over his shoulder as a great roar rose from the stands behind them. Hey! Did someone just score? It'll be Ravenclaw, said Harry heavily. Good, good, said Hagrid distractedly. That's good. They had to jog to keep up with him as he strode across the lawn, looking around with every other step. When they reached his cabin, Hermione turned automatically left toward the front door. Hagrid, however, walked straight past it into the shade of the trees on the outermost edge of the forest, where he picked up a crossbow that was leaning against a tree. When he realized they were no longer with him, he turned. We're going in here, he said, jerking his shaggy head behind him. Into the forest, said Hermione, perplexed. Yeah, said Hagrid. Come on now, quick, before we're spotted. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, then ducked into the cover of the trees behind Hagrid, who was already striding away from them into the green gloom, his crossbow over his arm. Harry and Hermione ran to catch up with him. Hagrid! Why are you armed? said Harry. Just a precaution, said Hagrid, shrugging his massive shoulders. You didn't bring your crossbow the day you showed us the Thestrals, said Hermione timidly. Nah, well, we weren't going in so far then, said Hagrid. And anyway, that was before Ferenzi left the forest, wasn't it? Why does Ferenzi leaving make a difference? asked Hermione curiously. Because the other centaurs are good and riled at me, that's why said Hagrid quietly, glancing around. They used to be, well, you couldn't call them friendly, but we got on all right. Kept themselves to themselves, but always turned up if I wanted a word. Not any more. He sighed deeply. Ferenzi said that they're angry because he went to work for Dumbledore? Harry asked, tripping on a protruding root, because he was busy watching Hagrid's profile. Yeah, said Hagrid heavily. Well, angry doesn't cover it. Ruddy livid. If I hadn't stepped in, I reckon they'd have kicked Ferenzi to death. They attacked him, said Hermione, sounding shocked. Yep, said Hagrid gruffly, forcing his way through several low-hanging branches. He had half the herd onto him. And you stopped it, said Harry, amazed and impressed. 
by yourself? Course I did. Couldn't stand by and watch him killing, could I? said Hagrid. Lucky I was passing, really, and I'd have thought Forenzi might have remembered that before he started sending me stupid warnings, he added hotly and unexpectedly. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, startled, but Hagrid, scowling, did not elaborate. Anyway, he said, breathing a little more heavily than usual, since then the other centaur has been livid with me, and the trouble is, they've got a lot of influence in the forest. Cleverest creatures in here. Is that why we're here, Hagrid? asked Hermione, the centaurs. Ah, uh, no, said Hagrid, shaking his head dismissively. No, it's not them. Well, of course, they could complicate the problem, yeah, but you'll see what I mean in a bit. On this incomprehensible note he fell silent and forged a little ahead, taking one stride for every three of theirs so that they had great trouble keeping up with him. The path was becoming increasingly overgrown, and the trees grew so closely together as they walked farther and farther into the forest that it was as dark as dusk. They were soon a long way past the clearing where Hagrid had shown them the Thestrals, but Harry felt no sense of unease until Hagrid stepped unexpectedly off the path and began wending his way in and out of the trees toward the dark heart of the forest. Hagrid! said Harry, fighting his way through thickly knotted brambles over which Hagrid had stepped easily, and remembering very vividly what had happened to him on the other occasions he had stepped off the forest path. Where are we going? Bit further, said Hagrid over his shoulder. Come on, Harry, we need to keep together now. It was a great struggle to keep up with Hagrid, what with branches and thickets of thorn through which Hagrid marched as easily as though they were cobwebs, but which snagged Harry and Hermione's robes, frequently entangling them so severely that they had to stop for minutes at a time to free themselves. Harry's arms and legs were soon covered in small cuts and scratches. They were so deep in the forest now that sometimes all Harry could see of Hagrid in the gloom was a massive dark shape ahead of him. Any sounds seemed threatening in the muffled silence. The breaking of a twig echoed loudly, and the tiniest rustle of movement, though it might have been made by an innocent sparrow, caused Harry to peer through the gloom for a culprit. It occurred to him that he had never managed to get this far into the forest without meeting some kind of creature. Their absence struck him as rather ominous. Hagrid, would it be all right if we lit our ones? said Hermione quietly. Uh, all right, Hagrid whispered back. In fact... He stopped suddenly and turned around. Hermione walked right into him and was knocked over backward. Harry caught her just before she hit the forest floor. Maybe we best just stop for a moment so I can fill you in, said Hagrid, before we get there, like. Good, said Hermione as Harry set her back on her feet. They both murmured, Lumos, and their one tips ignited. Hagrid's face swam through the gloom by the light of the two wavering beams, and Harry saw that he looked nervous and sad again. Right, said Hagrid. Well, see, the thing is... He took a great breath. Well, there's a good chance I'm going to be getting the sack any day now, he said. Harry and Hermione looked at each other, then back at him. But you've lasted this long, Hermione said tentatively. What makes you think? Umbridge reckons it was me that put that niffler in her office. And was it? said Harry, before he could stop himself. No, it ruddy well wasn't, said Hagrid indignantly. Only anything to do with magical creatures, and she thinks it's got something to do with me. 
You know she's been looking for a chance to get rid of me ever since I got back. I don't want to go, of course, but if it wasn't for, well, the special circumstances I'm about to explain to you, I'd leave right now before she's got the chance to do it in front of the old school like she did with Trelawney. Harry and Hermione both made noises of protest, but Hagrid overrode them with a wave of one of his enormous hands. It's not the end of the world. I'll be able to help Dumbledore once I'm out of here. I can be useful to the Order, and you lot will have grubbly plank. You'll... you'll get through your exams fine. His voice trembled and broke. Don't worry about me, he said hastily as Hermione made to pat his arm. He pulled his enormous spotted handkerchief from the pocket of his waistcoat and mopped his eyes with it. Look, I wouldn't be telling you this at all if I didn't have to. See, if I go, well, I can't leave without... without telling someone, because I'll... I'll need you to help me, and Ron, if he's willing. Of course we'll help you, said Harry at once. What do you want us to do? Hagrid gave a great sniff and patted Harry wordlessly on the shoulder with such force that Harry was knocked sideways into a tree. I knew you'd say yes, said Hagrid into his handkerchief. But I won't never forget. Well, come on, just a little bit further through here. Watch yourselves now. There's nettles. They walked on in silence for another fifteen minutes. Harry had opened his mouth to ask how much farther they had to go when Hagrid threw out his right arm to signal that they should stop. Really easy, he said softly. Very quiet now. They crept forward, and Harry saw that they were facing a large, smooth mound of earth nearly as tall as Hagrid that he thought, with a jolt of dread, was sure to be the lair of some enormous animal. Trees had been ripped up at the roots all around the mound, so that it stood on a bare patch of ground surrounded by heaps of trunks and boughs that formed a kind of fence or barricade behind which Harry, Hermione, and Hagrid now stood. Sleeping, breathed Hagrid. Sure enough, Harry could hear a distant, rhythmic rumbling that sounded like a pair of enormous lungs at work. He glanced sideways at Hermione, who was gazing at the mound with her mouth slightly open. She looked utterly terrified. Hagrid, she said in a whisper barely audible over the sound of the sleeping creature. Who is he? Harry found this an odd question. What is it? was the one he had been planning on asking. Hagrid, you told us, said Hermione, her wand now shaking in her hand. You told us none of them wanted to come. Harry looked from her to Hagrid, and then, as realization hit him, he looked back at the mound with a small gasp of horror. The great mound of earth on which he, Hermione, and Hagrid could easily have stood was moving slowly up and down in time with a deep, grunting breathing. It was not a mound at all. It was the curved back of what was clearly... Well, no, he didn't want to come, said Hagrid, sounding desperate. But I had to bring him, Hermione. I had to. But why? asked Hermione, who sounded as though she wanted to cry. Why? What? Oh, Hagrid! I knew if I just got him back, 
said Hagrid, sounding close to tears himself, and, and taught him a few manners, I'd be able to take him outside and show everyone he's harmless. Harmless, said Hermione shrilly, and Hagrid made frantic hushing noises with his hands as the enormous creature before them grunted loudly and shifted in its sleep. He's been hurting you all this time, hasn't he? That's why you've had all these injuries. He don't know his own strength, said Hagrid earnestly, and he's getting better. He's not fighting so much any more. So this is why it took you two months to get home, said Hermione distractedly. Oh, Hagrid, why did you bring him back if he didn't want to come? Wouldn't he have been happier with his own people? They were all bullying him, Hermione, cause he's so small, said Hagrid. Small, said Hermione. Small? Hermione, I couldn't leave him, said Hagrid, tears now trickling down his bruised face into his beard. You see, he's my brother. Hermione simply stared at him, her mouth open. Hagrid, when you say brother, said Harry slowly. Do you mean... Well, half-brother, amended Hagrid. Turns out me mother took up with another giant when she left me dad, and she went and had Grop here. Grop? said Harry. Yeah, well, that's what it sounds like when he says his name, said Hagrid anxiously. He don't speak a lot of English. I've been trying to teach him. Anyway, she don't seem to have liked him much more than she liked me. You see, with giantesses, what counts is producing good, big kids. And he's always been a bit on the runty side for a giant. Only sixteen foot. Oh, yes, tiny, said Hermione, with a kind of hysterical sarcasm. Absolutely minuscule. He was being kicked around by all of them. I just couldn't leave him. Did Madame Maxime want to bring him back? asked Harry. She, well, she could see it was right important to me, said Hagrid, twisting his enormous hands. But, but, she got a bit tired of him after a while, I must admit. So we split up on the journey home. She promised not to tell anyone, though. How on earth did you get him back without anyone noticing? said Harry. Well, that's why it took so long, see, said Hagrid. Could only travel by night and through wild country and stuff. Course, he covers the ground pretty well when he wants to, but he kept wanting to go back. Oh, Hagrid, why on earth didn't you let him? said Hermione, flopping down onto a ripped-up tree and burying her face in her hands. What do you think you're going to do with a violent giant who doesn't even want to be here? Well, now, violent, that's a bit harsh, said Hagrid, still twisting his hands agitatedly. I'll admit he might have taken a couple of swings at me when he's been in a bad mood, but he's getting better, loads better, settling down well. What are those ropes for, then? Harry asked. He had just noticed ropes thick as saplings stretching from around the trunks of the largest nearby trees toward the place where Grop lay curled on the ground with his back to them. You have to keep him tied up, said Hermione faintly. Well, yeah, said Hagrid, looking anxious. You see, it's like I say, he doesn't really know his strength. Harry understood now why there had been such a suspicious lack of any other living creature in this part of the forest. 
So what is it you want Harry and Ron and me to do? Hermione asked apprehensively. Look after him, said Hagrid croakily. After I'm gone. Harry and Hermione exchanged miserable looks. Harry uncomfortably aware that he had already promised Hagrid that he would do whatever he asked. What? What does that involve, exactly? Hermione inquired. Not food or anything, said Hagrid eagerly. He can get his own food, no problem. Birds and deer and stuff. No, it's company he needs. If I just knew someone was carrying on trying to help him a bit, teaching him, you know. Harry said nothing, but turned to look back at the gigantic form lying asleep on the ground in front of them. Grawp had his back to them. Unlike Hagrid, who simply looked like a very oversized human, Grawp looked strangely misshapen. What Harry had taken to be a vast mossy boulder to the left of the great earthen mound, he now recognized as Grawp's head. It was much larger in proportion to the body than a human head, almost perfectly round and covered with tightly curling, close-growing hair the color of bracken. The rim of a single large fleshy ear was visible on top of the head, which seemed to sit, rather like Uncle Vernon's, directly upon the shoulders with little or no neck in between. The back, under what looked like a dirty brownish smock comprised of animal skins sewn roughly together, was very broad, and as Grawp slept it seemed to strain a little at the rough seams of the skins. The legs were curled up under the body. Harry could see the soles of enormous, filthy bare feet, large as sledges, resting one on top of the other on the earthy forest floor. "'You want us to teach him?' Harry said in a hollow voice. He now understood what Ferenzi's warning had meant. His attempt is not working. He would do better to abandon it. Of course, the other creatures who lived in the forest would have heard Hagrid's fruitless attempts to teach Grawp English.' Yeah, even if you just talk to him a bit, said Hagrid hopefully. Cause I reckon if he can talk to people, he'll understand more that we all like him really and want him to stay. Harry looked at Hermione, who peered back at him from between the fingers over her face. Kinda makes you wish we had Norbert back, doesn't it? he said, and she gave a very shaky laugh. You'll do it then? said Hagrid, who did not seem to have caught what Harry had just said. We'll, said Harry, already bound by his promise. We'll try, Hagrid. I knew I could count on you, Harry, Hagrid said, beaming in a very watery way and dabbing at his face with his handkerchief again. And I don't want you to put yourself out too much, like, I know you've got exams. If you could just nip down here in your invisibility cloak maybe once a week and have a little chat with him, I'll wake him up then, introduce you. What? No, said Hermione, jumping up. Hagrid, no, don't wake him. Really, we don't need... But Hagrid had already stepped over the great trunk in front of them and was proceeding toward Grawp. When he was around ten feet away, he lifted a long, broken bow from the ground, smiled reassuringly over his shoulder at Harry and Hermione, and then poked Grawp hard in the middle of the back with the end of the bow. The giant gave a roar that echoed around the silent forest. Birds in the treetops overhead rose, twittering from their perches, and soared away. In front of Harry and Hermione, meanwhile, the gigantic Grawp was rising from the ground, which shuddered as he placed an enormous hand upon it to push himself onto his knees, and turned his head to see who and what had disturbed him. All right, Grawpy, 
said Hagrid in a would-be cheery voice, backing away with a long bow raised, ready to poke Grawp again. Had a nice sleep, eh? Harry and Hermione retreated as far as they could, while still keeping the giant within their sights. Grawp knelt between two trees he had not yet uprooted. They looked up into his startlingly huge face, which resembled a grey full moon swimming in the gloom of the clearing. It was as though the features had been hewn onto a great stone ball. The nose was stubby and shapeless, the mouth lopsided and full of misshapen yellow teeth the size of half-bricks. The small eyes were a muddy greenish-brown, and just now were half-gummed together with sleep. Grawp raised dirty knuckles as big as cricket balls to his eyes, rubbed vigorously, then, without warning, pushed himself to his feet with surprising speed and agility. Oh, my! Harry heard Hermione squeal, terrified beside him. The trees to which the other ends of the ropes around Grawp's wrists and ankles were attached creaked ominously. He was, as Hagrid had said, at least sixteen feet tall. Gazing blearily around, he reached out a hand the size of a beech umbrella, seized a bird's nest from the upper branches of a towering pine, and turned it upside down with a roar of apparent displeasure that there was no bird in it. Eggs fell like grenades toward the ground, and Hagrid threw his arms over his head to protect himself. "'Anyway, Crawpy!' shouted Hagrid, looking up apprehensively in case of further falling eggs. "'I brought some friends to meet you. Remember I told you I might? Remember when I said I might have to go on a little trip and leave them to look after you for a bit? Remember that, Crawpy?' But Grawp merely gave another low roar. It was hard to say whether he was listening to Hagrid, or whether he even recognized the sounds Hagrid was making as speech. He had now seized the top of the pine tree and was pulling it toward him, evidently for the simple pleasure of seeing how far it would spring back when he let go. "'Now, Grawpy, don't do that!' shouted Hagrid. "'That's how you ended up pulling up the others!' And, sure enough, Harry could see the earth around the tree's roots beginning to crack. "'I got company for you!' Hagrid shouted. Company! See! Look down, you big buffoon! I bought you some friends! Oh, Hagrid, don't! moaned Hermione, but Hagrid had already raised the bow again and gave Grawp's knee a sharp poke. The giant let go of the top of the pine tree, which swayed menacingly and deluged Hagrid with a rain of needles and looked down. This! said Hagrid, hastening over to where Harry and Hermione stood. It's Harry Grawp! Harry Potter, he might be coming to visit you if I have to go away, understand? The giant had only just realized that Harry and Hermione were there. They watched in great trepidation as he lowered his huge boulder of a head so that he could peer blearily at them. And this is Hermione, see? Her... Hagrid hesitated. Turning to Hermione, he said, Would you mind if he called you Hermy, Hermione? Only it's a difficult name for him to remember. No, not at all, squeaked Hermione. This is Hermie, Grop, and she's going to be coming and all. Isn't that nice, eh? Two friends for you to... Gropy, no! Grop's hand had shot out of nowhere toward Hermione. Harry seized her and pulled her backward behind the tree so that Grop's fists scraped the trunk but closed on thin air. Bad boy, Gropy! Harry heard Hagrid yelling as Hermione clung to Harry behind the tree, shaking and whimpering. Very bad boy! You don't grab... Ouch! 
Harry poked his head out from around the trunk and saw Hagrid lying on his back, his hand over his nose. Grawp, apparently losing interest, had straightened up again and was again engaged in pulling back the pine as far as it would go. Right, said Hagrid thickly, getting up with one hand pinching his bleeding nose and the other grasping his crossbow. Well, they are. You've met him and... And now he'll know you when you come back. Yeah. Well, he looked up at Grawp, who was now pulling back the pine with an expression of detached pleasure on his boulderish face. The roots were creaking as he ripped them away from the ground. Well, I reckon that's enough for one day, said Hagrid. We'll, uh, we'll go back now, shall we? Harry and Hermione nodded. Hagrid shouldered his crossbow again and, still pinching his nose, led the way back into the trees. Nobody spoke for a while, not even when they heard the distant crash that meant Grawp had pulled over the pine tree at last. Hermione's face was pale and set. Harry could not think of a single thing to say. What on earth was going to happen when somebody found out that Hagrid had hidden Grawp in the forest, and he had promised that he, Ron, and Hermione would continue Hagrid's totally pointless attempts to civilize the giant? How could Hagrid, even with his immense capacity to delude himself that fanged monsters were lovably harmless, fool himself that Grawp would ever be fit to mix with humans? Hold it, said Hagrid abruptly, just as Harry and Hermione were struggling through a patch of thick knotgrass behind him. He pulled an arrow out of the quiver over his shoulder and fitted it into the crossbow. Harry and Hermione raised their wands. Now that they had stopped walking, they too could hear movement close by. Oh, blimey, said Hagrid quietly. I thought that we told you, Hagrid, said a deep male voice, that you are no longer welcome here. A man's naked torso seemed for an instant to be floating toward them through the dappled green half-light. Then they saw that his waist joined smoothly with a horse's chestnut body. This centaur had a proud, high-cheekbone face and long black hair. Like Hagrid, he was armed. A quiver full of arrows and a long bow were slung over his shoulders. "'How are you, Megorian?' said Hagrid warily. The trees behind the centaur rustled and four or five more emerged behind him. Harry recognized the black-bodied and bearded Bane, whom he had met nearly four years ago on the same night he had met Ferenzi. Bane gave no sign that he had ever seen Harry before. So, he said, with a nasty inflection in his voice, before turning immediately to Megorian. We agreed, I think, what we would do if this human showed his face in the forest again. This human now, am I? said Hagrid testily. Just for stopping all of you committing murder? You ought not to have meddled, Hagrid, said Megorian. Our ways are not yours, nor are our laws. Ferenzi has betrayed and dishonored us. I don't know where you worked that out, said Hagrid impatiently. He's done nothing except help Albus Dumbledore. Ferenzi has entered into servitude to humans, said a grey centaur with a hard, deeply lined face. Servitude? said Hagrid scathingly. He's doing Dumbledore a favor, is all. He is peddling our knowledge and secrets among humans, said Megorian quietly. There can be no return from such disgrace. If you say so, said Hagrid, shrugging. But personally, I think you're making a big mistake. As are you, human, said Bane, coming back into our forest when we warned you. Now you listen to me, said Hagrid angrily. I'll have less of the our forest if it's all the same to you. It's not up to you who comes and goes in here. 
No more is it up to you, Hagrid, said Megorian smoothly. I shall let you pass today because you are accompanied by your young. They're not his, interrupted Bane contemptuously. Students, Magorian, from up at the school. They have probably already profited from the traitor Ferenzi's teachings. Nevertheless, said Megorian calmly, the slaughter of fools is a terrible crime. We do not touch the innocent. Today, Hagrid, you pass. Henceforth, stay away from this place. You forfeited the friendship of the centaurs when you helped the traitor Ferenzi escape us. I won't be kept out of the forest by a bunch of mules like you, said Hagrid loudly. Hagrid, said Hermione in a high-pitched and terrified voice as both Bane and the grey centaur poured at the ground. Let's go, please, let's go. Hagrid moved forward, but his crossbow was still raised and his eyes were still fixed threateningly upon Megorian. We know what you are keeping in the forest, Hagrid, Megorian called after them as the centaurs slipped out of sight. And our tolerance is waning. Hagrid turned and gave every appearance of wanting to walk straight back to Megorian again. You'll tolerate him as long as he's here. It's as much his forest as yours, he yelled, while Harry and Hermione both pushed with all their might against Hagrid's moleskin waistcoat in an effort to keep him moving forward. Still scowling, he looked down. His expression changed to mild surprise at the sight of them both pushing him. He seemed not to have felt it. Calm down, you two, he said, turning to walk on while they panted along behind him. Ruddy old Nagzo, eh? Hagrid, said Hermione breathlessly, skirting the patch of nettles they had passed on their way there. If the centaurs don't want humans in the forest, it doesn't really look as though Harry and I will be able... Ah, you heard what they said, said Hagrid dismissively. They wouldn't hurt foals, I mean kids. Anyway, we can't let ourselves be pushed around by that lot. Nice try, Harry murmured to Hermione, who looked crestfallen. At last they rejoined the path, and after another ten minutes the trees began to thin. They were able to see patches of clear blue sky again, and hear, in the distance, the definite sounds of cheering and shouting. Was that another goal? asked Hagrid, pausing in the shelter of the trees as the Quidditch Stadium came into view. Or do you reckon the match is over? I don't know, said Hermione miserably. Harry saw that she looked much the worse for wear. Her hair was full of bits of twigs and leaves, her robes were ripped in several places, and there were numerous scratches on her face and arms. He knew he could look little better. I reckon it's over, you know, said Hagrid, still squinting toward the stadium. Look! There's people coming out already. If you two hurry, you'll be able to blend in with the crowd, and no one'll know you weren't there. Good idea, said Harry. Well, see you later then, Hagrid. I don't believe him, said Hermione in a very unsteady voice the moment they were out of earshot of Hagrid. I don't believe him. I really don't believe him. Calm down, said Harry. Calm down, she said feverishly. A giant? A giant in the forest? And we're supposed to give him English lessons? Always assuming, of course, we can get past the herd of murderous centaurs on the way in and out. I don't believe him. We haven't got to do anything yet. Harry tried to reassure her in a quiet voice as they joined a stream of jabbering Hufflepuffs heading back toward the castle. He's not asking us to do anything unless he gets chucked out, and that might not even happen. Oh, come off it, Harry. 
said Hermione angrily, stopping dead in her tracks so that the people behind her had to swerve to avoid her. Of course he's going to be chucked out, and to be perfectly honest, after what we've just seen, who can blame Umbridge? There was a pause in which Harry glared at her, and her eyes filled slowly with tears. You didn't mean that, said Harry quietly. No. Well, all right, I didn't, she said, wiping her eyes angrily. But why does he have to make life so difficult for himself, for us? I don't know. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He didn't let the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. And I wish they'd stop singing that stupid song, said Hermione miserably. Haven't they gloated enough? A great tide of students was moving up the sloping lawns from the pitch. Oh, let's get in before we have to meet the Slytherins, said Hermione. Weasley can save anything, he never leaves a single ring. That's why Gryffindors all sing, Weasley is our king. Hermione, said Harry slowly. The song was growing louder, but it was issuing not from a crowd of green and silver-clad Slytherins, but from a mass of red and gold moving slowly toward the castle, which was bearing a solitary figure upon its many shoulders. Weasley is our king. Weasley is our king. He didn't let the quaffle in. Weasley is our king. No, said Hermione in a hushed voice. Yes, said Harry loudly. Harry, Hermione, yelled Ron, waving the silver Quidditch cup in the air and looking quite beside himself. We did it. We won. They beamed up at him as he passed. There was a scrum at the door of the castle and Ron's head got rather badly bumped on the lintel but nobody seemed to want to put him down. Still singing, the crowd squeezed itself into the entrance hall and out of sight. Harry and Hermione watched them go, beaming, until the last echoing strains of Weasley is our king died away. Then they turned to each other, their smiles fading. We'll save our news till tomorrow, shall we? said Harry. Yes. All right, said Hermione wearily. I'm not in any hurry. They climbed the steps together. At the front doors, both instinctively looked back at the forbidden forest. Harry was not sure whether it was his imagination or not, but he rather thought he saw a small cloud of birds erupting into the air over the treetops in the distance, almost as though the tree in which they had been nesting had just been pulled up by the roots. Chapter 31 O.W.L.'s Ron's euphoria at helping Gryffindor scrape the Quidditch cup was such that he could not settle to anything next day. All he wanted to do was talk over the match, and Harry and Hermione found it very difficult to find an opening in which to mention Grawp. Not that either of them tried very hard, neither was keen to be the one to bring Ron back to reality in quite such a brutal fashion. As it was another fine, warm day, they persuaded him to join them in studying under the beech tree on the edge of the lake, where they stood less chance of being overheard than in the common room. Ron was not particularly keen on this idea at first. He was thoroughly enjoying being patted on the back by Gryffindors walking past his chair, not to mention the occasional outbursts of Weasley is our king, but agreed after a while that some fresh air might do him good. They spread their books out in the shade of the beech tree and sat down, while Ron talked them through his first save of the match for what felt like the dozenth time. Well, I mean, I'd already let in that one of Davis's, so I wasn't feeling that confident, but I don't know. When Bradley came toward me, just out of nowhere, I thought, you can do this! And I had about a second to decide which way to fly, you know. 
because he looked like he was aiming for the right goal hoop. My right, obviously his left, but I had a funny feeling that he was fainting. And so I took the chance and flew left, his right, I mean. And well, you saw what happened. He concluded modestly, sweeping his hair back quite unnecessarily so that it looked interestingly windswept and glancing around to see whether the people nearest to them, a bunch of gossiping third-year Hufflepuffs, had heard him. And then, when Chambers came at me about five minutes later, what? Ron said, stopping mid-sentence at the look on Harry's face. Why are you grinning? I'm not, said Harry quickly, looking down at his transfiguration notes and attempting to straighten his face. The truth was that Ron had just reminded Harry forcibly of another Gryffindor Quidditch player who had once sat rumpling his hair under this very tree. I'm just glad we won, that's all. Yeah, said Ron slowly, savouring the words, we won. Did you see the look on Chang's face when Ginny got the snitch right out from under her nose? I suppose she cried, did she? said Harry bitterly. Well, yeah, more out of temper than anything, though. Ron frowned slightly. But you saw her chuck her broom away when she got back to the ground, didn't you? Uh, said Harry. Well, actually, no, Ron, said Hermione with a heavy sigh, putting down her book and looking at him apologetically. As a matter of fact, the only bit of the match Harry and I saw was Davis's first goal. Ron's carefully ruffled hair seemed to wilt with disappointment. You didn't watch, he said faintly, looking from one to the other. You didn't see me make any of those saves? Well, no, said Hermione, stretching out a placatory hand toward him. But, Ron, we didn't want to leave. We had to. Yeah, said Ron, whose face was growing rather red. How come? It was Hagrid, said Harry. He decided to tell us why he's been covered in injuries ever since he got back from the Giants. He wanted us to go into the forest with him. We had no choice. You know how he gets. Anyway... The story was told in five minutes, by the end of which Ron's indignation had been replaced by a look of total incredulity. He brought one back and hid it in the forest? Yep, said Harry grimly. No, said Ron, as though by saying this he could make it untrue. No, he can't have. Well, he has, said Hermione firmly. Grawp's about sixteen feet tall, enjoys ripping up twenty-foot pine trees, and knows me... She snorted, as Hermy. Ron gave a nervous laugh. And Hagrid wants us to teach him English, yeah, said Harry. He's lost his mind, said Ron, in an almost awed voice. Yes, said Hermione irritably, turning a page of intermediate transfiguration and glaring at a series of diagrams showing an owl turning into a pair of opera glasses. Yes, I'm starting to think he has. But unfortunately, he made Harry and me promise. Well, you're just going to have to break your promise, that's all, said Ron firmly. I mean, come on, we've got exams and we're about that far. He held up his hand to show thumb and forefinger a millimeter apart from being chucked out as it is. And anyway, remember Norbert? Remember Aragog? Have we ever come off better for mixing with any of Hagrid's monster mates? I know, it's just that we promised said Hermione in a small voice. Ron smoothed his hair flat again, looking preoccupied. Well, he sighed, Hagrid hasn't been sacked yet, has he? He's hung on this long. Maybe he'll hang on till the end of term and we won't have to go near Grawp at all. The castle grounds were gleaming in the sunlight as though freshly painted. The cloudless sky smiled at itself in the smoothly sparkling lake. 
The satin green lawns rippled occasionally in a gentle breeze. June had arrived, but to the fifth years this meant only one thing. Their OWLs were upon them at last. Their teachers were no longer setting them homework. Lessons were devoted to reviewing those topics their teachers thought most likely to come up in their exams. The purposeful, feverish atmosphere drove nearly everything but the OWLs from Harry's mind, though he did wonder occasionally during potions lessons whether Lupin had ever told Snape that he must continue giving Harry occlumency tuition. If he had, then Snape had ignored Lupin as thoroughly as he was now ignoring Harry. This suited Harry very well. He was quite busy and tense enough without extra classes with Snape, and to his relief, Hermione was too much preoccupied these days to badger him about occlumency. She was spending a lot of time muttering to herself, and had not laid out any elf clothes for days. She was not the only person acting oddly as the OWLs drew steadily nearer. Ernie Macmillan had developed an irritating habit of interrogating people about their study habits. How many hours do you think you're doing a day? He demanded of Harry and Ron as they queued outside Herbology, a manic gleam in his eyes. I don't know, said Ron. A few? More or less than eight? Less, I suppose, said Ron, looking slightly alarmed. I'm doing eight, said Ernie, puffing out his chest. Eight or nine. I'm getting an hour in before breakfast every day. Eight's my average. I can do ten on a good weekend day. I did nine and a half on Monday. Not so good on Tuesday. Only seven and a quarter. Then, on Wednesday... Harry was deeply thankful that Professor Sprout ushered them into Greenhouse 3 at that point, forcing Ernie to abandon his recital. Meanwhile, Draco Malfoy had found a different way to induce panic. Of course, it's not what you know. He was heard to tell Crabbe and Goyle loudly outside potions a few days before the exams were to start. It's who you know. Now, Father's been friendly with the head of the Wizarding Examinations Authority for years, old Griselda Marchbanks. We've had her round for dinner and everything. Do you think that's true? Hermione whispered to Harry and Ron, looking frightened. Nothing we can do about it if it is, said Ron gloomily. I don't think it's true, said Neville quietly from behind them. "'Because Griselda Marchbanks is a friend of my grand's, and she's never mentioned the Malfoys.' "'What's she like, Neville?' asked Hermione at once. "'Is she strict?' "'Bit like Gran, really,' said Neville, in a subdued voice. "'Knowing her won't hurt your chances, though, will it?' Ron told him encouragingly. "'Oh, I don't think it'll make any difference,' said Neville, still more miserably. "'Gran's always telling Professor Marchbanks I'm not as good as my dad.' Well, you saw what she's like at St. Mungo's. Neville looked fixedly at the floor. Harry, Ron, and Hermione glanced at one another, but didn't know what to say. It was the first time that Neville had acknowledged that they had met at the Wizarding Hospital. Meanwhile, a flourishing black market trade in aids to concentration, mental agility, and wakefulness had sprung up among the fifth and seventh years. Harry and Ron were much tempted by the bottle of Berufio's Brain Elixir, offered to them by Ravenclaw's sixth-year Eddie Carmichael, who swore it was solely responsible for the nine outstanding OWLs he had gained the previous summer, and was offering the whole pint for a mere twelve galleons. Ron assured Harry he would reimburse him for his half the moment he left Hogwarts and got a job, but before they could close the deal, Hermione had confiscated the bottle from Carmichael and poured the contents down a toilet. Hermione! We wanted to buy that! shouted Ron. Don't be stupid, she snarled. You might as well take Harold Dingle's powdered dragon claw and have done with it. 
Jingle's got powdered dragon claw, said Ron eagerly. Not any more, said Hermione. I confiscated that too. None of these things actually work, you know. Dragon claw does work, said Ron. It's supposed to be incredible. Really gives your brain a boost. You come over all cunning for a few hours. Hermione, let me have a pinch. Go on, it can't hurt. This stuff can, said Hermione grimly. I've had a look at it, and it's actually dried doxy droppings. This information took the edge off Harry and Ron's desire for brain stimulants. They received their examination schedules and details of the procedure for OWLs during their next transfiguration lesson. As you can see, Professor McGonagall told the class while they copied down the dates and times of their exams from the blackboard, your OWLs are spread over two successive weeks. You will set the theory exams in the mornings and the practice in the afternoons. Your practical astronomy examination will, of course, take place at night. Now, I must warn you that the most stringent anti-cheating charms have been applied to your examination papers. Auto-answer quills are banned from the examination hall, as are rememberals, detachable cribbing cuffs, and self-correcting ink. Every year, I'm afraid to say, seems to harbor at least one student who thinks that he or she can get around the wizarding examinations authorities' rules. I can only hope that it is nobody in Gryffindor, our new headmistress. Professor McGonagall pronounced the word with the same look on her face that Aunt Petunia had whenever she was contemplating a particularly stubborn bit of dirt has asked the heads of house to tell their students that cheating will be punished most severely, because, of course, your examination results will reflect upon the headmistress's new regime at the school. Professor McGonagall gave a tiny sigh. Harry saw the nostrils of her sharp nose flare. However, that is no reason not to do your very best. You have your own futures to think about. Please, Professor, said Hermione, her hand in the air, when will we find out our results? An owl will be sent to you sometime in July, said Professor McGonagall. Excellent, said Dean Thomas in an audible whisper, so we don't have to worry about it till the holidays. Harry imagined sitting in his bedroom in Privet Drive in six weeks' time, waiting for his OWL results. Well, he thought dully, at least he would be sure of one bit of post next summer. Their first exam, Theory of Charms, was scheduled for Monday morning. Harry agreed to test Hermione after lunch on Sunday, but regretted it almost at once. She was very agitated and kept snatching the book back from him to check that she had gotten the answer completely right, finally hitting him hard on the nose with the sharp edge of achievements in charming. "'Why don't you just do it yourself?' he said firmly, handing the book back to her, his eyes watering. Meanwhile, Ron was reading two years of charms notes with his fingers in his ears, his lips moving soundlessly. Seamus was lying flat on his back on the floor, reciting the definition of a substantive charm, while Dean checked it against the standard book of spells, grade five, and Pavati and Lavender, who were practicing basic locomotion charms, were making their pencil cases race each other around the edge of the table. Dinner was a subdued affair that night. Harry and Ron did not talk much, but ate with gusto, having studied hard all day. Hermione, on the other hand, kept putting down her knife and fork, and diving under the table for her bag, from which she would seize a book to check some fact or figure. Ron was just telling her that she ought to eat a decent meal or she would not sleep that night, when her fork slid from her limp fingers and landed with a loud tinkle on her plate. Oh, my goodness, 
she said faintly, staring into the entrance hall. Is that them? Is that the examiners? Harry and Ron whipped around on their bench. Through the doors to the great hall they could see Umbridge standing with a small group of ancient-looking witches and wizards. Umbridge, Harry was pleased to see, looked rather nervous. Shall we go and have a closer look? said Ron. Harry and Hermione nodded, and they hastened toward the double doors into the entrance hall, slowing down as they stepped over the threshold to walk sedately past the examiners. Harry thought Professor Marchbanks must be the tiny, stooped witch, with a face so lined it looked as though it had been draped in cobwebs. Umbridge was speaking to her very deferentially. Professor Marchbanks seemed to be a little deaf. She was answering Umbridge very loudly, considering that they were only a foot apart. Journey was fine, journey was fine. We've made it plenty of times before, she said impatiently. Now, I haven't heard from Dumbledore lately, she added, peering around the hall as though hopeful he might suddenly emerge from a broom cupboard. No idea where he is, I suppose. None at all, said Umbridge, shooting a malevolent look at Harry, Ron and Hermione, who were now dawdling around the foot of the stairs as Ron pretended to do up his shoelace. But I dare say the Ministry of Magic will track him down soon enough. I doubt it, shouted tiny Professor Marchbanks. Not if Dumbledore doesn't want to be found. I should know. Examined him personally in Transfiguration and Charms when he did any WTs. Did things with a wand I'd never seen before. Yes, well, said Professor Umbridge, as Harry, Ron and Hermione dragged their feet up the marble staircase as slowly as they dared. Let me show you to the staff room. I dare say you'd like a cup of tea after your journey. It was an uncomfortable sort of an evening. Everyone was trying to do some last-minute studying, but nobody seemed to be getting very far. Harry went to bed early, but then lay awake for what felt like hours. He remembered his career's consultation and McGonagall's furious declaration that she would help him become an Auror if it was the last thing she did. He wished he had expressed a more achievable ambition now that exam time was here. He knew that he was not the only one lying awake, but none of the others in the dormitory spoke, and finally, one by one, they fell asleep. None of the fifth years talked very much at breakfast next day either. Pavati was practicing incantations under her breath while the salt cellar in front of her twitched. Hermione was rereading Achievement in Charming so fast that her eyes appeared blurred, and Neville kept dropping his knife and fork and knocking over the marmalade. Once breakfast was over, the fifth and seventh years milled around in the entrance hall while the other students went off to lessons. Then at half-past nine, they were called forward, class by class, to re-enter the great hall, which was now arranged exactly as Harry had seen it in the pensive, when his father, Sirius and Snape, had been taking their OWLs. The four house tables had been removed and replaced instead with many tables for one, all facing the staff table end of the hall, where Professor McGonagall stood facing them. When they were all seated and quiet, she said, You may begin, and turned over an enormous hourglass on the desk beside her, on which were also spare quills, ink bottles, and rolls of parchment. Harry turned over his paper, his heart thumping hard. Three rows to his right and four seats ahead, Hermione was already scribbling. He lowered his eyes to the first question. A. Give the incantation, and B. Describe the wand movement required to make objects fly. Harry had a fleeting memory of a club soaring high into the air and landing loudly on the thick skull of a troll. Smiling slightly, he bent over the paper and began to write. Well, it wasn't too bad, was it? 
asked Hermione anxiously in the entrance hall two hours later, still clutching the exam paper. I'm not sure I did myself justice on cheering charms. I just ran out of time. Did you put in the counter charm for hiccups? I wasn't sure whether I ought to. It felt like too much. And on question 23, Hermione, said Ron sternly, we've been through this before. We're not going through every exam afterward. It's bad enough doing them once. The fifth years ate lunch with the rest of the school. The four house tables reappeared over the lunch hour and then trooped off into the small chamber beside the great hall where they were to wait until called for their practical examination. As small groups of students were called forward in alphabetical order, those left behind muttered incantations and practiced one movements, occasionally poking one another in the back or eye by mistake. Hermione's name was called. Trembling, she left the chamber with Anthony Goldstein, Gregory Goyle, and Daphne Greengrass. Students who had already been tested did not return afterward, so Harry and Ron had no idea how Hermione had done. She'll be fine. Remember she got a hundred and twelve percent on one of our charms tests, said Ron. Ten minutes later, Professor Flitwick called, Parkinson Pansy, Patil Padma, Patil Pavati, Potter Harry. Good luck, said Ron quietly. Harry walked into the great hall, clutching his wand so tightly his hands shook. Professor Tofty is free, Potter, squeaked Professor Flitwick, who was standing just inside the door. He pointed Harry toward what looked like the very oldest and boldest examiner, who was sitting behind a small table in a far corner, a short distance from Professor Marchbanks, who was halfway through testing Draco Malfoy. Potter, is it? said Professor Tofty, consulting his notes and peering over his pince-nez at Harry as he approached. The famous Potter? Out of the corner of his eye, Harry distinctly saw Malfoy throw a scathing look over at him. The wine glass Malfoy had been levitating fell to the floor and smashed. Harry could not suppress a grin. Professor Tofty smiled back at him encouragingly. That's it, he said in his quavery old voice. No need to be nervous. Now, if I could ask you to take this egg up and make it do some cartwheels for me. On the whole, Harry thought it went rather well. His levitation charm was certainly much better than Malfoy's had been, though he wished he had not mixed up the incantations for color change and growth charms so that the rat he was supposed to be turning orange swelled shockingly and was the size of a badger before Harry could rectify his mistake. He was glad Hermione had not been in the hall at the time and neglected to mention it to her afterward. He could tell Ron, though. Ron had caused a dinner plate to mutate into a large mushroom and had no idea how it had happened. There was no time to relax that night. They went straight to the common room after dinner and submerged themselves in studying for transfiguration next day. Harry went to bed, his head buzzing with complex spell models and theories. He forgot the definition of a switching spell during his written exam next morning, but thought his practical could have been a lot worse. At least he managed to vanish the whole of his iguana, whereas poor Hannah Abbott lost her head completely at the next table and somehow managed to multiply her ferret into a flock of flamingos, causing the examination to be halted for ten minutes while the birds were captured and carried out of the hall. They had their herbology exam on Wednesday. Other than a small bite from a fanged geranium, Harry felt he had done reasonably well. And then on Thursday, defense against the dark arts. Here, for the first time, Harry felt sure he had passed. He had no problem with any of the written questions, 
and took particular pleasure during the practical examination in performing all the counter-jinxes and defensive spells right in front of Umbridge, who was watching coolly from near the doors into the entrance hall. Oh, bravo! cried Professor Tofty, who was examining Harry again when Harry demonstrated a perfect Bogart banishing spell. Very good indeed. Well, I think that's all, Potter, unless... He leaned forward a little. I heard from my dear friend Tiberius Ogden that you can produce a Patronus for a bonus point. Harry raised his wand, looked directly at Umbridge, and imagined her being sacked. Expecto Patronum! The silver stag erupted from the end of his wand and cantered the length of the hall. All of the examiners looked around to watch its progress, and when it dissolved into silver mist, Professor Tofty clapped his veined and knotted hands enthusiastically. Excellent, he said. Very well, Potter. You may go. As Harry passed Umbridge beside the door, their eyes met. There was a nasty smile playing around her wide, slack mouth, but he did not care. Unless he was very much mistaken, and he was not planning on saying it to anybody in case he was, he had just achieved an outstanding O.W.L. On Friday, Harry and Ron had a day off, while Hermione sat her ancient runes exam. And as they had the whole weekend in front of them, they permitted themselves a break from studying. They stretched and yawned beside the open window, through which warm summer air wafted over them as they played a desultory game of wizard chess. Harry could see Hagrid in the distance, teaching a class on the edge of the forest. He was trying to guess what creatures they were examining. He thought it must be unicorns, because the boys seemed to be standing back a little. When the portrait hole opened, and Hermione clambered in, looking thoroughly bad-tempered. How were the runes? said Ron, yawning and stretching. I mistranslated Ewos, said Hermione furiously. It means partnership, not defense. I mixed it up with I was. Ah, well, said Ron lazily. That's only one mistake, isn't it? You'll still get... Oh, shut up, said Hermione angrily. It could be the one mistake that makes the difference between a pass and a fail. And what's more, someone's put another Niffler in Umbridge's office. I don't know how they got it through that new door, but I just walked past there and Umbridge is shrieking her head off. By the sound of it, it tried to take a chunk out of her leg. Good said Harry and Ron together. It is not good, said Hermione hotly. She thinks it's Hagrid doing it, remember? And we do not want Hagrid chucked out. He's teaching at the moment. She can't blame him, said Harry, gesturing out of the window. Oh, you're so naive sometimes, Harry. You really think Umbridge will wait for proof? said Hermione, who seemed determined to be in a towering temper, and she swept off toward the girls' dormitories, banging the door behind her. Such a lovely, sweet-tempered girl, said Ron very quietly, prodding his queen forward so that she could begin beating up one of Harry's knights. Hermione's bad mood persisted for most of the weekend, though Harry and Ron found it quite easy to ignore as they spent most of Saturday and Sunday studying for potions on Monday, the exam to which Harry was looking forward least, and which he was sure would be the one that would be the downfall of his ambitions to become an auror. Sure enough, he found the written exam difficult, though he thought he might have got full marks on the question about polyjuice potion. He could describe its effects extremely accurately, having taken it illegally in his second year. 
The afternoon practical was not as dreadful as he had expected it to be. With Snape absent from the proceedings, he found that he was much more relaxed than he usually was while making potions. Neville, who was sitting very near Harry, also looked happier than Harry had ever seen him during a potions class. When Professor Marchbanks said, Step away from your cauldrons, please. The examination is over. Harry corked his sample flask, feeling that he might not have achieved a good grade, but that he had, with luck, avoided a fail. Only four exams left, said Pavati Patil wearily as they headed back to Gryffindor Common Room. Only, said Hermione snappishly, I've got arithmancy and it's probably the toughest subject there is. Nobody was foolish enough to snap back, so she was unable to vent her spleen on any of them, and was reduced to telling off some first years for giggling too loudly in the common room. Harry was determined to perform well in Tuesday's care of magical creature exam so as not to let Hagrid down. The practical examination took place in the afternoon on the lawn on the edge of the Forbidden Forest, where students were required to correctly identify the gnarl hidden among a dozen hedgehogs. The trick was to offer them all milk in turn. Gnarls, highly suspicious creatures whose quills had many magical properties, generally went berserk at what they saw as an attempt to poison them. Then demonstrate correct handling of a bow truckle, feed and clean a fire crab without sustaining serious burns, and choose from a wide selection of food the diet they would give a sick unicorn. Harry could see Hagrid watching anxiously out of his cabin window. When Harry's examiner, a plump little witch this time, smiled at him and told him he could leave, Harry gave Hagrid a fleeting thumbs up before heading back up to the castle. The astronomy theory exam on Wednesday morning went well enough. Harry was not convinced he had got the names of all of Jupiter's moons right, but was at least confident that none of them was inhabited by mice. They had to wait until evening for their practical astronomy. The afternoon was devoted instead to divination. Even by Harry's low standards in divination, the exam went very badly. He might as well have tried to see moving pictures in the desktop as in the stubbornly blank crystal ball. He lost his head completely during tea-leaf reading, saying it looked to him as though Professor Marchbanks would shortly be meeting a round, dark, soggy stranger, and rounded off the whole fiasco by mixing up the life and headlines on her palm and informing her that she ought to have died the previous Tuesday. Well, we were always going to fail that one said Ron gloomily as they ascended the marble staircase. He had just made Harry feel rather better by telling him how he told the examiner in detail about the ugly man with a wart on his nose in his crystal ball, only to look up and realize he had been describing his examiner's reflection. We shouldn't have taken the stupid subject in the first place, said Harry. Still, at least we can give it up now. Yeah, said Harry. No more pretending we care what happens when Jupiter and Uranus get too friendly. And from now on, I don't care if my tea leaves spell, Die, Ron, die! I'm just chucking them in the bin where they belong. Harry laughed just as Hermione came running up behind them. He stopped laughing at once, in case it annoyed her. Well, I think I've done all right in arithmancy, she said, and Harry and Ron both sighed with relief. Just time for a quick look over our star charts before dinner, then... When they reached the top of the astronomy tower at eleven o'clock, they found a perfect night for stargazing, cloudless and still. The grounds were bathed in silvery moonlight, and there was a slight chill in the air. Each of them set up his or her telescope, and when Professor Marchbanks gave the word, proceeded to fill in the blank star chart he or she had been given. Professor Marchbanks and Tofty strolled among them, 
watching as they entered the precise positions of the stars and planets they were observing. All was quiet except for the rustle of parchment, the occasional creak of a telescope as it was adjusted on its stand, and the scribbling of many quills. Half an hour passed, then an hour. The little squares of reflected gold light flickering on the ground below started to vanish, as lights in the castle windows were extinguished. As Harry completed the constellation Orion on his chart, however, the front doors of the castle opened directly below the parapet where he was standing, so that light spilled down the stone steps a little way across the lawn. Harry glanced down as he made a slight adjustment to the position of his telescope, and saw five or six elongated shadows moving over the brightly lit grass before the doors swung shut and the lawn became a sea of darkness once more. Harry put his eye back to his telescope and refocused it, now examining Venus. He looked down at his chart to enter the planet there, but something distracted him. Pausing with his quill suspended over the parchment, he squinted down into the shadowy grounds and saw half a dozen figures walking over the lawn. If they had not been moving and the moonlight had not been gilding the tops of their heads, they would have been indistinguishable from the dark ground on which they stood. Even at this distance Harry had a funny feeling that he recognized the walk of the squattest among them, who seemed to be leading the group. He could not think why Umbridge would be taking the stroll outside past midnight, much less accompanied by five others. Then somebody coughed behind him, and he remembered that he was halfway through an exam. He had quite forgotten Venus's position. Jamming his eye to his telescope, he found it again, and was again on the point of entering it on his chart when, alert for any odd sound, he heard a distant knock that echoed through the deserted grounds, followed immediately by the muffled barking of a large dog. He looked up, his heart hammering. There were lights on in Hagrid's windows, and the people he had observed crossing the lawn were now silhouetted against them. The door opened, and he distinctly saw six tiny but sharply defined figures walk over the threshold. The door closed again, and there was silence. Harry felt very uneasy. He glanced around to see whether Ron or Hermione had noticed what he had, but Professor Marchbanks came walking behind him at that moment, and not wanting to appear as though he was sneaking looks at anyone else's work, he hastily bent over his star chart and pretended to be adding notes to it, while really peering over the top of the parapet toward Hagrid's cabin. Figures were now moving across the cabin windows, temporarily blocking the light. He could feel Professor Marchbanks's eyes on the back of his neck, and pressed his eye again to his telescope, staring up at the moon, though he had marked its position an hour ago. But as Professor Marchbanks moved on, he heard a roar from the distant cabin that echoed through the darkness right to the top of the astronomy tower. Several of the people around Harry ducked out from behind their telescopes and peered instead in the direction of Hagrid's cabin. Professor Tofty gave another dry little cough. Try and concentrate now, boys and girls, he said softly. Most people returned to their telescopes. Harry looked to his left. Hermione was gazing transfixed at Hagrid's. Ahem, twenty minutes to go, said Professor Tofty. Hermione jumped and returned at once to her star chart. Harry looked down at his own and noticed that he had mislabeled Venus as Mars. He bent to correct it. There was a loud bang from the grounds. Several people said ouch as they poked themselves in the face with the ends of their telescopes, hastening to see what was going on below. Hagrid's door had burst open, and by the light flooding out of the cabin, they saw him quite clearly, a massive figure roaring and brandishing his fists, 
surrounded by six people, all of whom, judging by the tiny threads of red light they were casting in his direction, seemed to be attempting to stun him. No, cried Hermione. My dear, said Professor Tofty in a scandalized voice, this is an examination. But nobody was paying the slightest attention to their star charts anymore. Jets of red light were still flying beside Hagrid's cabin, yet somehow they seemed to be bouncing off him. He was still upright, and still, as far as Harry could see, fighting. Cries and yells echoed across the grounds. A man yelled, Be reasonable, Hagrid! And Hagrid roared, Be reasonable be damned! You won't take me like this, Dawlish! Harry could see the tiny outline of Fang attempting to defend Hagrid, leaping at the wizards surrounding him until a stunning spell caught him and he fell to the ground. Hagrid gave a howl of fury, lifted the culprit bodily from the ground, and threw him. The man flew what looked like ten feet and did not get up again. Hermione gasped, both hands over her mouth. Harry looked around at Ron and saw that he too was looking scared. None of them had ever seen Hagrid in a real temper before. Look! squealed Parvati, who was leaning over the parapet and pointing to the foot of the castle, where the front doors seemed to have opened again. More light had spilled out onto the dark lawn, and a single long black shadow was now rippling across the lawn. Now, really, said Professor Tofty anxiously, only sixteen minutes left, you know. But nobody paid him the slightest attention. They were watching the person now sprinting toward the battle beside Hagrid's cabin. How dare you, the figure shouted as she ran. How dare you? It's McGonagall whispered Hermione. Leave him alone, alone, I say, said Professor McGonagall's voice through the darkness. On what grounds are you attacking him? He has done nothing, nothing to warrant such. Hermione, Pavati, and Lavender all screamed. No fewer than four stunners had shot from the figures around the cabin toward Professor McGonagall. Halfway between cabin and castle, the red beams collided with her. For a moment she looked luminous, illuminated by an eerie red glow, then was lifted right off her feet, landed hard on her back, and moved no more. Galloping gargoyles, shouted Professor Tofty, who seemed to have forgotten the exam completely. Not so much as a warning. Outrageous behavior. Cowards, bellowed Hagrid, his voice carrying clearly to the top of the tower and several lights flickered back on inside the castle. Ruddy cowards! Have some of that and that! Oh, my! gasped Hermione. Hagrid took two massive swipes at his closest attackers. Judging by their immediate collapse, they had been knocked cold. Harry saw him double over and thought for a moment that he had finally been overcome by a spell. But on the contrary, next moment Hagrid was standing again with what appeared to be a sack on his back. Then Harry realized that Fang's limp body was draped around his shoulders. Get him! Get him! screamed Umbridge, but her remaining helpers seemed highly reluctant to go within reach of Hagrid's fists. Indeed, he was backing away so fast he tripped over one of his unconscious colleagues and fell over. Hagrid had turned and begun to run with Fang still hung around his neck. Umbridge sent one last stunning spell after him, but it missed, and Hagrid, running full pelt toward the distant gates, disappeared into the darkness. There was a long minute's quivering silence, everybody gazing open-mouthed into the grounds. Then Professor Tofty's voice said feebly, Um, five minutes to go, everybody. 
Though he had only filled in two-thirds of his chart, Harry was desperate for the end of the exam. When it came at last, he, Ron and Hermione, forced their telescopes haphazardly back into their holders and dashed back down the spiral staircase. None of the students were going to bed. They were all talking loudly and excitedly at the foot of the stairs about what they had witnessed. That evil woman, gasped Hermione, who seemed to be having difficulty talking due to rage. Trying to sneak up on Hagrid in the dead of night. She clearly wanted to avoid another scene like Trelawney's, said Ernie Macmillan sagely, squeezing over to join them. Hagrid did well, didn't he? said Ron, who looked more alarmed than impressed. How come all the spells bounced off him? It'll be his giant blood, said Hermione shakily. It's very hard to stun a giant. They're like trolls, really tough. But poor Professor McGonagall, four stunners straight in the chest, and she's not exactly young, is she? Dreadful, dreadful, said Ernie, shaking his head pompously. Well, I'm off to bed. Night all. People around them were drifting away, still talking excitedly about what they had just seen. At least they didn't get to take Hagrid off to Azkaban, said Ron. I expect he's gone to join Dumbledore, hasn't he? I suppose so, said Hermione, who looked tearful. Oh, this is awful. I really thought Dumbledore would be back before long, but now we've lost Hagrid, too. They traipsed back to the Gryffindor common room to find it full. The commotion out in the grounds had woken several people who had hastened to rouse their friends. Seamus and Dean, who had arrived ahead of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, were now telling everyone what they had heard from the top of the astronomy tower. But why sack Hagrid now? asked Angelina Johnson, shaking her head. It's not like Trelawney. He's been teaching much better than usual this year. Umbridge hates part humans, said Hermione bitterly, flopping down into an armchair. She was always going to try and get Hagrid out. And she thought Hagrid was putting nifflers in her office, piped up Katie Bell. Oh, blimey, said Lee Jordan, covering his mouth. It's me's been putting the nifflers in her office. Fred and George left me a couple. I've been levitating them in through her window. She'd have sacked him anyway, said Dean. He was too close to Dumbledore. That's true, said Harry, sinking into an armchair beside Hermione's. I just hope Professor McGonagall's all right, said Lavender tearfully. They carried her back up to the castle. We watched through the dormitory window, said Colin Creevy. She didn't look very well. Madame Pomfrey will sort her out, said Alicia Spinnet firmly. She's never failed yet. It was nearly four in the morning before the common room cleared. Harry felt wide awake. The image of Hagrid sprinting away into the dark was haunting him. He was so angry with Umbridge he could not think of a punishment bad enough for her, though Ron's suggestion of having her fed to a box of starving blast-ended scroots had its merits. He fell asleep contemplating hideous revenges and arose from bed three hours later feeling distinctly unrested. Their final exam, History of Magic, was not to take place until that afternoon. Harry would very much have liked to go back to bed after breakfast, but he had been counting on the morning for a spot of last-minute studying, so instead he sat with his head in his hands by the common room window, trying hard not to doze off as he read through some of the notes stacked three and a half feet high that Hermione had lent him. The fifth years entered the Great Hall at two o'clock and took their places in front of their overturned examination papers. Harry felt exhausted. He just wanted this to be over so that he could go and sleep. Then tomorrow he and Ron were going to go down to the Quidditch pitch, 
He was going to have a fly on Ron's broom and savor their freedom from studying. Turn over your papers," said Professor Marchbanks from the front of the hall, flicking over the giant hourglass. "You may begin." Harry stared fixedly at the first question. It was several seconds before it occurred to him that he had not taken in a word of it. There was a wasp buzzing distractingly against one of the high windows. Slowly, torturously, he began to write an answer. He was finding it very difficult to remember names and kept confusing dates. He simply skipped question four. In your opinion, did one legislation contribute to or lead to better control of goblin riots of the eighteenth century? Thinking that he would go back to it if he had time at the end, he had a stab at question five. How was the statute of secrecy breached in 1749, and what measures were introduced to prevent a recurrence? But had a nagging suspicion that he had missed several important points. He had a feeling vampires had come into the story somewhere. He looked ahead for a question he could definitely answer, and his eyes alighted upon number ten. Describe the circumstances that led to the formation of the International Confederation of Wizards, and explain why the warlocks of Lichtenstein refused to join. I know this, Harry thought, though his brain felt torpid and slack. He could visualize a heading in Hermione's handwriting: "The formation of the International Confederation of Wizards." He had read these notes only this morning. He began to write, looking up now and again to check the large hourglass on the desk beside Professor Marchbanks. He was sitting right behind Parvati Patil, whose long dark hair fell below the back of her chair. Once or twice, he found himself staring at the tiny golden lights that glistened in it when she moved her head very slightly, and had to give his own head a little shake to clear it. The first supreme mugwump of the International Confederation of Wizards was Pierre Bonacord. But his appointment was contested by the wizarding community of Lichtenstein because all around Harry quills were scratching on parchment like scurrying, burrowing rats. The sun was very hot on the back of his head. What was it that Bonacord had done to offend the wizards of Lichtenstein? Harry had a feeling it had something to do with trolls. He gazed blankly at the back of Pavati's head again. If he could only perform legilimency and open a window in the back of her head. And see what it was about trolls that had caused the breach between Pierre Bonacord and Lichtenstein. Harry closed his eyes and buried his face in his hands, so that the glowing red of his eyelids grew dark and cool. Bonacord had wanted to stop troll hunting and give the trolls rights, but Lichtenstein was having problems with a tribe of particularly vicious mountain trolls. That was it. He opened his eyes. They stung and watered at the sight of the blazing white parchment. Slowly, he wrote two lines about the trolls, then read through what he had done so far. It did not seem very informative or detailed, yet he was sure Hermione's notes on the Confederation had gone on for pages and pages. He closed his eyes again, trying to see them, trying to remember. The Confederation had met for the first time in France. Yes, he had written that already. Goblins had tried to attend and been ousted. He had written that too, and nobody from Lichtenstein had wanted to come. Think, he told himself, his face in his hands, while all around him quills scratched out never-ending answers, and the sand trickled through the hourglass at the front. He was walking along the cool, dark corridor to the Department of Mysteries again, walking with a firm and purposeful tread, breaking occasionally into a run, determined to reach his destination at last. The black door swung open for him as usual, and here he was in the circular room with its many doors. 
straight across the stone floor and through the second door. Patches of dancing light on the walls and floor, and that odd mechanical clicking. But no time to explore. He must hurry. He jogged the last few feet to the third door, which swung open just like the others. Once again he was in the cathedral-sized room full of shelves and glass spheres. His heart was beating very fast now. He was going to get there this time. When he reached number 97, he turned left and hurried along the aisle between two rows. But there was a shape on the floor at the very end, a black shape moving upon the floor like a wounded animal. Harry's stomach contracted with fear, with excitement. A voice issued from his own mouth, a high, cold voice empty of any human kindness. Take it for me. Lift it down now. I cannot touch it, but you can. The black shape upon the floor shifted a little. Harry saw a long-fingered white hand clutching a wand rise on the end of his own arm, heard the high, cold voice say, Crucio! The man on the floor let out a scream of pain, attempted to stand but fell back, writhing. Harry was laughing. He raised his wand, the curse lifted, and the figure groaned and became motionless. Lord Voldemort is waiting! Very slowly, his arms trembling, the man on the ground raised his shoulders a few inches and lifted his head. His face was bloodstained and gaunt, twisted in pain yet rigid with defiance. You'll have to kill me, whispered Sirius. Undoubtedly I shall in the end, said the cold voice. But you will fetch it for me first, Black. You think you have felt pain thus far. Think again. We have hours ahead of us and nobody to hear you scream. But somebody screamed as Voldemort lowered his wand again. Somebody yelled and fell sideways off a hot desk onto the cold stone floor. Harry hit the ground and awoke, still yelling, his scar on fire, as the great hall erupted all around him. Chapter 32 Out of the Fire I'm not going. I don't need the hospital wing. I don't want... He was gibbering, trying to pull away from Professor Tofty, who was looking at him with much concern, and who had just helped Harry out into the entrance hall while the students all around them stared. I'm... I'm fine, sir, Harry stammered, wiping the sweat from his face. Really, I just fell asleep. Had a nightmare. Pressure of examinations said the old wizard sympathetically, patting Harry shakily on the shoulder. It happens, young man, it happens. Now, a cooling drink of water, and perhaps you will be ready to return to the Great Hall. The examination is nearly over, but you may be able to round off your last answer nicely. Yes, said Harry wildly. I mean, no, I've done... Done as much as I can, I think. Very well, very well, said the old wizard gently. I shall go and collect your examination paper, and I suggest that you go and have a nice lie down. I'll do that, said Harry, nodding vigorously. Thanks very much. He waited for the second when the old man's heels disappeared over the threshold into the great hall then ran up the marble staircase, and then more staircases towards the hospital wing, hurtling along the corridors so fast that the portraits he passed muttered reproaches, and burst through the double doors like a hurricane, 
causing Madame Pomfrey, who had been spooning some bright blue liquid into Montague's open mouth, to shriek in alarm. Potter, what do you think you're doing? I need to see Professor McGonagall, gasped Harry, the breath tearing his lungs. Now, it's urgent. She's not here, Potter, said Madame Pomfrey sadly. She was transferred to St. Mungo's this morning. Four stunning spells straight to the chest at her age. It's a wonder they didn't kill her. She's gone, said Harry, stunned. The bell rang just outside the dormitory, and he heard the usual distant rumbling of students starting to flood out into the corridors above and below him. He remained quite still, looking at Madame Pomfrey. Terror was rising inside him. There was nobody left to tell. Dumbledore had gone. Hagrid had gone. But he had always expected Professor McGonagall to be there. Irascible and inflexible, perhaps, but always dependably, solidly present. I don't wonder you're shocked, Potter, said Madame Pomfrey with a kind of fierce approval in her face. As if one of them could have stunned Minerva McGonagall face on by daylight. Cowardice, that's what it was, despicable cowardice. If I wasn't worried what would happen to you students without me, I'd resign in protest. Yes, said Harry blankly. He wheeled around and strode blindly from the hospital wing into the teeming corridor where he stood, buffeted by the crowd, the panic expanding inside him like poison gas, so that his head swam and he could not think what to do. Ron and Hermione, said a voice in his head. He was running again, pushing students out of the way, oblivious to their angry protests and shouts. He sprinted back down two floors and was at the top of the marble staircase when he saw them hurrying toward him. Harry, said Hermione at once, looking very frightened. What happened? Are you all right? Are you ill? Where have you been? demanded Ron. Come with me, Harry said quickly. Come on, I've got to tell you something. He led them along the first floor corridor, peering through doorways, and at last found an empty classroom into which he dived, closing the door behind Ron and Hermione the moment they were inside and leaning against it, facing them. Voldemort's got serious. What? How do you... Saw it, just now, when I fell asleep in the exam. But, but where, how? Said Hermione, whose face was white. I don't know how, said Harry, but I know exactly where. There's a room in the Department of Mysteries full of shelves covered in these little glass balls, and they're at the end of row 97. He's trying to use Sirius to get whatever it is he wants from in there. He's torturing him, says he'll end by killing him. Harry found his voice was shaking, as were his knees. He moved over to a desk and sat down on it, trying to master himself. How are we going to get there? he asked them. There was a moment's silence, then Ron said, G Get there? Get to the Department of Mysteries so we can rescue Sirius, Harry said loudly. But Harry, said Ron weakly. What? What? said Harry. He could not understand why they were both gaping at him as though he was asking them something unreasonable. Harry, said Hermione in a rather frightened voice, uh, how did Voldemort get into the Ministry of Magic without anybody realizing he was there? How do I know? bellowed Harry. The question is how we're going to get in there. But Harry, think about this, said Hermione, taking a step toward him. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. The Ministry of Magic must be full of workers. 
How would Voldemort and Sirius have got in without being seen? Harry, they're probably the two most wanted wizards in the world. You think they could get into a building full of aurors undetected? I don't know. Voldemort used an invisibility cloak or something, Harry shouted. Anyway, the Department of Mysteries has always been completely empty whenever I've been. You've never been there, Harry, said Hermione quietly. You've dreamed about the place, that's all. They're not normal dreams, Harry shouted in her face, standing up and taking a step closer to her in turn. He wanted to shake her. How do you explain Ron's dad, then? What was all that about? How come I knew what had happened to him? He's got a point, said Ron quietly, looking at Hermione. But this is just, just so unlikely, said Hermione desperately. Harry, how on earth could Voldemort have got hold of Sirius when he's been in Grimald Place all the time? Sirius might have cracked and just wanted some fresh air, said Ron, sounding worried. He's been desperate to get out of that house for ages. But why? Hermione persisted. Why on earth would Voldemort want to use Sirius to get the weapon, or whatever the thing is? I don't know. There could be loads of reasons, Harry yelled at her. Maybe Sirius is just someone Voldemort doesn't care about seeing hurt. You know what? I've just thought of something, said Ron in a hushed voice. Sirius's brother was a Death Eater, wasn't he? Maybe he told Sirius the secret of how to get the weapon. Yeah, and that's why Dumbledore's been so keen to keep Sirius locked up all the time said Harry. Look, I'm sorry, cried Hermione, but neither of you are making sense, and we've got no proof for any of this. No proof Voldemort and Sirius are even there. Hermione, Harry's seen them, said Ron, rounding on her. Okay, she said, looking frightened yet determined. I've just got to say this. What? You, this isn't a criticism, Harry, but you do sort of, I mean... Don't you think you've got a bit of a, a saving people thing, she said. He glared at her. And what's that supposed to mean, a saving people thing? Well, you... She looked more apprehensive than ever. I mean, last year, for instance, in the lake, during the tournament. You shouldn't have, I mean, you didn't need to save that little Delacour girl. You got a bit carried away. A wave of hot, prickly anger swept Harry's body. How could she remind him of that blunder now? I mean, it was really great of you and everything, said Hermione quickly, looking positively petrified at the look on Harry's face. Everyone thought it was a wonderful thing to do. That's funny, said Harry through gritted teeth, because I definitely remember Ron saying I'd wasted time acting the hero. Is that what you think this is? You reckon I want to act the hero again? No, 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 said Hermione, looking aghast. That's not what I mean at all. Well, spit out what you've got to say, because we're wasting time here, Harry shouted. I'm trying to say Voldemort knows you, Harry. He took Ginny down into the Chamber of Secrets to lure you there. It's the kind of thing he does. He knows you're the, the sort of person who'd go to Sirius's aid. What if he's just trying to get you into the Department of Miss... Hermione, it doesn't matter if he's done it to get me there or not. They've taken McGonagall to St. Mungo's. There isn't anyone left from the Order at Hogwarts who we can tell. And if we don't go, Sirius is dead. But Harry, what if your dream was, was just that, a dream? Harry let out a roar of frustration. Hermione actually stepped back from him, looking alarmed. You don't get it, 
Harry shouted at her. I'm not having nightmares. I'm not just dreaming. What do you think all the occlumency was for? Why do you think Dumbledore wanted me prevented from seeing these things? Because they're real, Hermione. Sirius is trapped. I've seen him. Voldemort's got him, and no one else knows, and that means we're the only ones who can save him. And if you don't want to do it, fine, but I'm going, understand? And if I remember rightly, you didn't have a problem with my saving people thing when it was you I was saving from the Dementors, or... He rounded on Ron. When it was your sister I was saving from the Basilisk. I never said I had a problem, said Ron heatedly. But Harry, you've just said it, said Hermione fiercely. Dumbledore wanted you to learn to shut these things out of your mind. If you'd done occlumency properly, you'd never have seen this. If you think I'm just going to act like I haven't seen... Sirius told you there was nothing more important than you learning to close your mind. Well, I expect he'd say something different if he knew what I'd just... The classroom door opened. Harry, Ron and Hermione whipped around. Ginny walked in, looking curious, closely followed by Luna who, as usual, looked as though she had drifted in accidentally. Hi, said Ginny uncertainly. We recognize Harry's voice. What are you yelling about? Never you mind, said Harry roughly. Ginny raised her eyebrows. There's no need to take that tone with me, she said coolly. I was only wondering whether I could help. Well, you can't, said Harry shortly. You're being rather rude, you know, said Luna serenely. Harry swore and turned away. The very last thing he wanted now was a conversation with Luna Lovegood. Wait, said Hermione suddenly. Wait, Harry, they can help. Harry and Ron looked at her. Listen, she said urgently. Harry, we need to establish whether Sirius really has left headquarters. I told you, I saw... Harry, I'm begging you, please, said Hermione desperately. Please, let's just check that Sirius isn't at home before we go charging off to London. If we find out he's not there, then I swear I won't try and stop you. I'll come. I'll do, do whatever it takes to try and save him. Sirius is being tortured now, shouted Harry. We haven't got time to waste. But if this is a trick of Voldemort's... Harry, we've got to check. We've got to. How? Harry demanded. How are we going to check? We'll have to use Umbridge's fire and see if we can contact him, said Hermione, who looked positively terrified at the thought. We'll draw Umbridge away again, but we'll need lookouts, and that's where we can use Ginny and Luna. Though clearly struggling to understand what was going on, Ginny said immediately, Yeah, we'll do it. And Luna said, When you say serious, are you talking about Stubby Boardman? Nobody answered her. Okay, Harry said aggressively to Hermione. Okay, if you can think of a way of doing this quickly, I'm with you. Otherwise, I'm going to the Department of Mysteries right now. The Department of Mysteries, said Luna, looking mildly surprised. But how are you going to get there? Again, Harry ignored her. Right, said Hermione, twisting her hands together and pacing up and down between the desks. Right, well, one of us has to go and find Umbridge and... and send her off in the wrong direction. Keep her away from her office. They could tell her, I don't know, that Peeves is up to something awful as usual. I'll do it said Ron at once. I'll tell her Peeves is smashing up the Transfiguration Department or something. It's miles away from her office. Come to think of it, I could probably persuade Peeves to do it if I met him on the way. 
It was a mark of the seriousness of the situation that Hermione made no objection to the smashing up of the Transfiguration Department. Okay, she said, her brow furrowed as she continued to pace. Now, we need to keep students away from her office while we force entry or some Slytherin's bound to go and tip her off. Luna and I can stand at either end of the corridor, said Ginny promptly, and warn people not to go down there because someone's let off a load of garroting gas. Hermione looked surprised at the readiness with which Ginny had come up with this lie. Ginny shrugged and said, Fred and George were planning to do it before they left. Okay, said Hermione. Well then, Harry, you and I will be under the invisibility cloak, and we'll sneak into the office and you can talk to Sirius. He's not there, Hermione. I mean, you can, can check whether Sirius is at home or not while I keep watch. I don't think you should be in there alone. Lee's already proved the window's a weak spot, sending those nifflers through it. Even through his anger and impatience, Harry recognized Hermione's offer to accompany him into Umbridge's office as a sign of solidarity and loyalty. I... Okay, thanks, he muttered. Right, well, even if we do all of that, I don't think we're going to be able to bank on more than five minutes, said Hermione, looking relieved that Harry seemed to have accepted the plan. Not with Filch and the wretched Inquisitorial squad floating around. Five minutes'll be enough, said Harry. Come on, let's go. Now? said Hermione, looking shocked. Of course now, said Harry angrily. What do you think? We're going to wait until after dinner or something? Hermione, Sirius is being tortured right now. I... Oh, all right, she said desperately. You go and get the invisibility cloak, and we'll meet you at the end of Umbridge's corridor, okay? Harry did not answer, but flung himself out of the room and began to fight his way through the milling crowds outside. Two floors up he met Seamus and Dean, who hailed him jovially, and told him they were planning a dusk-till-dawn-end-of-exam celebration in the common room. Harry barely heard them. He scrambled through the portrait hole while they were still arguing about how many black-market butterbeers they would need, and was climbing back out of it, the invisibility cloak and Sirius's knife secure in his bag, before they noticed he had left them. Harry, do you want to chip in a couple of galleons? Harold Dingle reckons he could sell us some fire whiskey. But Harry was already tearing away back along the corridor, and a couple of minutes later was jumping the last few stairs to join Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and Luna, who were huddled together at the end of Umbridge's corridor. Got it, he panted. Ready to go, then? All right, whispered Hermione as a gang of loud sixth years passed them. So, Ron, you go and head Umbridge off. Ginny, Luna, if you can start moving people out of the corridor, Harry and I will get the cloak on and wait until the coast is clear. Ron strode away, his bright red hair visible right to the end of the passage. Meanwhile, Ginny's equally vivid head bobbed between the jostling students surrounding them in the other direction, trailed by Luna's blonde one. Get over here! muttered Hermione, tugging at Harry's wrist and pulling him back into a recess where the ugly stone head of a medieval wizard stood muttering to itself on a column. Ah, are you sure you're okay, Harry? You're still very pale. I'm fine, he said shortly, tugging the invisibility cloak from out of his bag. In truth, his scar was aching, but not so badly that he thought Voldemort had yet dealt Sirius a fatal blow. It had hurt much worse than this when Voldemort had been punishing Avery. Here, he said. He threw the invisibility cloak over both of them, and they stood listening carefully over the Latin mumblings of the bust in front of them. You can't come down here, Ginny was calling to the crowd. No, sorry, you're going to have to go round by the swiveling staircase. Someone's let off garroting gas just along here. 
they could hear people complaining. One surly voice said, I can't see no gas. That's because it's colorless, said Ginny in a convincingly exasperated voice. But if you want to walk through it, carry on. Then we'll have your body as proof for the next idiot who didn't believe us. Slowly the crowd thinned. The news about the garroting gas seemed to have spread. People were not coming this way any more. When at last the surrounding area was quite clear, Hermione said quietly, I think that's as good as we're going to get, Harry. Come on, let's do it. Together they moved forward, covered by the cloak. Luna was standing with her back to them at the far end of the corridor. As they passed Ginny, Hermione whispered, Good one! Don't forget the signal! What's the signal? muttered Harry as they approached Umbridge's door. A loud chorus of Weasley is our king if they see Umbridge coming, replied Hermione as Harry inserted the blade of Sirius's knife in the crack between door and wall. The lock clicked open, and they entered the office. The garish kittens were basking in the late afternoon sunshine warming their plates, but otherwise the office was as still and empty as last time. Hermione breathed a sigh of relief. I thought she might have added extra security after the second niffler. They pulled off the cloak. Hermione hurried over to the window and stood out of sight, peering down into the grounds with her wand out. Harry dashed over to the fireplace, seized the pot of flu powder, and threw a pinch into the grate, causing emerald flames to burst into life there. He knelt down quickly, thrust his head into the dancing fire, and cried, Number twelve, grim old place! His head began to spin as though he had just got off a fairground ride, though his knees remained firmly planted upon the cold office floor. He kept his eyes screwed up against the whirling ash, and when the spinning stopped, he opened them to find himself looking out upon the long, cold kitchen of Grimauld Place. There was nobody there. He had expected this, yet was not prepared for the molten wave of dread and panic that seemed to burst through his stomach floor at the sight of the deserted room. Sirius! he shouted. Sirius! Are you there? His voice echoed around the room, but there was no answer except a tiny scuffing sound to the right of the fire. Who's there? he called wondering whether it was just a mouse. Creature, the house-elf, came creeping into view. He looked highly delighted about something, though he seemed to have recently sustained a nasty injury to both hands, which were heavily bandaged. It's the Potter boy's head in the fire, Creature informed the empty kitchen, stealing furtive, oddly triumphant glances at Harry. What has he come for, Creature wondered. Where's Sirius, Creature? Harry demanded. The house-elf gave a wheezy chuckle. Master is gone now, Harry Potter. Where's he gone? Where's he gone, Creature? Creature merely cackled. I'm warning you, said Harry, fully aware that his scope for inflicting punishment upon Creature was almost non-existent in this position. What about Lupin, Mad-Eye? Any of them? Are any of them here? Nobody here but Creature said the elf gleefully, and turning away from Harry, he began to walk slowly toward the door at the end of the kitchen. Creature thinks he will have a little chat with his mistress now. Yes, he hasn't had a chance in a long time. Creature's master has been keeping him away from her. Where has Sirius gone? Harry yelled after the elf. Creature, has he gone to the Department of Mysteries? Creature stopped in his tracks. Harry could just make out the back of his bald head through the forest of chair legs before him. Master does not sell poor creature where he is going, said the elf quietly. But you know, shouted Harry, don't you? You know where he is. 
There was a moment's silence, then the elf let out his loudest cackle yet. Master will not come back from the Department of Mysteries, he said gleefully. Creature and his mistress are alone again. And he scuttled forward and disappeared through the door to the hall. You! But before he could utter a single curse or insult, Harry felt a great pain at the top of his head. He inhaled a lot of ash and, choking, found himself being dragged backward through the flames until, with a horrible abruptness, he was staring up into the wide, pallid face of Professor Umbridge, who had dragged him backward out of the fire by the hair, and was now bending his neck back as far as it would go, as though she was going to slit his throat. "'You think?' she whispered, bending Harry's neck back even further, so that he was looking up at the ceiling above him. "'That after two Niflis I was going to let one more foul, scavenging little creature enter my office without my knowledge?' I had stealth censoring spells placed all around my doorway after the last one got in, you foolish boy. Take his wand, she barked at someone he could not see, and he felt a hand grope inside the chest pocket of his robes and remove the wand. Hers, too. Harry heard a scuffle over by the door, and knew that Hermione had just had her wand wrested from her as well. I want to know why you are in my office, said Umbridge, shaking the fist, clutching his hair so that he staggered. I was... "'Trying to get my firebolt,' Harry croaked. "'Liar!' she shook his head again. "'Your firebolt is under strict guard in the dungeons, as you very well know, Potter. "'You had your head in my fire. "'With whom have you been communicating?' "'No one!' said Harry, trying to pull away from her. "'He felt several hairs part company with his scalp. "'Liar!' shouted Umbridge. "'She threw him from her, and he slammed into the desk.' Now he could see Hermione pinioned against the wall by Millicent Bulstrode. Malfoy was leaning on the windowsill, smirking as he threw Harry's wand into the air one-handed and then caught it again. There was a commotion outside and several large Slytherins entered, each gripping Ron, Ginny, Luna and, to Harry's bewilderment, Neville, who was trapped in a stranglehold by Crab and looked in imminent danger of suffocation. All four of them had been gagged. Got them all! said Warrington, shoving Ron roughly forward into the room. That one, he poked a thick finger at Neville, tried to stop me taking her. He pointed at Ginny, who was trying to kick the shins of the large Slytherin girl holding her. So I brought him along too. Good, good, said Umbridge, watching Ginny's struggles. Well, it looks as though Hogwarts will shortly be a Weasley-free zone, doesn't it? Malfoy laughed loudly and sycophantically. Umbridge gave her wide, complacent smile and settled herself into a chintz-covered armchair, blinking up at her captives like a toad in a flower bed. So, Potter, she said, you stationed lookouts around my office and you sent this buffoon, she nodded at Ron, and Malfoy laughed even louder, to tell me the poltergeist was wreaking havoc in the transfiguration department, when I knew perfectly well that he was busy smearing ink on the eyepieces of all the school telescopes. Mr. Filch, having just informed me so, clearly it was very important for you to talk to somebody. Was it Albus Dumbledore? Or the half-breed Hagrid? I doubt it was Minerva McGonagall. I hear she is still too ill to talk to anyone. Malfoy and a few of the other members of the Inquisitorial Squad laughed some more at that. Harry found he was so full of rage and hatred he was shaking. It's none of your business who I talk to, he snarled. Umbridge's slack face seemed to tighten. Very well, she said in her most dangerous and falsely sweet voice. 
Very well, Mr. Potter. I offered you the chance to tell me freely. You refused. I have no alternative but to force you. Draco, fetch Professor Snape. Malfoy stowed Harry's wand inside his robes and left the room smirking. But Harry hardly noticed. He had just realized something. He could not believe he had been so stupid as to forget it. He had thought that all the members of the Order, all those who could have helped save Sirius, were gone. But he had been wrong. There was still a member of the Order of the Phoenix at Hogwarts. Snape. There was silence in the office, except for the fidgetings and scufflings resultant from the Slytherin's efforts to keep Ron and the others under control. Ron's lip was bleeding onto Umbridge's carpet as he struggled against Warrington's half-Nelson. Ginny was still trying to stamp on the feet of the sixth-year girl who had both her upper arms in a tight grip. Neville was turning steadily more purple in the face while tugging at Crabbe's arms, and Hermione was attempting vainly to throw Millicent Bulstrode off her. Luna, however, stood limply by the side of her captor, gazing vaguely out of the window as though rather bored by the proceedings. Harry looked back at Umbridge, who was watching him closely. He kept his face deliberately smooth and blank as footsteps were heard in the corridor outside, and Draco Malfoy entered the room, closely followed by Snape. "'You wanted to see me, headmistress,' said Snape, looking around at all the pairs of struggling students with an expression of complete indifference. "'Ah, Professor Snape,' said Umbridge, smiling widely and standing up again. "'Yes, I would like another bottle of Veritas Serum as quick as you can, please.' "'You took my last bottle to interrogate Potter,' he said, surveying her coolly through his greasy curtains of black hair. "'Surely you did not use it all. I told you that three drops would be sufficient.' Umbridge flushed. "'You can make some more, can't you?' she said, her voice becoming more sweetly girlish as it always did when she was furious. "'Certainly.' said Snape, his lip curling. It takes a full moon cycle to mature, so I should have it ready for you in around a month. A month? squawked Umbridge, swelling toadishly. A month? But I need it this evening, Snape. I have just found Potter using my fire to communicate with a person or persons unknown. Really? said Snape, showing his first faint sign of interest as he looked around at Harry. Well, it doesn't surprise me. Potter has never shown much inclination to follow school rules. His cold, dark eyes were boring into Harry's, who met his gaze unflinchingly, concentrating hard on what he had seen in his dream, willing Snape to read it in his mind, to understand. I wish to interrogate him, repeated Umbridge angrily, and Snape looked away from Harry, back into her furiously quivering face. I wish you to provide me with a potion that will force him to tell me the truth. I have already told you, said Snape smoothly, that I have no further stocks of Veritas Serum. Unless you wish to poison Potter, and I assure you I would have the greatest sympathy with you if you did, I cannot help you. The only trouble is that most venoms act too fast to give the victim much time for truth-telling. Snape looked back at Harry, who stared at him, frantic to communicate without words. Voldemort's got serious in the Department of Mysteries, he thought desperately. Voldemort's got serious. You are on probation, 
shrieked Professor Umbridge, and Snape looked back at her, his eyebrows slightly raised. You are being deliberately unhelpful. I expected better. Lucius Malvoy always speaks most highly of you. Now, get out of my office. Snape gave her an ironic bow and turned to leave. Harry knew his last chance of letting the Order know what was going on was walking out of the door. He's got Padfoot, he shouted. He's got Padfoot at the place where it's hidden. Snape had stopped with his hand on Umbridge's door handle. Padfoot? cried Professor Umbridge, looking eagerly from Harry to Snape. What is Padfoot? Where what is hidden? What does he mean, Snape? Snape looked around at Harry. His face was inscrutable. Harry could not tell whether he had understood or not, but he did not dare speak more plainly in front of Umbridge. I have no idea, said Snape coldly. Potter, when I want nonsense shouted at me, I shall give you a babbling beverage. And crab, loosen your hold a little. If Longbottom suffocates, it will mean a lot of tedious paperwork, and I'm afraid I shall have to mention it on your reference if ever you apply for a job. He closed the door behind him with a snap, leaving Harry in a state of worse turmoil than before. Snape had been his very last hope. He looked at Umbridge, who seemed to be feeling the same way. Her chest was heaving with rage and frustration. Very well, she said, and she pulled out her wand. Very well. I am left with no alternative. This is more than a matter of school discipline. This is an issue of ministry security. Yes, yes. She seemed to be talking herself into something. She was shifting her weight nervously from foot to foot, staring at Harry, beating her wand against her empty palm and breathing heavily. Harry felt horribly powerless without his own wand as he watched her. You are forcing me, Potter. I do not want to, said Umbridge, still moving restlessly on the spot. But sometimes circumstances justify the use. I am sure the minister will understand that I had no choice. Malfoy was watching her with a hungry expression on his face. The Cruciatus curse ought to loosen your tongue, said Umbridge quietly. No, shrieked Hermione. Professor Umbridge, it's illegal. But Umbridge took no notice. There was a nasty, eager, excited look on her face that Harry had never seen before. She raised her wand. The minister wouldn't want you to break the law, Professor Umbridge, cried Hermione. What Cornelius doesn't know won't hurt him said Umbridge, who was now panting slightly as she pointed her wand at different parts of Harry's body in turn, apparently trying to decide what would hurt the most. He never knew I ordered Dementors after Potter last summer, but he was delighted to be given the chance to expel him all the same. It was you, gasped Harry. You sent the Dementors after me? Somebody had to act, breathed Umbridge, as her wand came to rest, pointing directly at Harry's forehead. They were all bleating about silencing you somehow, discrediting you, but I was the one who actually did something about it. Only you wriggled out of that one, didn't you, Potter? Not today, though. Not now. And taking a deep breath, she cried, Kust! No! shouted Hermione in a cracked voice from behind Millicent Bulstrode. No, Harry! Harry, we'll have to tell her! No way! yelled Harry, staring at the little of Hermione he could see. We'll have to, Harry. She'll force it out of you anyway. What's... what's the point? And Hermione began to cry weakly into the back of Millicent Bulstrode's robes. Millicent stopped trying to squash her against the wall immediately and dodged out of her way, looking disgusted. Well, 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 said Umbridge, looking triumphant. Little Miss Question All is going to give us some answers. Come on, then, girl. Come on. 
Hermione, no! shouted Ron through his gag. Ginny was staring at Hermione as though she had never seen her before. Neville, still choking for breath, was gazing at her too. But Harry had just noticed something. Though Hermione was sobbing desperately into her hands, there was no trace of a tear. I'm, I'm sorry, everyone, said Hermione, but I can't stand it. That's right, that's right, girl, said Umbridge, seizing Hermione by the shoulders, thrusting her into the abandoned chintz chair and leaning over her. Now then, with whom was Potter communicating just now? Well, gulped Hermione into her hands, well, he was trying to speak to Professor Dumbledore. Ron froze, his eyes wide. Ginny stopped trying to stamp on her slithering captor's toes. Even Luna looked mildly surprised. Fortunately, the attention of Umbridge and her minions was focused too exclusively upon Hermione to notice these suspicious signs. Dumbledore, said Umbridge eagerly. You know where Dumbledore is, then? Well, no, sobbed Hermione. We've tried the leaky cauldron in Diagon Alley, and the three broomsticks, and even the hog's head. Idiot girl! Dumbledore won't be sitting in a pub when the whole ministry's looking for him, shouted Umbridge, disappointment etched in every sagging line of her face. But, but we needed to tell him something important, wailed Hermione, holding her hands more tightly over her face, not, Harry knew out of anguish, but to disguise the continued absence of tears. Yes? said Umbridge with a sudden resurgence of excitement. What was it you wanted to tell him? We, we wanted to tell him it's ready, choked Hermione. What's ready? demanded Umbridge, and now she grabbed Hermione's shoulders again and shook her slightly. What's ready, girl? The, the weapon, said Hermione. Weapon, weapon, said Umbridge, and her eyes seemed to pop with excitement. You have been developing some method of resistance, a weapon you could use against the Ministry, on Professor Dumbledore's orders, of course. Y yes gasped Hermione, but he had to leave before it was finished, and n n now we've finished it for him, and we c c can't find him to, to, to tell him. What kind of weapon is it? said Umbridge harshly, her stubby hands still tight on Hermione's shoulders. We don't really understand it said Hermione, sniffing loudly. We j j just did what p p Professor Dumbledore told us to, to, to do. Umbridge straightened up, looking exultant. Lead me to the weapon, she said. I'm not showing them, said Hermione shrilly, looking around at the Slytherins through her fingers. It is not for you to set conditions, said Professor Umbridge harshly. Fine, said Hermione, now sobbing into her hands again. Fine. Let them see it. I hope they use it on you. In fact, I wish you'd invite loads and loads of people to come and see. That that would serve you right. Oh, I'd love it if the whole school knew where it was and how to use it. And then if you annoy any of them, they'll be able to s sort you out. These words had a powerful impact on Umbridge. She glanced swiftly and suspiciously around at her inquisitorial squad, her bulging eyes resting for a moment on Malfoy, who was too slow to disguise the look of eagerness and greed that had appeared on his face. Umbridge contemplated Hermione for another long moment, and then spoke in what she clearly thought was a motherly voice. All right, dear, let's make it just you and me, and we'll take Potter too, shall we? Get up now. Professor, 
said Malfoy eagerly. Professor Umbridge, I think some of the squad should come with you to look after... I am a fully qualified ministry official, Malfoy. Do you really think I cannot manage two wandless teenagers alone? asked Umbridge sharply. In any case, it does not sound as though this weapon is something that school children should see. You will remain here until I return and make sure none of these... She gestured around at Ron, Ginny, Neville, and Luna. Escape. All right, said Malfoy, looking sulky and disappointed. And you two can go ahead of me and show me the way, said Umbridge, pointing at Harry and Hermione with her wand. Lead on. Chapter 33 Fight and Flight Harry had no idea what Hermione was planning, or even whether she had a plan. He walked half a pace behind her as they headed down the corridor outside Umbridge's office, knowing it would look very suspicious if he appeared not to know where they were going. He did not dare attempt to talk to her. Umbridge was walking so closely behind them that he could hear her ragged breathing. Hermione led the way down the stairs into the entrance hall. The din of loud voices and the clatter of cutlery on plates echoed from out of the double doors to the great hall. It seemed incredible to Harry that twenty feet away were people who were enjoying dinner, celebrating the end of exams, not a care in the world. Hermione walked straight out of the oak front doors and down the stone steps into the balmy evening air. The sun was falling toward the tops of the trees in the Forbidden Forest now, as Hermione marched purposefully across the grass, Umbridge jogging to keep up. Their long dark shadows rippled over the grass behind them like cloaks. It's hidden in Hagrid's hut, is it? said Umbridge eagerly in Harry's ear. Of course not, said Hermione scathingly. Hagrid might have set it off accidentally. Yes, said Umbridge, whose excitement seemed to be mounting. Yes, yes, he would have done, of course, the great half-breed oaf. She laughed. Harry felt a strong urge to swing around and seize her by the throat, but resisted. His scar was throbbing in the soft evening air, but it had not yet burned white hot, as he knew it would if Voldemort had moved in for the kill. Then, where is it? asked Umbridge, with a hint of uncertainty in her voice, as Hermione continued to stride toward the forest. In there, of course, said Hermione, pointing into the dark trees. It had to be somewhere that students weren't going to find it accidentally, didn't it? Of course, said Umbridge, though she sounded a little apprehensive now. Of course. Very well, then. You two stay ahead of me. Can we have your wand, then, if we're going first? Harry asked her. No, I don't think so, Mr. Potter said Umbridge sweetly, poking him in the back with it. The Ministry places a rather higher value on my life than yours, I'm afraid. As they reached the cool shade of the first trees, Harry tried to catch Hermione's eye. Walking into the forest without wands seemed to him to be more foolhardy than anything they had done so far this evening. She, however, merely gave Umbridge a contemptuous glance and plunged straight into the trees, moving at such a pace that Umbridge, with her shorter legs, had difficulty in keeping up. Is it very far in? Umbridge asked as her robe ripped on a bramble. Oh, yes, said Hermione. Yes, it's well hidden. Harry's misgivings increased. Hermione was not taking the path they had followed to visit Grop, but the one he had followed three years ago to the lair of the monster Aragog. Hermione had not been with him on that occasion. He doubted she had any idea what danger lay at the end of it. Uh, are you sure this is the right way? He asked her pointedly. Oh, yes, 
she said in a steely voice, crashing through the undergrowth with what he thought was a wholly unnecessary amount of noise. Behind them, Umbridge tripped over a fallen sapling. Neither of them paused to help her up again. Hermione merely strode on, calling loudly over her shoulder. It's a bit further in. Hermione, keep your voice down, Harry muttered, hurrying to catch up with her. Anything could be listening in here. I want us heard, she answered quietly, as Umbridge jogged noisily after them. You'll see. They walked on for what seemed a long time, until they were once again so deep into the forest that the dense tree canopy blocked out all light. Harry had the feeling he had had before in the forest, one of being watched by unseen eyes. How much further? demanded Umbridge angrily from behind him. Not far now, shouted Hermione, as they emerged into a dim, dank clearing. Just a little bit. An arrow flew through the air and landed with a menacing thud in the tree just over her head. The air was suddenly full of the sound of hooves. Harry could feel the forest floor trembling. Umbridge gave a little scream and pushed him in front of her like a shield. He wrenched himself free of her and turned. Around fifty centaurs were emerging on every side, their bows raised and loaded, pointing at Harry, Hermione, and Umbridge, who backed slowly into the center of the clearing, Umbridge uttering odd little whimpers of terror. Harry looked sideways at Hermione. She was wearing a triumphant smile. Who are you? said a voice. Harry looked left. The chestnut-bodied centaur called Magorian was walking toward them out of the circle. His bow, like the others, was raised. On Harry's right, Umbridge was still whimpering, her wand trembling violently as she pointed it at the advancing centaur. I asked you who are you, human, said Magorian roughly. I am Dolores Umbridge, said Umbridge in a high-pitched, terrified voice. Senior Undersecretary to the Minister of Magic, and Headmistress and High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. You are from the Ministry of Magic, said Magorian, as many of the centaurs in the surrounding circle shifted restlessly. That's right, said Umbridge in an even higher voice. So be very careful. By the laws laid down by the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, any attack by half-breeds such as yourselves on a human... What did you call us? shouted a wild-looking black centaur, whom Harry recognized as Bane. There was a great deal of angry muttering and tightening of bowstrings around them. Don't call them that, Hermione said furiously, but Umbridge did not appear to have heard her. Still pointing her shaking wand at Magorian, she continued, Law 15b states clearly that any attack by a magical creature who is deemed to have near-human intelligence and therefore considered responsible for its actions... Near human intelligence, repeated Magorian, as Bane and several others roared with rage and poured the ground. We consider that a great insult, human. Our intelligence thankfully far outstrips your own. What are you doing in our forest? bellowed the hard-faced grey centaur, whom Harry and Hermione had seen on their last trip into the forest. Why are you here? Your forest? said Umbridge, shaking now not only with fright, but also, it seemed, with indignation. I would remind you that you live here only because the Ministry of Magic permits you certain areas of land. An arrow flew so close to her head that it caught at her mousy hair in passing. She let out an ear-splitting scream and threw her hands over her head, while some of the centaurs bellowed their approval, and others laughed raucously, the sound of their wild, neighing laughter echoing around the dimly-lit clearing and the sight of their pawing hooves was extremely unnerving.
Whose forest is it now, human? bellowed Bane. Filthy half-breeds, she screamed, her hands still tight over her head. Beasts! Uncontrolled animals! Be quiet, shouted Hermione, but it was too late. Umbridge pointed her wand at Megorian and screamed, Incarcerus! Ropes flew out of midair like thick snakes, wrapping themselves tightly around the centaur's torso and trapping his arms. He gave a cry of rage and reared onto his hind legs, attempting to free himself while the other centaurs charged. Harry grabbed Hermione and pulled her to the ground. Face down on the forest floor, he knew a moment of terror as hooves thundered around him, but the centaurs leapt over and around them, bellowing and screaming with rage. No! He heard Umbridge shriek. No! I am senior undersecretary. You cannot! Unhand me, you animals! No! He saw a flash of red light and knew that she had attempted to stun one of them. Then she screamed very loudly. Lifting his head a few inches, Harry saw that Umbridge had been seized from behind by Bane and lifted high into the air, wriggling and yelling with fright. Her wand fell from her hand to the ground, and Harry's heart leapt. If he could just reach it! But as he stretched out a hand toward it, a centaur's hoof descended upon the wand, and it broke cleanly in half. Now! roared a voice in Harry's ear, and a thick, hairy arm descended from thin air and dragged him upright. Hermione, too, had been pulled to her feet. Over the plunging, many-coloured backs and heads of the centaurs, Harry saw Umbridge being borne away through the trees by Bane, still screaming non-stop. Her voice grew fainter and fainter until they could no longer hear it over the trampling of hooves surrounding them. And these? said the hard-faced grey centaur holding Hermione. They are young, said a slow, doleful voice from behind Harry. We do not attack fools. They brought her here, Ronan replied the centaur, who had such a firm grip on Harry. And they are not so young. He is nearing manhood, this one. He shook Harry by the neck of his robes. Please, said Hermione breathlessly, please don't attack us. We don't think like her. We aren't Ministry of Magic employees. We only came in here because we hoped you'd drive her off for us. Harry knew at once from the look on the face of the grey centaur holding Hermione that she had made a terrible mistake in saying this. The grey centaur threw back his head, his back legs stamping furiously, and bellowed, You see, Rodan? They already have the arrogance of their kind, so we were to do your dirty work while we human girl. We were to act as your servants, drive away your enemies like obedient hounds. No, said Hermione in a horror-struck squeak. Please, I didn't mean that. I just hoped you'd be able to, to help us. But she seemed to be going from bad to worse. We do not help humans snarled the centaur holding Harry, tightening his grip and rearing a little at the same time so that Harry's feet left the ground momentarily. We are a race apart and proud to be so. We will not permit you to walk from here boasting that we did your bidding. We're not going to say anything like that, Harry shouted. We know you didn't do anything because we wanted you to... But nobody seemed to be listening to him. A bearded centaur toward the back of the crowd shouted, They came here unasked! They must pay the consequences. A roar of approval met these words, and a dun-colored centaur shouted, They can join the woman. You said you didn't hurt the innocent, shouted Hermione, real tears sliding down her face now. We haven't done anything to hurt you. We haven't used wands or threats. We just want to go back to school. Please, let us go back. We are not all like the traitor Ferenzi, human girl. 
shouted the grey centaur to more neighing roars of approval from his fellows. Perhaps you thought us pretty talking horses? We are an ancient people who will not stand wizard invasions and insults. We do not recognize your laws. We do not acknowledge your superiority. We are... But they did not hear what else centaurs were, for at that moment there came a crashing noise on the edge of the clearing so loud that all of them, Harry, Hermione, and the fifty or so centaurs filling the clearing, looked around. Harry's centaur let him fall to the ground again as his hands flew to his bow and quiver of arrows. Hermione had been dropped too, and Harry hurried toward her as two thick tree trunks parted ominously, and the monstrous form of Grawp, the giant, appeared in the gap. The centaurs nearest him backed into those behind. The clearing was now a forest of bows and arrows waiting to be fired, all pointing upwards at the enormous greyish face now looming over them from just beneath the thick canopy of branches. Grop's lopsided mouth was gaping stupidly. They could see his brick-like yellow teeth glimmering in the half-light. His dull, sludge-coloured eyes narrowed as he squinted down at the creatures at his feet. Broken ropes trailed from both ankles. He opened his mouth even wider. Hagger! Harry did not know what Hagger meant or what language it was from, nor did he much care. He was watching Grawp's feet, which were almost as long as Harry's whole body. Hermione gripped his arm tightly. The centaurs were quite silent, staring up at the giant, whose huge round head moved from side to side as he continued to peer amongst them, as though looking for something he had dropped. Hagger! he said again, more insistently. Get away from here, giant, called Magorian. You are not welcome among us. These words seemed to make no impression whatsoever on Grop. He stooped a little, the centaur's arms tensed on their bows, and then bellowed, Hagger! A few of the centaurs looked worried now. Hermione, however, gave a gasp. Harry, she whispered, I think he's trying to say Hagrid. At this precise moment, Grawp caught sight of them, the only two humans in a sea of centaurs. He lowered his head another foot or so, staring intently at them. Harry could feel Hermione shaking as Grawp opened his mouth wide again and said, in a deep, rumbling voice, Hermy! Goodness, said Hermione, gripping Harry's arm so tightly it was growing numb and looking as though she was about to faint. He... he remembered... Hermy, roared Grop. Where, Hagger? I don't know, squealed Hermione, terrified. I'm sorry, Grop. I don't know. Grop want Hagger. One of the giant's massive hands swooped down upon them. Hermione let out a real scream, ran a few steps backward, and fell over. Devoid of a wand, Harry braced himself to punch, kick, bite, or whatever else it took as the hand flew toward him and knocked a snow-white centaur off his legs. It was what the centaurs had been waiting for. Grop's outstretched fingers were a foot from Harry when fifty arrows went soaring through the air at the giant, peppering his enormous face, causing him to howl with pain and rage and straighten up again, rubbing his face with his enormous hands, breaking off the arrow shafts but forcing the heads in still deeper. He yelled and stamped his enormous feet, and the centaurs scattered out of the way. Pebble-sized droplets of Grawp's blood showered Harry as he pulled Hermione to her feet, and the pair of them ran as fast as they could for the shelter of the trees. Once there, they looked back. Grawp was snatching blindly at the centaurs as blood ran all down his face. 
They were retreating in disorder, galloping away through the trees on the other side of the clearing. As Harry and Hermione watched, Gorp gave another roar of fury and plunged after them, smashing more trees aside as he went. Oh, no, said Hermione, quaking so badly that her knees gave way. Oh, that was horrible. And he might kill them all. I'm not that fussed, to be honest, said Harry bitterly. The sounds of the galloping centaurs and the blundering giant were growing fainter and fainter. As Harry listened to them, his scar gave another great throb, and a wave of terror swept over him. They had wasted so much time. They were even further from rescuing Sirius than they had been when he had had the vision. Not only had Harry managed to lose his wand, but they were stuck in the middle of the forbidden forest, with no means of transport whatsoever. Smart plan! He spat at Hermione, keen to release some of his fury. Really smart plan. Where do we go from here? We need to get back up to the castle, said Hermione faintly. By the time we've done that, Sirius will probably be dead, said Harry, kicking a nearby tree in temper. There was a high-pitched chattering overhead, and he looked up to see an angry bow truckle flexing its long twig-like fingers at him. Well, we can't do anything without ones said Hermione hopelessly, dragging herself up again. Anyway, Harry, how exactly were you planning to get all the way to London? Yeah, we were just wondering that, said a familiar voice from behind her. Harry and Hermione moved instinctively together, peering through the trees, as Ron came into sight, closely followed by Ginny, Neville, and Luna. All of them looked a little the worse for wear. There were several long scratches running the length of Ginny's cheek. A large purple lump was swelling above Neville's right eye. Ron's lip was bleeding worse than ever, but all were looking rather pleased with themselves. So, said Ron, pushing aside a low-hanging branch and holding out Harry's wand. Had any ideas? How did you get away? asked Harry in amazement, taking his wand from Ron. Couple of stunners, a disarming charm. Neville brought off a really nice little impediment, Jinx said Ron airily, now handing back Hermione's one too. But Ginny was best. She got Malfoy, bat bogey hex. It was superb. His whole face was covered in the great flapping things. Anyway, we saw you heading into the forest out of the window and followed. What have you done with Umbridge? She got carried away, said Harry, by a herd of centaurs. And they left you behind? asked Ginny, looking astonished. No, they got chased off by Grawp, said Harry. Who's Grawp? Luna asked interestedly. Hagrid's little brother, said Ron promptly. Anyway, never mind that now. Harry, what did you find out in the fire? As you know who got Sirius or... Yes, said Harry, as his scar gave another painful prickle. And I'm sure Sirius is still alive, but I can't see how we're going to get there to help him. They all fell silent, looking rather scared. The problem facing them seemed insurmountable. Well, we'll have to fly, won't we? said Luna, in the closest thing to a matter-of-fact voice Harry had ever heard her use. Okay, said Harry irritably, rounding on her. First of all, we aren't doing anything if you're including yourself in that. And second of all, Ron's the only one with a broomstick that isn't being guarded by a security troll. So, I've got a broom, said Ginny. Yeah, but you're not coming, said Ron angrily. Excuse me, but I care what happens to Sirius as much as you do, said Ginny, her jaw set so that her resemblance to Fred and George was suddenly striking. You're too... Harry began, 
I'm three years older than you were when you fought you-know-who over the Sorcerer's Stone, she said fiercely. And it's because of me Malfoy's stuck back in Umbridge's office with giant flying bogies attacking him. Yeah, but we were all in the DA together, said Neville quietly. It was all supposed to be about fighting you-know-who, wasn't it? And this is the first chance we've had to do something real. Or was that all just a game or something? No, of course it wasn't, said Harry impatiently. Then we should come too, said Neville simply. We want to help. That's right, said Luna, smiling happily. Harry's eyes met Ron's. He knew that Ron was thinking exactly what he was. If he could have chosen any members of the D.A. in addition to himself, Ron and Hermione, to join him in the attempt to rescue Sirius, he would not have picked Ginny, Neville, or Luna. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, said Harry through gritted teeth, because we still don't know how to get there. I thought we'd settled that, said Luna maddeningly. We're flying. Look, said Ron, barely containing his anger. You might be able to fly without a broomstick, but the rest of us can't sprout wings whenever we... There are other ways of flying than with broomsticks, said Luna serenely. I suppose we're going to ride on the back of the khaki snorkel or whatever it is, Ron demanded. The crumple-horned snorkat can't fly, said Luna in a dignified voice. But they can. And Hagrid says they're very good at finding places their riders are looking for. Harry whirled around. Standing between two trees, their white eyes gleaming eerily, were two Thestrals, watching the whispered conversation as though they understood every word. Yes, he whispered, moving toward them. They tossed their reptilian heads, throwing back long black manes, and Harry stretched out his hand eagerly and patted the nearest one's shining neck. How could he ever have thought them ugly? Is it those mad horse things? said Ron uncertainly, staring at a point slightly to the left of the Thestral Harry was patting. Those ones you can't see unless you've watched someone snuff it? Yeah, said Harry. How many? Just two. Well, we need three, said Hermione, who was still looking a little shaken but determined just the same. Four, Hermione, said Ginny, scowling. I think there are six of us, actually, said Luna, calmly counting. Don't be stupid, we can't all go, said Harry angrily. Look, you three, he pointed at Neville, Ginny, and Luna. You're not involved in this, you're not. They burst into more protests. His scar gave another more painful twinge. Every moment they delayed was precious. He did not have time to argue. Okay, fine, it's your choice, he said curtly. But unless we can find more Thestrals, you're not going to be able... Oh, more of them will come, said Ginny confidently, who, like Ron, was squinting in quite the wrong direction, apparently under the impression that she was looking at the horses. What makes you think that? Because in case you hadn't noticed, you and Hermione are both covered in blood, she said coolly. And we know Hagrid lures Thestrals with raw meat, so that's probably why these two turned up in the first place. Harry felt a soft tug on his robes at that moment and looked down to see the closest Thestral licking his sleeve, which was damp with Grawp's blood. Okay, then, he said, a bright idea occurring. Ron and I will take these two and go ahead, and Hermione can stay here with you three, and she'll attract more Thestrals. I'm not staying behind, said Hermione furiously. There's no need, said Luna, smiling. Look, here come more now. You two must really smell. Harry turned. 
No fewer than six or seven thestrals were picking their way through the trees now, their great leathery wings folded tight to their bodies, their eyes gleaming through the darkness. He had no excuse now. All right, he said angrily. Pick one and get on, then. Chapter 34 The Department of Mysteries Harry wound his hand tightly into the mane of the nearest Thestral, placed a foot on a stump nearby, and scrambled clumsily onto the horse's silken back. It did not object, but twisted its head around, fangs bared, and attempted to continue its eager licking of his robes. He found there was a way of lodging his knees behind the wing joints that made him feel more secure, and looked around at the others. Neville had heaved himself over the back of the next Thestral, and was now attempting to swing one short leg over the creature's back. Luna was already in place, sitting side-saddle and adjusting her robes as though she did this every day. Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, however, were still standing motionless on the spot, open-mouthed and staring. What? he said. How are we supposed to get on? said Ron faintly, when we can't see the things. Oh, it's easy, said Luna, sliding obligingly from her thestral and marching over to him, Hermione, and Ginny. Come here. She pulled them over to the other Thestrals standing around, and one by one managed to help them onto the backs of their mounts. All three looked extremely nervous as she wound their hands into the horses' manes and told them to grip tightly before getting back onto her own steed. This is mad, Ron said faintly, moving his free hand gingerly up and down his horse's neck. Mad! If I could just see it! You'd better hope it stays invisible, said Harry darkly. We all ready, then? They all nodded, and he saw five pairs of knees tighten beneath their robes. Okay. He looked down at the back of his Thestral's glossy black head and swallowed. Ministry of Magic, visit at entrance, London, then, he said uncertainly. Uh, if you know where to go. For a moment, his Thestral did nothing at all. Then, with a sweeping movement that nearly unseated him, the wings on either side extended. The horse crouched slowly and then rocketed upwards so fast and so steeply that Harry had to clench his arms and legs tightly around the horse to avoid sliding backward over its bony rump. He closed his eyes and put his face down into the horse's silky mane as they burst through the topmost branches of the trees and soared out into a blood-red sunset. Harry did not think he had ever moved so fast. The Thestral streaked over the castle, its wide wings hardly beating. The cooling air was slapping Harry's face. Eyes screwed up against the rushing wind. He looked around and saw his five fellows soaring along behind him, each of them bent as low as possible into the neck of their thestral to protect themselves from his slipstream. They were over the Hogwarts grounds. They had passed Hogsmeade. Harry could see mountains and gullies below them. In the falling darkness, Harry saw small collections of lights as they passed over more villages then a winding road on which a single car was beetling its way home through the hills. This is bizarre, Harry heard Ron yell from somewhere behind him, and he imagined how it must feel to be speeding along at this height with no visible means of support. Twilight fell. The sky turned to a light, dusky purple, littered with tiny silver stars, and soon it was only the lights of muggle towns that gave them any clue of how far from the ground they were, or how very fast they were travelling. Harry's arms were wrapped tightly around his horse's neck as he willed it to go even faster. How much time had elapsed since he had seen Sirius lying on the Department of Mysteries' floor? 
How much longer would he be able to resist Voldemort? All Harry knew for sure was that Sirius had neither done as Voldemort wanted, nor died, for he was convinced that either outcome would cause him to feel Voldemort's jubilation or fury course through his own body, making his scar sear as painfully as it had on the night Mr. Weasley was attacked. On they flew through the gathering darkness. Harry's face felt stiff and cold, his legs numb from gripping the festal sides so tightly, but he did not dare shift positions lest he slip. He was deaf from the thundering in his ears, and his mouth was dry and frozen from the rush of cold night air. He had lost all sense of how far they had come. All his faith was in the beast below him, still streaking purposefully through the night, barely flapping its wings as it sped ever onward. If they were too late... He's still alive. He's still fighting. I can feel it. If Voldemort decided Sirius was not going to crack, I'd know. Harry's stomach gave a jolt. The Thestral's head was suddenly pointing toward the ground, and he had actually slid forward a few inches along its neck. They were descending at last. He heard one of the girls shriek behind him and twisted around dangerously, but could see no sign of a falling body. Presumably they had received a shock from the change of position, just as he had. And now bright orange lights were growing larger and rounder on all sides. They could see the tops of buildings, streams of headlights like luminous insect eyes, squares of pale yellow that were windows. Quite suddenly, it seemed they were hurtling toward the pavement. Harry gripped the Thestral with every last ounce of his strength, braced for a sudden impact, but the horse touched the dark ground as lightly as a shadow and Harry slid from his back, looking around at the street where the overflowing dumpster still stood a short way from the vandalized telephone box, both drained of color in the flat orange glare of the streetlights. Ron landed a short way away and toppled immediately off his thestral onto the pavement. Never again, he said, struggling to his feet. He made as though to stride away from his thestral, but, unable to see it, collided with its hind quarters and almost fell over again. Never, ever again! That was the worst! Hermione and Ginny touched down on either side of him. Both slid off their mounts a little more gracefully than Ron, though with similar expressions of relief at being back on firm ground. Neville jumped down, shaking, but Luna dismounted smoothly. Where do we go from here, then? She asked Harry in a politely interested voice, as though this was all a rather interesting day trip. Over here, he said. He gave his Thestral a quick, grateful pat, then led the way quickly to the battered telephone box and opened the door. Come on, he urged the others as they hesitated. Ron and Ginny marched in obediently. Hermione, Neville, and Luna squashed themselves in after them. Harry took one glance back at the Thestrals, now foraging for scraps of rotten food inside the dumpster, then forced himself into the box after Luna. Whoever's nearest the receiver, dial 62442, he said. Ron did it, his arm bent bizarrely to reach the dial. As it whirred back into place, the cool female voice sounded inside the box. Welcome to the Ministry of Magic. Please state your name and business. Harry Potter, Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, Harry said very quickly. Ginny Weasley, Neville Longbottom, Luna Lovegood. We're here to save someone, unless your ministry can do it first. Thank you, said the cool female voice. Visitors, please take the badges and attach them to the front of your robes. 
Half a dozen badges slid out of the metal chute, where returned coins usually appeared. Hermione scooped them up and handed them mutely to Harry over Ginny's head. He glanced at the topmost one. Harry Potter, Rescue Mission. Visitor to the Ministry, you are required to submit to a search and present your wand for registration at the security desk, which is located at the far end of the atrium. Fine, Harry said loudly as his scar gave another throb. Now, can we move? The floor of the telephone box shuddered and the pavement rose up past the glass windows of the telephone box. The scavenging thestrals were sliding out of sight. Blackness closed over their heads, and with a dull, grinding noise they sank down into the depths of the Ministry of Magic. A chink of soft golden light hit their feet and, widening, rose up their bodies. Harry bent his knees and held his wand as ready as he could in such cramped conditions, peering through the glass to see whether anybody was waiting for them in the atrium, but it seemed to be completely empty. The light was dimmer than it had been by day. There were no fires burning under the mantelpieces set into the walls, but he saw as the lift slid smoothly to a halt that golden symbols continued to twist sinuously in the dark blue ceiling. The Ministry of Magic wishes you a pleasant evening said the woman's voice. The door of the telephone box burst open. Harry toppled out of it, closely followed by Neville and Luna. The only sound in the atrium was the steady rush of water from the golden fountain, where jets from the wands of the witch and wizard, the point of the centaur's arrow, the tip of the goblin's hat, and the house-elf's ears continued to gush into the surrounding pool. Come on, said Harry quietly, and the six of them sprinted off down the hall. Harry in the lead, past the fountain, toward the desk where the security man who had weighed Harry's wand had sat, and which was now deserted. Harry felt sure that there ought to be a security person there, sure that their absence was an ominous sign, and his feeling of foreboding increased as they passed through the golden gates to the lifts. He pressed the nearest down button, and a lift clattered into sight almost immediately. The golden grill slid apart with a great echoing clanking, and they dashed inside. Harry stabbed the number nine button. The grills closed with a bang, and the lift began to descend, jangling and rattling. Harry had not realized how noisy the lifts were on the day that he had come with Mr. Weasley. He was sure that the din would raise every security person within the building. Yet, when the lift halted, the cool female voice said, Department of Mysteries, and the grills slid open again. They stepped out into the corridor, where nothing was moving but the nearest torches, flickering in the rush of air from the lift. Harry turned toward the plain black door. After months and months of dreaming about it, he was here at last. Let's go, he whispered, and he led the way down the corridor, Luna right behind him, gazing around with her mouth slightly open. Okay, listen, said Harry, stopping again within six feet of the door. Maybe... Maybe a couple of people should stay here as a as a lookout, and... And how are we going to let you know something's coming? asked Ginny, her eyebrows raised. You could be miles away. We're coming with you, Harry, said Neville. Let's get on with it, said Ron firmly. Harry still did not want to take them all with him, but it seemed he had no choice. He turned to face the door and walked forward. Just as it had in his dream... It swung open, and he marched over the threshold, the others at his heels. They were standing in a large, circular room. Everything in here was black, including the floor and ceiling. Identical, unmarked, 
Handleless black doors were set at intervals all around the black walls, interspersed with branches of candles whose flames burned blue. Their cool, shimmering light reflected in the shining marble floor so that it looked as though there was dark water underfoot. Someone shut the door, Harry muttered. He regretted giving this order the moment Neville had obeyed it. Without the long chink of light from the torch-lit corridor behind them, the place became so dark that for a moment the only things they could see were the bunches of shivering blue flames on the walls and their ghostly reflections in the floor below. In his dream, Harry had always walked purposefully across this room to the door immediately opposite the entrance and walked on. But there were around a dozen doors here. Just as he was gazing ahead at the doors opposite him, trying to decide which was the right one, there was a great rumbling noise, and the candles began to move sideways. The circular wall was rotating. Hermione grabbed Harry's arm, as though frightened the floor might move too, but it did not. For a few seconds the blue flames around them were blurred to resemble neon lines as the wall sped around them, and then, quite as suddenly as it had started, the rumbling stopped, and everything became stationary once again. Harry's eyes had blue streaks burned into them. It was all he could see. What was that about? whispered Ron fearfully. I think it was to stop us knowing which door we came in from, said Ginny in a hushed voice. Harry realized at once that she was right. He could no sooner have picked the exit from the other doors than located an ant upon the jet-black floor. Meanwhile, the door through which they needed to proceed could be any of the dozen surrounding them. How are we going to get back out? said Neville uncomfortably. Well, that doesn't matter now, said Harry forcefully, blinking to try and erase the blue lines from his vision and clutching his wand tighter than ever. We won't need to get out until we've found Sirius. Don't go calling for him, though, Hermione said urgently, but Harry had never needed her advice less. His instinct was to keep as quiet as possible for the time being. Where do we go then, Harry? Ron asked. I don't, Harry began. He swallowed. In the dreams, I went through the door at the end of the corridor from the lifts into a dark room. That's this one. And then I went through another door into a room that kind of glitters. We should try a few doors, he said hastily. I'll know the right way when I see it. Come on. He marched straight at the door now facing him, the others following close behind him, set his left hand against its cool, shining surface, raised his wand ready to strike the moment it opened, and pushed. It swung open easily. After the darkness of the first room, the lamps hanging low on golden chains from this ceiling gave the impression that this long, rectangular room was much brighter, though there were no glittering, shimmering lights such as Harry had seen in his dreams. The place was quite empty except for a few desks, and in the very middle of the room an enormous glass tank of deep green water, big enough for all of them to swim in which contained a number of pearly white objects that were drifting around lazily in the liquid. "'What are those things?' whispered Ron. "'Dunno,' said Harry. "'Are they fish?' breathed Ginny. "'Aquavirious maggots,' said Luna excitedly. "'Dad said the Ministry were breeding.' "'No,' said Hermione. She sounded odd. She moved forward to look through the side of the tank. "'They're brains.' "'Brains?' Yes. I wonder what they're doing with them. Harry joined her at the tank. Sure enough, there could be no mistake now that he saw them at close quarters. Glimmering eerily, they drifted in and out of sight in the depths of the green water, 
looking something like slimy cauliflowers. Let's get out of here, said Harry. This isn't right. We need to try another door. There are doors here, too, said Ron, pointing around the walls. Harry's heart sank. How big was this place? In my dream, I went through that dark room into the second one, he said. I think we should go back and try from there. So they hurried back into the dark circular room. The ghostly shapes of the brains were now swimming before Harry's eyes instead of the blue candle flames. Wait, said Hermione sharply as Luna made to close the door of the brain room behind them. Flagrate! She drew with her wand in midair and a fiery X appeared on the door. No sooner had the door clicked shut behind them than there was a great rumbling and once again the wall began to revolve very fast. But now there was a great red-gold blur in amongst the faint blue, and when all became still again, the fiery cross still burned, showing the door they had already tried. Good thinking, said Harry. Okay, let's try this one. Again he strode directly at the door facing him and pushed it open, his wand still raised, the others at his heels. This room was larger than the last, dimly lit and rectangular, and the center of it was sunken, forming a great stone pit some twenty feet below them. They were standing on the topmost tier of what seemed to be stone benches running all around the room and descending in steep steps like an amphitheater, or the courtroom in which Harry had been tried by the Wizengamot. Instead of a chain chair, however, there was a raised stone dais in the center of the lowered floor, and upon this dais stood a stone archway that looked so ancient, cracked and crumbling, that Harry was amazed the thing was still standing. Unsupported by any surrounding wall, the archway was hung with a tattered black curtain or veil, which, despite the complete stillness of the cold surrounding air, was fluttering very slightly, as though it had just been touched. "'Who's there?' said Harry, jumping down onto the bench below. There was no answering voice, but the veil continued to flutter and sway. Careful, whispered Hermione. Harry scrambled down the benches one by one until he reached the stone bottom of the sunken pit. His footsteps echoed loudly as he walked slowly toward the dais. The pointed archway looked much taller from where he stood now than when he had been looking down on it from above. Still the veil swayed gently, as though somebody had just passed through it. Serious, Harry spoke again, but much more quietly now that he was nearer. He had the strangest feeling that there was someone standing right behind the veil on the other side of the archway. Gripping his wand very tightly, he edged around the dais, but there was nobody there. All that could be seen was the other side of the tattered black veil. Let's go, called Hermione from halfway up the stone steps. This isn't right, Harry. Come on, let's go. She sounded scared, much more scared than she had in the room where the brains swam, Yet Harry thought the archway had a kind of beauty about it, old though it was. The gently rippling veil intrigued him. He felt a very strong inclination to climb up on the dais and walk through it. Harry, let's go, okay? said Hermione more forcefully. Okay, he said, but he did not move. He had just heard something. There were faint whispering, murmuring noises coming from the other side of the veil. What are you saying? he said very loudly, so that the words echoed all around the surrounding stone benches. Nobody's talking, Harry, said Hermione, now moving over to him. Someone's whispering behind there, he said, moving out of her reach and continuing to frown at the veil. Is that you, Ron? I'm here, mate, said Ron, 
appearing around the side of the archway. Can't anyone else hear it? Harry demanded, for the whispering and murmuring was becoming louder. Without really meaning to put it there, he found his foot was on the dais. I can hear them too, breathed Luna, joining them around the side of the archway and gazing at the swaying veil. There are people in there. What do you mean, in there? demanded Hermione, jumping down from the bottom step and sounding much angrier than the occasion warranted. There isn't any in there. It's just an archway. There's no room for anybody to be there. Harry, stop it. Come away. She grabbed his arm and pulled, but he resisted. Harry, we're supposed to be here for Sirius, she said in a high-pitched, strained voice. Sirius? Harry repeated, still gazing mesmerized at the continuously swaying veil. Yeah. And then something slid back into place in his brain. Sirius captured, bound, and tortured, and he was staring at this archway. He took several paces back from the dais and wrenched his eyes from the veil. Let's go, he said. That's what I've been trying to— Well, come on then, said Hermione, and she led the way back around the dais. On the other side, Ginny and Neville were staring, apparently entranced at the veil too. Without speaking, Hermione took hold of Ginny's arm, Ron, Neville's, and they marched them firmly back to the lowest stone bench and clambered all the way back up to the door. What do you reckon that arch was? Harry asked Hermione as they regained the dark circular room. I don't know, but whatever it was, it was dangerous, she said firmly, again inscribing a fiery cross upon the door. Once more the wall spun and became still again. Harry approached the door at random and pushed. It did not move. What's wrong? said Hermione. It's locked, said Harry, throwing his weight at the door, but it did not budge. This is it then, isn't it? said Ron excitedly, joining Harry in the attempt to force the door open. Bound to be. Get out of the way, said Hermione sharply. She pointed her wand at the place where a lock would have been on an ordinary door and said, Allo, Hermora. Nothing happened. Sirius's knife, said Harry, and he pulled it out from inside his robes and slid it into the crack between the door and the wall. The others all watched eagerly as he ran it from top to bottom, withdrew it, and then flung his shoulder again at the door. It remained as firm as shut as ever. What was more, when Harry looked down at the knife, he saw that the blade had melted. Right, we're leaving that room, said Hermione decisively. But what if that's the one? said Ron, staring at it with a mixture of apprehension and longing. It can't be. Harry could get through all the doors in his dream, said Hermione, marking the door with another fiery cross as Harry replaced the now useless handle of Sirius's knife in his pocket. You know what could be in there? said Luna eagerly, as the wall started to spin yet again. Something blibbering, no doubt, said Hermione under her breath, and Neville gave a nervous little laugh. The wall slid back to a halt, and Harry, with a feeling of increasing desperation, pushed the next door open. This is it! He knew it at once by the beautiful dancing diamond sparkling light. As Harry's eyes became more accustomed to the brilliant glare, he saw clocks gleaming from every surface, large and small, grandfather and carriage, hanging in spaces between the bookcases or standing on desks ranging the length of the room, so that a busy, relentless ticking filled the place like thousands of minuscule marching footsteps. The source of the dancing diamond-bright light was a towering crystal bell jar that stood at the far end of the room. 
This way! Harry's heart was pumping frantically now that he knew they were on the right track. He led the way forward down the narrow space between the lines of the desks, heading, as he had done in his dream, for the source of the light, the crystal bell jar, quite as tall as he was, that stood on a desk and appeared to be full of a billowing, glittering wind. Oh, look! said Ginny as they drew nearer, pointing at the very heart of the bell jar. Drifting along in the sparkling current inside was a tiny jewel-bright egg. As it rose in the jar, it cracked open and a hummingbird emerged, which was carried to the very top of the jar, but as it fell on the draught, its feathers became bedraggled and damp again, and by the time it had been borne back to the bottom of the jar, it had been enclosed once more in its egg. Keep going, Harry said sharply, because Ginny showed signs of wanting to stop and watch the egg's progress back into a bird. You dawdled enough by that old arch, she said crossly, but followed him past the bell jar to the only door behind it. This is it, Harry said again, and his heart was now pumping so hard and fast he felt it must interfere with his speech. It's through here. He glanced around at them all. They had their wands out and looked suddenly serious and anxious. He looked back at the door and pushed. It swung open. They were there. They had found the place. High as a church and full of nothing but towering shelves covered in small, dusty glass orbs. They glimmered dully in the light issuing from more candle brackets set at intervals along the shelves. Like those in the circular room behind them, their flames were burning blue. The room was very cold. Harry edged forward and peered down one of the shadowy aisles between two rows of shelves. He could not hear anything nor see the slightest sign of movement. You said it was row ninety-seven? whispered Hermione. Yeah, breathed Harry, looking up at the end of the closest row. Beneath the branch of blue glowing candles protruding from it glimmered the silver figure fifty-three. We need to go right, I think, whispered Hermione, squinting to the next row. Yes, that's fifty-four. Keep your wands out, Harry said softly. They crept forward, staring behind them as they went on down the long alleys of shelves, the farther ends of which were in near-total darkness. Tiny yellowing labels had been stuck beneath each glass orb on the shelf. Some of them had a weird liquid glow. Others were as dull and dark within as blown light bulbs. They passed row eighty-four. Eighty-five. Harry was listening hard for the slightest sound of movement, but Sirius might be gagged now, or else unconscious. Or, said an unbidden voice inside his head, he might already be dead. I'd have felt it, he told himself, his heart now hammering against his Adam's apple. I'd already know. Ninety-seven, whispered Hermione. They stood grouped around the end of the row, gazing down the alley beside it. There was nobody there. He's right down at the end, said Harry, whose mouth had become slightly dry. You can't see properly from here. And he led them forward between the towering rows of glass balls, some of which glowed softly as they passed. He should be near here, whispered Harry, convinced that every step was going to bring the ragged form of Sirius into view upon the darkened floor. Anywhere here, really close. Harry, said Hermione tentatively, but he did not want to respond. His mouth was very dry now. Somewhere about here, he said. They had reached the end of the row and emerged into more dim candlelight. There was nobody there at all. All was echoing, dusty silence. 
He might be, Harry whispered hoarsely, peering down the alley next door. Or maybe he hurried to look down the one beyond that. Harry, said Hermione again. What? he snarled. I, I don't think Sirius is here. Nobody spoke. Harry did not want to look at any of them. He felt sick. He did not understand why Sirius was not here. He had to be here. This was where he, Harry, had seen him. He ran up the space at the end of the rows, staring down them. Empty aisle after empty aisle flickered past. He ran the other way, back past his staring companions. There was no sign of Sirius anywhere, nor any hint of a struggle. Harry! Ron called. What? He did not want to hear what Ron had to say, did not want to hear Ron tell him he had been stupid, or suggest that they ought to go back to Hogwarts. But the heat was rising in his face, and he felt as though he would like to skulk down here in the darkness for a long while, before facing the brightness of the atrium above, and the others accusing stares. Have you seen this? said Ron. What? said Harry, but eagerly this time. It had to be a sign that Sirius had been there, a clue. He strode back to where they were all standing, a little way down row 97, but found nothing except Ron staring at one of the dusty glass spheres on the shelves. What? Harry repeated glumly. It's, it's got your name on, said Ron. Harry moved a little closer. Ron was pointing at one of the small glass spheres that glowed with a dull inner light, though it was very dusty and appeared not to have been touched for many years. My name? said Harry blankly. He stepped forward. Not as tall as Ron, he had to crane his neck to read the yellowish label affixed to the shelf right beneath the dusty glass ball. In spidery writing was written a date of some sixteen years previously, and below that, S.P.T. to A.P.W.B.D. Dark Lord and, question mark, Harry Potter. Harry stared at it. What is it? Ron asked, sounding unnerved. What's your name doing down here? He glanced along at the other labels on that stretch of shelf. I'm not here, he said, sounding perplexed. None of the rest of us are here. Harry, I don't think you should touch it, said Hermione sharply as he stretched out his hand. Why not, he said. It's something to do with me, isn't it? Don't, Harry, said Neville suddenly. Harry looked around at him. Neville's round face was shining slightly with sweat. He looked as though he could not take much more suspense. It's got my name on, said Harry. And feeling slightly reckless, he closed his fingers around the dusty ball's surface. He had expected it to feel cold, but it did not. On the contrary, it felt as though it had been lying in the sun for hours, as though the glow of light within was warming it. Expecting, even hoping, that something dramatic was going to happen, something exciting that might make their long and dangerous journey worthwhile after all. He lifted the glass ball down from its shelf and stared at it. Nothing whatsoever happened. The others moved in closer around Harry, gazing at the orb as he brushed it free of the clogging dust. And then, from right behind them, a drawling voice said, Very good, Potter. Now turn around, nice and slowly, and give that to me. Chapter 35 Beyond the Veil Black shapes were emerging out of thin air all around them, blocking their way left and right. Eyes glinted through slits in hoods. A dozen lit wand tips were pointing directly at their hearts. Ginny gave a gasp of horror. 
to me, Potter, repeated the drawling voice of Lucius Malfoy as he held out his hand, palm up. Harry's insides plummeted sickeningly. They were trapped and outnumbered two to one. To me, said Malfoy yet again. Where's Sirius? Harry said. Several of the Death Eaters laughed. A harsh female voice from the midst of the shadowy figures to Harry's left said triumphantly, The Dark Lord always knows! Always, echoed Malfoy softly. Now give me the prophecy, Potter. I want to know where Sirius is. I want to know where Sirius is, mimicked the woman to his left. She and her fellow Death Eaters had closed in so that they were mere feet away from Harry and the others, the light from their wands dazzling Harry's eyes. You've got him, said Harry, ignoring the rising panic in his chest, the dread he had been fighting since they had first entered the ninety-seventh row. He's here! I know he is! The little baby woke up frightened and thought what he dreamed was true, said the woman in a horrible mock-baby voice. Harry felt Ron stir beside him. Don't do anything, he muttered. Not yet. The woman who had mimicked him let out a raucous scream of laughter. You hear him? You hear him? Giving instructions to the other children as though he thinks of fighting us. Oh, you don't know Potter as I do, Bellatrix, said Malfoy softly. He has a great weakness for heroics. The Dark Lord understands this about him. Now give me the prophecy, Potter. I know Sirius is here, said Harry, though panic was causing his chest to constrict, and he felt as though he could not breathe properly. I know you've got him! More of the Death Eaters laughed, though the woman still laughed loudest of all. It's time you learned the difference between life and dreams, Potter, said Malfoy. Now give me the prophecy, or we start using wands. Go on, then, said Harry, raising his own wand to chest height. As he did so, the five wands of Ron, Hermione, Neville, Ginny, and Luna rose on either side of him. The knot in Harry's stomach tightened. If Sirius really was not here, he had led his friends to their deaths for no reason at all. But the Death Eaters did not strike. Hand over the prophecy and no one need get hurt, said Malfoy coolly. It was Harry's turn to laugh. Yeah, right, he said. I give you this prophecy, is it? And you'll just let us skip off home, will you? The words were hardly out of his mouth when the female Death Eater shrieked, I see you, prof! Harry was just ready for her. He shouted, Protego! before she had finished her spell, and though the glass sphere slipped to the tips of his fingers, he managed to cling on to it. Oh, he knows how to play, little bitty baby Potter, she said, her mad eyes staring through the slits in her hood. Very well, then. I told you no! Lucius Malfoy roared at the woman. If you smash it! Harry's mind was racing. The Death Eaters wanted this dusty spun-glass sphere. He had no interest in it. He just wanted to get them all out of this alive, make sure that none of his friends paid a terrible price for his stupidity. The woman stepped forward, away from her fellows, and pulled off her hood. Azkaban had hollowed Bellatrix Lestrange's face, making it gaunt and skull-like, but it was alive with a feverish, fanatical glow. You need more persuasion, she said, her chest rising and falling rapidly. Very well, take the smallest one. She ordered the Death Eaters beside her. Let him watch while we torture the little girl. I'll do it. Harry felt the others close in around Ginny. 
He stepped sideways so that he was right in front of her, the prophecy held up to his chest. You'll have to smash this if you want to attack any of us, he told Bellatrix. I don't think your boss will be too pleased if you come back without it, will he? She did not move. She merely stared at him, the tip of her tongue moistening her thin mouth. So, said Harry, what kind of prophecy are we talking about anyway? He could not think what to do but to keep talking. Neville's arm was pressed against his, and he could feel him shaking. He could feel one of the others quickened breath on the back of his head. He was hoping they were all thinking hard about ways to get out of this, because his mind was blank. What kind of prophecy? repeated Bellatrix, the grin fading from her face. You jest, Harry Potter. Nope, not jesting, said Harry, his eyes flicking from Death Eater to Death Eater, looking for a weak link, a space through which they could escape. How come Voldemort wants it? Several of the Death Eaters let out low hisses. You dare speak his name? whispered Bellatrix. Yeah, said Harry, maintaining his tight grip on the glass ball, expecting another attempt to bewitch it from him. Yeah, I've got no problem saying Vol. Shut your mouth! Bellatrix shrieked. You dare speak his name with your unworthy lips? You dare besmirch it with your half-blood's tongue? You dare? Did you know he's a half-blood, too? said Harry recklessly. Hermione gave a little moan in his ear. Voldemort? Yeah. His mother was a witch, but his dad was a muggle. Or has he been telling you lot he's pure blood? Stupid No! A jet of red light had shot from the end of Bellatrix Lestrange's wand, but Malfoy had deflected it. His spell caused hers to hit the shelf a foot to the left of Harry, and several of the glass orbs there shattered. Two figures, pearly white as ghosts, fluid as smoke, unfurled themselves from the fragments of broken glass upon the floor, and each began to speak. Their voices vied with each other so that only fragments of what they were saying could be heard over Malfoy and Bellatrix's shouts. At the solstice will come anew, said the figure of an old bearded man. Do not attack! We need the prophecy! He dared! He dares! shrieked Bellatrix incoherently. He stands there, filthy half-blood! Wait until we've got the prophecy, bawled Malfoy. And none will come after, said the figure of a young woman. The two figures that had burst from the shattered spheres had melted into thin air. Nothing remained of them or their erstwhile homes but fragments of glass upon the floor. They had, however, given Harry an idea. The problem was going to be conveying it to the others. You haven't told me what's so special about this prophecy I'm supposed to be handing over, he said, playing for time. He moved his foot slowly sideways, feeling around for someone else's. Do not play games with us, Potter, said Malfoy. I'm not playing games, said Harry, half his mind on the conversation, half on his wandering foot. And then he found someone's toes and pressed down upon them. A sharp intake of breath behind him told him they were Hermione's. What? she whispered. Dumbledore never told you that the reason you bear that scar was hidden in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries, said Malfoy sneeringly. I... what? said Harry, and for a moment he quite forgot his plan. What about my scar? What? whispered Hermione more urgently behind him. Can this be? said Malfoy, sounding maliciously delighted. Some of the Death Eaters were laughing again, and under cover of their laughter, Harry hissed to Hermione, moving his lips as little as possible. Smash shelves, 
Dumbledore never told you, Malfoy repeated. Well, this explains why you didn't come earlier, Potter. The Dark Lord wondered why. When I say go, you didn't come running when he showed you the place where it was hidden in your dreams. He thought natural curiosity would make you want to hear the exact wording. Did he? said Harry. Behind him he felt, rather than heard, Hermione passing his message to the others, and he sought to keep talking, to distract the Death Eaters. So he wanted me to come and get it, did he? Why? Why? Malfoy sounded incredulously delighted. Because the only people who are permitted to retrieve a prophecy from the Department of Mysteries, Potter, are those about whom it was made as the Dark Lord discovered when he attempted to use others to steal it for him. And why did he want to steal a prophecy about me? About both of you, Potter. About both of you. Haven't you ever wondered why the Dark Lord tried to kill you as a baby? Harry stared into the slitted eye holes through which Malfoy's grey eyes were gleaming. Was this prophecy the reason Harry's parents had died? The reason he carried his lightning bolt scar? was the answer to all of this clutched in his hand. Someone made a prophecy about Voldemort and me, he said quietly, gazing at Lucius Malfoy, his fingers tightening over the warm glass sphere in his hand. It was hardly larger than a snitch and still gritty with dust. And he's made me come and get it for him? Why couldn't he come and get it himself? Get it himself, shrieked Bellatrix on a cackle of mad laughter. The Dark Lord walk into the Ministry of Magic when they are so sweetly ignoring his return. The Dark Lord reveal himself to the Auros when at the moment they are wasting their time on my dear cousin. So he's got you doing his dirty work for him, has he? said Harry. Like he tried to get Sturgis to steal it and bowed. Very good, Potter. Very good, said Malfoy slowly. But the Dark Lord knows you are not unintel. Now! yelled Harry. Five different voices behind him bellowed. Reducto! Five curses flew in five different directions, and the shelves opposite them exploded as they hit. The towering structure swayed as a hundred glass spheres burst apart. Pearly white figures unfurled into the air and floated there, their voices echoing from who knew what long-dead past amid the torrent of crashing glass and splintered wood now raining down upon the floor. Run! Harry yelled, and as the shelves swayed precariously and more glass spheres began to pour from above, he seized a handful of Hermione's robes and dragged her forward, one arm over his head, as chunks of shelf and shards of glass thundered down upon them. A Death Eater lunged forward through the cloud of dust, and Harry elbowed him hard in the masked face. They were all yelling. There were cries of pain, thunderous crashes as the shelves collapsed upon themselves, weirdly echoing fragments of the seers unleashed from their spheres. Harry found the way ahead clear and saw Ron, Ginny, and Luna sprint past him, their arms over their heads. Something heavy struck him on the side of the face, but he merely ducked his head and sprinted onward. A hand caught him by the shoulder. He heard Hermione shout, Stupefy! and the hand released him at once. They were at the end of row 97. Harry turned right and began to sprint in earnest. He could hear footsteps right behind him and Hermione's voice urging Neville on. The door through which they had come was ajar straight ahead. Harry could see the glittering light of the bell jar. He pelted through it, the prophecy still clutched tight and safe in his hand, waited for the others to hurtle over the threshold before slamming the door behind them. Colo Portus! 
gasped Hermione, and the door sealed itself with an odd, squelching noise. Where, where are the others? gasped Harry. He had thought that Ron, Luna, and Ginny had been ahead of them, that they would be waiting in this room, but there was nobody there. They must have gone the wrong way, whispered Hermione, terror in her face. Listen, whispered Neville. Footsteps and shouts echoed from behind the door they had just sealed. Harry put his ear close to the door to listen, and heard Lucius Malfoy roar, Leave not! Leave him, I say! The Dark Lord will not care for Nott's injuries as much as losing that prophecy! Jugson, come back here! We need to organize. We'll split into pairs and search. And don't forget, be gentle with Potter until we've got the prophecy. You can kill the others if necessary. Bellatrix, Rodolphus, you take the left. Crab, Rabastan, go right. Jugson, Dolohov, the door straight ahead. McNair and Avery, through here. Rookwood, over there. Malsiba, come with me. What do we do? Hermione asked Harry, trembling from head to foot. Well, we don't stand here waiting for them to find us for a start, said Harry. Let's get away from this door. They ran quietly as they could, past the shimmering bell jar, where the tiny egg was hatching and unhatching, toward the exit into the circular hallway at the far end of the room. They were almost there when Harry heard something large and heavy collide with the door Hermione had charmed shut. Stand aside, said a rough voice. Aloha, Mora! As the door flew open, Harry, Hermione, and Neville dived under desks. They could see the bottom of two Death Eaters' robes drawing nearer, their feet moving rapidly. They might have run straight through to the hall, said the rough voice. Check under the desks, said another. Harry saw the knees of the Death Eaters bend. Poking his wand out from under the desk, he shouted, Stupefy! A jet of red light hit the nearest Death Eater. He fell backward into a grandfather clock and knocked it over. The second Death Eater, however, had leapt aside to avoid Harry's spell, and now pointed his own wand at Hermione, who had crawled out from under the desk to get a better aim. Havada! Harry launched himself across the floor and grabbed the Death Eater around the knees, causing him to topple and his aim to go awry. Neville overturned his desk in his anxiety to help. Pointing his wand wildly at the struggling pair, he cried, Expelliarmus! Both Harry's and the Death Eater's wands flew out of their hands and soared back toward the entrance to the Hall of Prophecy. Both scrambled to their feet and charged after them, the Death Eater in front and Harry hot on his heels. Neville bringing up the rear, plainly horror-struck at what he had done. Get out of the way, Harry! yelled Neville, clearly determined to repair the damage. Harry flung himself sideways as Neville took aim again and shouted, Stupefy! The jet of red light flew right over the Death Eater's shoulder and hit a glass-fronted cabinet on the wall full of variously shaped hourglasses. The cabinet fell to the floor and burst apart, glass flying everywhere, then sprang back onto the wall, fully mended, then fell down again and shattered. The Death Eater had snatched up his wand, which lay on the floor beside the glittering bell jar. Harry ducked down behind another desk as the man turned. His mask had slipped so that he could not see. He ripped it off with his free hand and shouted, Stoop! Stupefy! screamed Hermione, who had just caught up with them. The jet of red light hit the Death Eater in the middle of his chest. He froze, his arms still raised, his wand fell to the floor with a clatter, and he collapsed backward toward the bell jar. Harry expected to hear a clunk for the man to hit solid glass and slide off the jar onto the floor, but instead his head sank through the surface of the bell jar as though it was nothing but a soap bubble, and he came to rest, 
sprawled on his back on the table, with his head lying inside the jar full of glittering wind. Athia wand! cried Hermione. Harry's wand flew from a dark corner into her hand, and she threw it to him. Thanks, he said. Right, let's get out of— Look out! said Neville, horrified, staring at the Death Eater's head in the bell jar. All three of them raised their wands again, but none of them struck. They were all gazing, open-mouthed, appalled at what was happening to the man's head. It was shrinking very fast, growing balder and balder, the black hair and stubble retracting into his skull, his cheeks smooth, his skull round and covered with a peach-like fuzz. A baby's head now sat grotesquely on top of the thick, muscled neck of the Death Eater as he struggled to get up again. But even as they watched their mouths open, the head began to swell to its previous proportions again. Thick black hair was sprouting from the pate and chin. It's time, said Hermione in an awestruck voice. Time. The Death Eater shook his ugly head again, trying to clear it. But before he could pull himself together again, it began to shrink back to babyhood once more. There was a shout from a room nearby, then a crash and a scream. Ron? Harry yelled, turning quickly from the monstrous transformation taking place before them. Ginny? Luna? Harry? Hermione screamed. The Death Eater had pulled his head out of the bell jar. His appearance was utterly bizarre, his tiny baby's head bawling loudly while his thick arms flailed dangerously in all directions, narrowly missing Harry, who ducked. Harry raised his wand, but to his amazement Hermione seized his arm. You can't hurt a baby. There was no time to argue the point. Harry could hear more footsteps growing louder from the hall of prophecy they had just left, and knew, too late, that he ought not to have shouted and given away their position. Come on, he said again, and leaving the ugly baby-headed Death Eater staggering behind them, they took off for the door that stood ajar at the other end of the room, leading back into the black hallway. They had run halfway toward it when Harry saw through the open door two more Death Eaters running across the black room toward them. Veering left, he burst instead into a small, dark, cluttered office and slammed the door behind them. Kalu! began Hermione. But before she could complete the spell, the door had burst open again, and the two Death Eaters had come hurtling inside. With a cry of triumph, both yelled, Impedimenta! Harry, Hermione, and Neville were all knocked backward off their feet. Neville was thrown over the desk and disappeared from view. Hermione smashed into a bookcase and was promptly deluged in a cascade of heavy books. The back of Harry's head slammed into a stone wall behind him. Tiny lights burst in front of his eyes and for a moment he was too dizzy and bewildered to react. We've got him! yelled the Death Eater nearest Harry. In an office off! Silencio! cried Hermione, and the man's voice was extinguished. He continued to mouth through the hole in his mask, but no sound came out. He was thrust aside by his fellow. Petrificus Totalus! shouted Harry, as the second Death Eater raised his wand. His arms and legs snapped together, and he fell forward, face down onto the rugged Harry's feet, stiff as a board and unable to move at all. Well done, ha But the Death Eater Hermione had just struck dumb made a sudden slashing movement with his wand, from which flew a streak of what looked like purple flame. It passed right across Hermione's chest. She gave a tiny, oh, as though of surprise, and then crumpled onto the floor where she lay motionless. Hermione! Harry fell to his knees beside her as Neville crawled rapidly toward her from under the desk, his wand held up in front of him. 
The Death Eater kicked out hard at Neville's head as he emerged. His foot broke Neville's wand in two and connected with his face. Neville gave a howl of pain and recoiled, clutching his mouth and nose. Harry twisted around, his own wand held high, and saw that the Death Eater had ripped off his mask and was pointing his wand directly at Harry, who recognized the long, pale, twisted face from the Daily Prophet. Antonin Dolohov, the wizard who had murdered the Pruitts. Dolohov grinned. With his free hand, he pointed from the prophecy still clutched in Harry's hand to himself, then at Hermione. Though he could no longer speak, his meaning could not have been clearer. Give me the prophecy, or you get the same as her. Like you won't kill us all the moment I hand it over anyway, said Harry. A whine of panic inside his head was preventing him thinking properly. He had one hand on Hermione's shoulder, which was still warm, yet did not dare look at her properly. Don't let her be dead. Don't let her be dead. It's my fault if she's dead. Whatever you do, Harry, said Neville fiercely from under the desk, lowering his hands to show a clearly broken nose and blood pouring down his mouth and chin. Don't give it to him. Then there was a crash outside the door, and Olohoff looked over his shoulder. The baby-headed Death Eater had appeared in the doorway, his head bawling, his great fists still flailing uncontrollably at everything around him. Harry seized his chance. Petrificus Totalus! The spell hit Dolohoff before he could block it, and he toppled forward across his comrade, both of them rigid as boards and unable to move an inch. Hermione, Harry said at once, shaking her as the baby-headed Death Eater blundered out of sight again. Hermione, wake up! What did he do to her? said Neville, crawling out from under the desk again to kneel at her other side, blood streaming from his rapidly swelling nose. I don't know. Neville groped for Hermione's wrist. That's a pulse, Harry. I'm sure it is. Such a powerful wave of relief swept through Harry that for a moment he felt light-headed. She's alive? Yeah, I think so. There was a pause in which Harry listened hard for the sounds of more footsteps but all he could hear were the whimpers and blunderings of the baby Death Eater in the next room. Neville, we're not far from the exit, Harry whispered. We're right next to that circular room. If we can just get you across it and find the right door before any more Death Eaters come, I'll bet you can get Hermione up the corridor and into the lift. Then you could find someone, raise the alarm. And what are you going to do? said Neville, mopping his bleeding nose with his sleeve and frowning at Harry. I've got to find the others said Harry. Well, I'm going to find them with you, said Neville firmly. But Hermione... We'll take her with us, said Neville firmly. I'll carry her. You're better at fighting than I am. He stood up and seized one of Hermione's arms, glared at Harry, who hesitated, then grabbed the other and helped hoist Hermione's limp form over Neville's shoulders. Wait, said Harry, snatching up Hermione's wand from the floor and shoving it into Neville's hand. You'd better take this. Neville kicked aside the broken fragments of his own wand as they walked slowly toward the door. My grand's gonna kill me, said Neville thickly, blood spattering from his nose as he spoke. That was my dad's old wand. Harry stuck his head out of the door and looked around cautiously. The baby-headed Death Eater was screaming and banging into things, toppling grandfather clocks and overturning desks, bawling and confused. While the glass cabinet that Harry now suspected had contained time-turners continued to fall, shatter, and repair itself on the wall behind them. He's never going to notice us, he whispered. Come on, keep close behind me. 
They crept out of the office and back toward the door into the black hallway, which now seemed completely deserted. They walked a few steps forward, Neville tottering slightly due to Hermione's weight. The door of the time room swung shut behind them, and the walls began to rotate once more. The recent blow on the back of Harry's head seemed to have unsteadied him. He narrowed his eyes, swaying slightly, until the walls stopped moving again. With a sinking heart, Harry saw that Hermione's fiery crosses had faded from the doors. So which way do you wreck? But before they could make a decision as to which way to try, a door to their right sprang open, and three people fell out of it. Run! croaked Harry, dashing toward them. Ginny! Are you all— Harry! said Ron giggling weakly, lurching forward, seizing the front of Harry's robes, and gazing at him with unfocused eyes. There you are! Ha ha ha! You look funny, Harry. You're all messed up. Ron's face was very white, and something dark was trickling from the corner of his mouth. Next moment his knees had given way, but he still clutched the front of Harry's robes, so that Harry was pulled into a kind of bow. Ginny? Harry said fearfully. What happened? But Ginny shook her head and slid down the wall into a sitting position, panting and holding her ankle. I think her ankle's broken. I heard something crack, whispered Luna, who was bending over her and who alone seemed to be unhurt. Four of them chased us into a dark room full of planets. It was a very odd place. Some of the time we were just floating in the dark. Harry, we saw Uranus up close said Ron, still giggling feebly. Get it, Harry? We saw Uranus. Ha, ha, ha. A bubble of blood grew at the corner of Ron's mouth and burst. Anyway, one of them grabbed Ginny's foot. I used the reductor curse and blew up Pluto in his face, but... Luna gestured hopelessly at Ginny, who was breathing in a very shallow way, her eyes still closed. And what about Ron? said Harry fearfully, as Ron continued to giggle, still hanging off the front of Harry's robes. I don't know what they hit him with, said Luna sadly, but he's gone a bit funny. I could hardly get him along at all. Harry, said Ron, pulling Harry's ear down to his mouth and still giggling weakly. You know who this girl is, Harry. She's loony, loony lovegood. Ha ha! We've got to get out of here, said Harry firmly. Luna, can you help Ginny? Yes, said Luna, sticking her wand behind her ear for safekeeping, putting an arm around Ginny's waist and pulling her up. It's only my ankle. I can do it myself, said Ginny impatiently, but next moment she had collapsed sideways and grabbed Luna for support. Harry pulled Ron's arm over his shoulder just as, so many months ago, he had pulled Dudley's. He looked around. They had a one-in-twelve chance of getting the exit right the first time. He heaved Ron toward a door. They were within a few feet of it, when another door across the hall burst open and three Death Eaters sped into the hall, led by Bellatrix Lestrange. There they are! she shrieked. Stunning spells shot across the room. Harry smashed his way through the door ahead, flung Ron unceremoniously from him, and ducked back to help Neville in with Hermione. They were all over the threshold just in time to slam the door against Bellatrix. Coloportus! shouted Harry, and he heard three bodies slam into the door on the other side. It doesn't matter, said a man's voice, 
There are other ways in. We've got them. They're here. Harry spun around. They were back in the brain room, and sure enough, there were doors all around the walls. He could hear footsteps in the hall behind them as more Death Eaters came running to join the first. Luna, Neville, help me. The three of them tore around the room, sealing the doors as they went. Harry crashed into a table and rolled over the top of it in his haste to reach the next door. Coloportus! There were footsteps running along behind the doors. Every now and then another heavy body would launch itself against one, so it creaked and shuddered. Luna and Neville were bewitching the doors along the opposite wall. Then, as Harry reached the very top of the room, he heard Luna cry, Colo! Ah! He turned in time to see her flying through the air. Five Death Eaters were surging into the room through the door she had not reached in time. Luna hit her desk, slid over its surface and onto the floor on the other side, where she lay sprawled, as still as Hermione. Get Potter! shrieked Bellatrix, and she ran at him. He dodged her and sprinted back up the room. He was safe as long as they thought they might hit the prophecy. Hey! said Ron, who had staggered to his feet and was now tottering drunkenly toward Harry, giggling. Hey, Harry, there are brains in here. <laughs> Isn't that weird, Harry? Ron, get out of the way. Get down. But Ron had already pointed his wand at the tank. Honest, Harry, they're brains. Look, I see brain. The scene seemed momentarily frozen. Harry, Ginny, and Neville and each of the Death Eaters turned in spite of themselves to watch the top of the tank as a brain burst from the green liquid like a leaping fish. For a moment it seemed suspended in midair, then it soared toward Ron, spinning as it came, and what looked like ribbons of moving images flew from it, unraveling like rolls of film. Ha ha ha, Harry, look at it, said Ron, watching it disgorge its gaudy innards. Harry, come and touch it. Bet it's weird. Ron, no! Harry did not know what would happen if Ron touched the tentacles of thought, now flying behind the brain, but he was sure it would not be anything good. He darted forward, but Ron had already caught the brain in his outstretched hands. The moment they made contact with his skin, the tentacles began wrapping themselves around Ron's arms like ropes. Harry, look what's happened. No, no. I don't like it. No, stop! Stop! But the thin ribbons were spinning around Ron's chest now. He tugged and tore at them as the brain was pulled tight against him, like an octopus's body. Defindo! yelled Harry, trying to sever the feelers wrapping themselves tightly around Ron before his eyes, but they would not break. Ron fell over, still thrashing against his bonds. Harry, it'll suffocate him! screamed Ginny, immobilized by her broken ankle on the floor. Then a jet of red light flew from one of the Death Eater's wands and hit her squarely in the face. She keeled over sideways and lay there unconscious. Stupefy! shouted Neville, wheeling around and waving Hermione's wand at the oncoming Death Eaters. Stupefy! Stupefy! But nothing happened. One of the Death Eaters shot their own stunning spell at Neville. It missed him by inches. Harry and Neville were now the only two left fighting the five Death Eaters, two of whom sent streams of silver light like arrows past them that left craters in the wall behind them. Harry ran for it as Bellatrix Lestrange sprinted right at him. Holding the prophecy high above his head, he sprinted back up the room. 
All he could think of doing was to draw the Death Eaters away from the others. It seemed to have worked. They streaked after him, knocking chairs and tables flying, but not daring to bewitch him in case they hurt the prophecy. And he dashed through the only door still open, the one through which the Death Eaters themselves had come. Inwardly praying that Neville would stay with Ron, find some way of releasing him, he ran a few feet into the new room and felt the floor vanish. He was falling down steep stone step after steep stone step, bouncing on every tier until at last, with a crash that knocked all the breath out of his body, he landed flat on his back in the sunken pit where the stone archway stood on its dais. The whole room was ringing with the Death Eater's laughter. He looked up and saw the five who had been in the brain room descending toward him, while as many more emerged through other doorways and began leaping from bench to bench toward him. Harry got to his feet, though his legs were trembling so badly they barely supported him. The prophecy was still miraculously unbroken in his left hand, his wand clutched tightly in his right. He backed away, looking around, trying to keep all the Death Eaters within his sights. The back of his legs hit something solid. He had reached the dais where the archway stood. He climbed backward onto it. The Death Eaters all halted, gazing at him. Some were panting as hard as he was. One was bleeding badly. Dolohov, freed of the full-body bind, was leering, his wand pointing straight at Harry's face. "'Potter, your race is run,' drawled Lucius Malfoy, pulling off his mask. "'Now hand me the prophecy like a good boy.' "'Let, let the others go, and I'll give it to you,' said Harry desperately. A few of the Death Eaters laughed. "'You are not in a position to bargain, Potter,' said Lucius Malfoy, his pale face flushed with pleasure. "'You see, there are ten of us and only one of you. "'Or hasn't Dumbledore ever taught you how to count?' "'He's not alone!' shouted a voice from above them. "'He's still got me!' Harry's heart sank. Neville was scrambling down the stone benches toward them, Hermione's wand held fast in his trembling hand. "'Neville, no!' Go back to Ron! Stupefy! Neville shouted again, pointing his wand at each Death Eater in turn. Stupefy! Stupor! One of the largest Death Eaters seized Neville from behind, pinioning his arms to his sides. He struggled and kicked. Several of the Death Eaters laughed. It's Longbottom, isn't it? sneered Lucius Malfoy. Well, your grandmother is used to losing family members to our cause. Your death will not come as a great shock. Longbottom, repeated Bellatrix, and a truly evil smile lit her gaunt face. Why, I have had the pleasure of meeting your parents, boy. I do, you have, roared Neville, and he fought so hard against his captor's encircling grip that the Death Eater shouted, Someone stun him! No, 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 said Bellatrix. She looked transported, alive with excitement as she glanced at Harry, then back at Neville. No! Let's see how long Longbottom lasts before he cracks like his parents. Unless Potter wants to give us the prophecy. Don't give it to them! roared Neville, who seemed beside himself, kicking and writhing as Bellatrix drew nearer to him and his captor, her wand raised. Don't give it to them, Harry! Bellatrix raised her wand. Crucio! Neville screamed, his legs drawn up to his chest so that the Death Eater holding him was momentarily holding him off the ground. The Death Eater dropped him, and he fell to the floor, twitching and screaming in agony. That was just a teaster, 
said Bellatrix, raising her wand so that Neville's scream stopped, and he lay sobbing at her feet. She turned and gazed up at Harry. Now, Potter, either give us the prophecy or watch your little friend die the hard way. Harry did not have to think. There was no choice. The prophecy was hot with the heat from his clutching hand as he held it out. Malfoy jumped forward to take it. Then high above them, two more doors burst open and five more pupils sprinted into the room. Sirius, Lupin, Moody, Tonks, and Kingsley. Malfoy turned and raised his wand, but Tonks had already sent a stunning spell right at him. Harry did not wait to see whether it had made contact, but dived off the dais out of the way. The Death Eaters were completely distracted by the appearance of the members of the Order, who were now raining spells down upon them as they jumped from step to step toward the sunken floor. Through the darting bodies, the flashes of light, Harry could see Neville crawling along. He dodged another jet of red light and flung himself flat on the ground to reach Neville. Are you okay? he yelled as another spell soared inches over their heads. Yes, said Neville, trying to pull himself up. And Ron? I think he's all right. He was still fighting the brain when I left. The stone floor between them exploded as a spell hit it, leaving a crater right where Neville's hand had been seconds before. Both scrambled away from the spot. Then a thick arm came out of nowhere, seized Harry around the neck, and pulled him upright so that his toes were barely touching the floor. Give it to me, growled a voice in his ear. Give me the prophecy. The man was pressing so tightly on Harry's windpipe that he could not breathe. Through watering eyes, he saw Sirius, dueling with a Death Eater some ten feet away. Kingsley was fighting two at once. Tonks, still halfway up the tiered seats, was firing spells down at Bellatrix. Nobody seemed to realize that Harry was dying. He turned his wand backward toward the man's side, but had no breath to utter an incantation, and the man's free hand was groping toward the hand in which Harry was grasping the prophecy. Ah! Neville had come lunging out of nowhere. Unable to articulate a spell, he had jabbed Hermione's wand hard into the eyehole of the Death Eater's mask. The man relinquished Harry at once with a howl of pain, and Harry whirled around to face him and gasped, Stupefy! The Death Eater keeled over backward, and his mask slipped off. It was McNair, Buckbeak's would-be killer, one of his eyes now swollen and bloodshot. Thanks! Harry said to Neville, pulling him aside as Sirius and his Death Eater lurched past, dueling so fiercely that their wands were blurs. Then Harry's foot made contact with something round and hard, and he slipped. For a moment he thought he had dropped the prophecy, then saw Moody's magic eyes spinning away across the floor. His owner was lying on his side, bleeding from the head, and his attacker was now bearing down upon Harry and Neville. Dolohov, his long, pale face twisted with glee. Tarantalegra, he shouted, his wand pointing at Neville, whose legs went immediately into a kind of frenzied tap dance, unbalancing him and causing him to fall to the floor again. Now, Potter. He made the same slashing movement with his wand that he had used on Hermione, just as Harry yelled, Protego! Harry felt something streak across his face like a blunt knife, but the force of it knocked him sideways, and he fell over Neville's jerking legs but the shield charm had stopped the worst of the spell. Dolohoff raised his wand again. Asio Prof! Sirius hurtled out of nowhere, rammed Dolohoff with his shoulder, and sent him flying out of the way. The prophecy had again flown to the tips of Harry's fingers, but he had managed to cling to it. 
Now Sirius and Dolohov were dueling, their wands flashing like swords, sparks flying from their wand tips. Dolohov drew back his wand to make the same slashing movement he had used on Harry and Hermione. Springing up, Harry yelled, Petrificus Totalus! Once again, Dolohov's arms and legs snapped together, and he keeled over backward, landing with a crash on his back. Nice one, shouted Sirius, forcing Harry's head down as a pair of stunning spells flew toward them. Now I want you to get out of... They both ducked again. A jet of green light had narrowly missed Sirius. Across the room, Harry saw Tonks fall from halfway up the stone steps, her limp form toppling from stone seat to stone seat, and Bellatrix triumphant running back toward the fray. Harry, take the prophecy! Grab Neville and run! Sirius yelled, dashing to meet Bellatrix. Harry did not see what happened next. Kingsley swayed across his field of vision, battling with the pock-marked Rookwood, now maskless. Another jet of green light flew over Harry's head as he launched himself toward Neville. Can you stand? he bellowed in Neville's ear as Neville's legs jerked and twitched uncontrollably. Put your arm around my neck. Neville did so. Harry heaved. Neville's legs were still flying in every direction. They would not support him, and then, out of nowhere, a man lunged at them. Both fell backward, Neville's legs waving wildly like an overturned beetle's. Harry, with his left arm held up in the air, to try and save the small glass ball from being smashed. The prophecy, give me the prophecy, Potter, snarled Lucius Malfoy's voice in his ear, and Harry felt the tip of Malfoy's wand pressing hard between his ribs. No, get off me! Neville, catch it! Harry flung the prophecy across the floor. Neville spun himself around on his back and scooped the ball to his chest. Malfoy pointed the wand instead at Neville, but Harry jabbed his own one back over his shoulder and yelled, Impedimenta! Malfoy was blasted off his back. As Harry scrambled up again, he looked around and saw Malfoy smash into the dais on which Sirius and Bellatrix were now dueling. Malfoy aimed his wand at Harry and Neville again, but before he could draw breath to strike, Lupin had jumped between them. Harry, round up the others and go! Harry seized Neville by the shoulder of his robes, and lifted him bodily onto the first tier of stone steps. Neville's legs twitched and jerked and would not support his weight. Harry heaved again with all the strength he possessed, and they climbed another step. A spell hit the stone bench at Harry's heel. It crumbled away, and he fell back to the step below. Neville sank to the ground, his legs still jerking and thrashing, and thrust the prophecy into his pocket. Come on, said Harry desperately, hauling at Neville's robes. Just try and push with your legs. He gave another stupendous heave, and Neville's robes tore all along the left seam. The small spun glass ball dropped from his pocket, and before either of them could catch it, one of Neville's floundering feet kicked it. It flew some ten feet to their right and smashed on the step beneath them. As both of them stared at the place where it had broken, appalled at what had happened, a pearly white figure with hugely magnified eyes rose into the air, unnoticed by any but them. Harry could see its mouth moving, but in all the crashes and screams and yells surrounding them, not one word of the prophecy could he hear. The figure stopped speaking and dissolved into nothingness. Harry, I'm sorry, cried Neville, his face anguished as his legs continued to flounder. I'm so sorry, Harry. I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter, Harry shouted. Just try and stand. Let's get out of... Double door.
said Neville, his sweaty face suddenly transported, staring over Harry's shoulder. What? Dumbledore! Harry turned to look where Neville was staring. Directly above them, framed in the doorway from the brain room, stood Albus Dumbledore, his wand aloft, his face white and furious. Harry felt a kind of electric charge surge through every particle of his body. They were saved. Dumbledore sped down the steps past Neville and Harry, who had no more thought of leaving. Dumbledore was already at the foot of the steps when the Death Eaters nearest realized he was there. There were yells. One of the Death Eaters ran for it, scrabbling like a monkey up the stone steps opposite. Dumbledore's spell pulled him back as easily and effortlessly as though he had hooked him with an invisible line. Only one couple was still battling, apparently unaware of the new arrival. Harry saw Sirius duck Bellatrix's jet of red light. He was laughing at her. Come on, you can do better than that, he yelled, his voice echoing around the cavernous room. The second jet of light hit him squarely on the chest. The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. Harry released Neville, though he was unaware of doing so. He was jumping down the steps again, pulling out his wand as Dumbledore turned to the dais too. It seemed to take Sirius an age to fall. His body curved in a graceful arc as he sank backward through the ragged veil hanging from the arch. And Harry saw the look of mingled fear and surprise on his godfather's wasted, once handsome face as he fell through the ancient doorway and disappeared behind the veil, which fluttered for a moment as though in a high wind, and then fell back into place. Harry heard Bellatrix Lestrange's triumphant scream, but knew it meant nothing. Sirius had only just fallen through the archway. He would reappear from the other side any second. But Sirius did not reappear. Sirius! Harry yelled. Sirius! He had reached the floor, his breath coming in searing gasps. Sirius must be just behind the curtain. He, Harry, would pull him back out again. But as he reached the ground and sprinted towards the dais, Lupin grabbed Harry around the chest, holding him back. There's nothing you can do, Harry. Get him! Save him! He's only just gone through! It's too late, Harry. We can still reach him! Harry struggled hard and viciously, but Lupin would not let go. There's nothing you can do, Harry. Nothing. He's gone. Chapter 36 The Only One He Ever Feared He hasn't gone! Harry yelled. He did not believe it. He would not believe it. Still, he fought Lupin with every bit of strength he had. Lupin did not understand. People hid behind that curtain. He had heard them whispering the first time he had entered the room. Sirius was hiding, simply lurking out of sight. Sirius! He bellowed. Sirius! He can't come back, Harry, said Lupin, his voice breaking as he struggled to contain Harry. He can't come back, because he's d He is not dead, roared Harry. Serious! There was movement going on around them, pointless bustling, the flashes of more spells. To Harry it was meaningless noise, the deflected curses flying past them did not matter. Nothing mattered except that Lupin stopped pretending that Sirius, who was standing feet from them behind that old curtain was not going to emerge at any moment, shaking back his dark hair and eager to re-enter the battle. Lupin dragged Harry away from the dais, 
Harry still staring at the archway, angry at Sirius now for keeping him waiting. But some part of him realized, even as he fought to break free from Lupin, that Sirius had never kept him waiting before. Sirius had risked everything always to see Harry to help him. If Sirius was not reappearing out of that archway when Harry was yelling for him as though his life depended on it, the only possible explanation was that he could not come back, that he really was. Dumbledore had most of the remaining Death Eaters grouped in the middle of the room, seemingly immobilized by invisible ropes. Mad-Eye Moody had crawled across the room to where Tonks lay and was attempting to revive her. Behind the dais there were still flashes of light, grunts and cries. Kingsley had run forward to continue Sirius's duel with Bellatrix. Harry? Neville had slid down the stone benches one by one to the place where Harry stood. Harry was no longer struggling against Lupin, who maintained a precautionary grip on his arm nevertheless. Harry, I'm really sorry, said Neville. His legs were still dancing uncontrollably. Was that man, was Sirius back a, a friend of yours? Harry nodded. Here, said Lupin quietly, and pointing his wand at Neville's legs, he said, Finite. The spell was lifted. Neville's legs fell back onto the floor and remained still. Lupin's face was pale. Let's... let's find the others. Where are they all, Neville? Lupin turned away from the archway as he spoke. It sounded as though every word was causing him pain. They're all back there, said Neville. A brain attack Ron, but I think he's all right. And her bone is unconscious, but we could feel a pulse. There was a loud bang and a yell from behind the dais. Harry saw Kingsley yelling in pain hit the ground. Bellatrix Lestrange turned tail and ran as Dumbledore whipped around. He aimed a spell at her, but she deflected it. She was halfway up the steps now. Harry, no! cried Lupin. But Harry had already ripped his arm from Lupin's slackened grip. She killed Sirius! bellowed Harry. She killed him! I'll kill her! And he was off, scrambling up the stone benches. People were shouting behind him, but he did not care. The hem of Bellatrix's robes whipped out of sight ahead, and they were back in the room where the brains were swimming. She aimed a curse over her shoulder. The tank rose into the air and tipped. Harry was deluged in the foul-smelling potion within. The brains slipped and slid over him and began spinning their long-colored tentacles, but he shouted, Wingardium Leviosa! and they flew into the air away from him. Slipping and sliding, he ran on toward the door. He leapt over Luna, who was groaning on the floor, past Ginny, who said, Harry, what? Past Ron, who giggled feebly, and Hermione, who was still unconscious. He wrenched open the door into the circular black hall and saw Bellatrix disappearing through a door on the other side of the room. Beyond her was the corridor leading back to the lifts. He ran... But she had slammed the door behind her, and the walls had begun to rotate again. Once more he was surrounded by streaks of blue light from the whirling candelabra. Where's the exit? he shouted desperately as the wall rumbled to a halt again. Where's the way out? The room seemed to have been waiting for him to ask. The door right behind him flew open, and the corridor toward the lift stretched ahead of him, torch-lit and empty. He ran. He could hear a lift clattering ahead of him. He sprinted up the passageway, swung around the corner, and slammed his fist onto the button to call a second lift. It jangled and banged lower and lower. 
The grills slid open, and Harry dashed inside, now hammering the button-marked atrium. The doors slid shut, and he was rising. He forced his way out of the lift before the grills were fully open and looked around. Bellatrix was almost at the telephone lift at the other end of the hall, but she looked back as he sprinted toward her and aimed another spell at him. He dodged behind the fountain of magical brethren. The spell zoomed past him and hit the wrought gold gates at the other end of the atrium, so that they rang like bells. There were no more footsteps. She had stopped running. He crouched behind the statues, listening. Come out, come out, little Harry, she called in her mock baby voice, which echoed off the polished wooden floors. What did you come after me for, then? I thought you were here to avenge my dear cousin. I am, shouted Harry, and a score of ghostly Harrys seemed to chorus, I am, I am, I am, all around the room. Ah, did you love him, little baby Potter? Hatred rose in Harry such as he had never known before. He flung himself out from behind the fountain and bellowed, Crucio! Bellatrix screamed. The spell had knocked her off her feet, but she did not writhe and shriek with pain as Neville had. She was already on her feet again, breathless, no longer laughing. Harry dodged behind the golden fountain again. Her counterspell hit the head of the handsome wizard, which was blown off and landed twenty feet away, gouging long scratches into the wooden floor. Never used an unforgivable curse before, have you, boy? she yelled. She had abandoned her baby voice now. You need to mean them, Potter. You need to really want to cause pain, to enjoy it. Righteous anger won't hurt me for long. I'll show you how it is done, shall I? I'll give you a lesson. Harry had been edging around the fountain on the other side. She screamed, Crucio! And he was forced to duck down again as the centaur's arm, holding its bow, spun off and landed with a crash on the floor a short distance from the golden wizard's head. Pater, you cannot win against me, she cried. He could hear her moving to the right, trying to get a clear shot of him. He backed around the statue away from her, crouching behind the centaur's legs, his head level with the house elf's. I was and am the Dark Lord's most loyal servant. I learnt the dark arts from him, and I know spells of such power that you, pathetic little boy, can never hope to compete. Stupefy! yelled Harry. He had edged right around to where the goblin stood beaming up at the now headless wizard and taken aim at her back as she peered around the fountain for him. She reacted so fast he barely had time to duck. Protego! The jet of red light, his own stunning spell, bounced back at him. Harry scrambled back behind the fountain, and one of the goblin's ears went flying across the room. Potter, I am going to give you one chance, shouted Bellatrix. Give me the prophecy. Roll it out toward me now, and I may spare your life. Well, you're going to have to kill me, because it's gone, Harry roared. And as he shouted it, pain seared across his forehead. His scar was on fire again, and he felt a surge of fury that was quite unconnected with his own rage. And he knows, said Harry with a mad laugh to match Bellatrix's own. Your dear old mate Voldemort knows it's gone. He's not going to be happy with you, is he? What? What do you mean? She cried, and for the first time there was fear in her voice. The prophecy smashed when I was trying to get Neville up the steps. What do you think Voldemort will say about that then? His scar seared and burned. The pain of it was making his eyes stream. Liar! She shrieked, 
but he could hear the terror behind the anger now. You've got it, Potter, and you will give it to me. I see your prophecy. I see your prophecy. Harry laughed again because he knew it would incense her. The pain building in his head so badly he thought his skull might burst. He waved his empty hand from behind the one-eared goblin and withdrew it quickly as she sent another jet of green light flying at him. Nothing there, he shouted. Nothing to summon. It smashed and nobody heard what it said. Tell your boss that... No, she screamed. It isn't true. You're lying. Master, I tried. I tried. Do not punish me. Don't waste your breath, yelled Harry. His eyes screwed up against the pain in his scar, now more terrible than ever. He can't hear you from here. Can't I, Potter? said a high, cold voice. Harry opened his eyes. Tall, thin, and black-hooded, his terrible snake-like face white and gaunt, his scarlet slit-pupiled eyes staring, Lord Voldemort had appeared in the middle of the hall, his wand pointing at Harry, who stood frozen, quite unable to move. So you smashed my prophecy, said Voldemort softly, staring at Harry with those pitiless red eyes. No, Bella, he is not lying. I see the truth looking at me from within his worthless mind. Months of preparation, months of effort, and my Death Eaters have let Harry Potter thwart me again. Master, I am sorry. I knew not. I was fighting the Animagus Black, sobbed Bellatrix, flinging herself down at Voldemort's feet as he paced slowly nearer. Master, you should know. Be quiet, Bella, said Voldemort dangerously. I shall deal with you in a moment. Do you think I have entered the Ministry of Magic to hear your sniveling apologies? But, Master, he is here. He is below. Voldemort paid no attention. I have nothing more to say to you, Potter, he said quietly. You have irked me too often for too long. Avada Kedavra! Harry had not even opened his mouth to resist. His mind was blank, his wand pointing uselessly at the floor. But the headless golden statue of the wizard in the fountain had sprung alive, leaping from its plinth, and landed on the floor with a crash between Harry and Voldemort. The spell merely glanced off its chest as the statue flung out its arms, protecting Harry. What? said Voldemort, staring around. And then he breathed. Dumbledore. Harry looked behind him, his heart pounding. Dumbledore was standing in front of the golden gates. Voldemort raised his wand and sent another jet of green light at Dumbledore, who turned and was gone in a whirling of his cloak. Next second he had reappeared behind Voldemort and waved his wand toward the remnants of the fountain. The other statues sprang to life, too. The statue of the witch ran at Bellatrix, who screamed and sent spells streaming uselessly off its chest before it dived at her, pinning her to the floor. Meanwhile the goblin and the house-elf scuttled toward the fireplaces set along the wall, and the one-armed centaur galloped at Voldemort, who vanished and reappeared beside the pool. The headless statue thrust Harry backward, away from the fight, as Dumbledore advanced on Voldemort, and the golden centaur cantered around them both. It was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, said Dumbledore calmly. The Aurors are on their way, by which time I shall be gone, and you dead, spat Voldemort. He sent another killing curse at Dumbledore, but missed, instead hitting the security guard's desk, 
which burst into flame. Dumbledore flicked his own wand. The force of the spell that emanated from it was such that Harry, though shielded by his stone guard, felt his hair stand on end as it passed, and this time Voldemort was forced to conjure a shining silver shield out of thin air to deflect it. The spell, whatever it was, caused no visible damage to the shield, though a deep, gong-like note reverberated from it, an oddly chilling sound. "'You do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore,' called Voldemort, his scarlet eyes narrowed over the top of the shield. "'Above such brutality, are you? "'We both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Tom,' Dumbledore said calmly, continuing to walk toward Voldemort as though he had not a fear in the world, as though nothing had happened to interrupt his stroll up the hall. "'Merely taking your life would not satisfy me, I admit. "'There is nothing worse than death, Dumbledore.' snarled Voldemort. "'You are quite wrong,' said Dumbledore, still closing in upon Voldemort, and speaking as lightly as though they were discussing the matter over drinks. Harry felt scared to see him walking along, undefended, shieldless. He wanted to cry out a warning, but his headless guard kept shunting him backward toward the wall, blocking his every attempt to get out from behind it. Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. Another jet of green light flew from behind the silver shield. This time it was the one-armed centaur galloping in front of Dumbledore that took the blast and shattered into a hundred pieces. But before the fragments had even hit the floor, Dumbledore had drawn back his wand and waved it as though brandishing a whip. A long, thin flame flew from the tip. It wrapped itself around Voldemort, shield and all. For a moment, it seemed Dumbledore had won, but then the fiery rope became a serpent, which relinquished its hold upon Voldemort at once and turned, hissing furiously, to face Dumbledore. Voldemort vanished. The snake reared from the floor, ready to strike. There was a burst of flame in midair above Dumbledore, just as Voldemort reappeared, standing on the plinth in the middle of the pool, where so recently the five statues had stood. Look out! Harry yelled. But even as he shouted, one more jet of green light had flown at Dumbledore from Voldemort's wand, and the snake had struck. Fork swooped down in front of Dumbledore, opened his beak wide, and swallowed the jet of green light whole. He burst into flame and fell to the floor, small, wrinkled, and flightless. At the same moment, Dumbledore brandished his wand in one long, fluid movement. The snake, which had been an instant from sinking its fangs into him, flew high into the air and vanished in a wisp of dark smoke. The water in the pool rose up and covered Voldemort, like a cocoon of molten glass. For a few seconds, Voldemort was visible only as a dark, rippling, faceless figure, shimmering and indistinct upon the plinth, clearly struggling to throw off the suffocating mass. Then he was gone, and the water fell with a crash back into its pool slopping wildly over the sides, drenching the polished floor. "'Master!' screamed Bellatrix. Sure it was over, sure Voldemort had decided to flee, Harry made to run out from behind his statue guard, but Dumbledore bellowed, "'Stay where you are, Harry!' For the first time Dumbledore sounded frightened. Harry could not see why. The hall was quite empty but for themselves, the sobbing Bellatrix still trapped under her statue, and the tiny baby forks croaking feebly on the floor. And then Harry's scar burst open. He knew he was dead, 
It was pain beyond imagining, pain past endurance. He was gone from the hall. He was locked in the coils of a creature with red eyes, so tightly bound that Harry did not know where his body ended and the creatures began. They were fused together, bound by pain, and there was no escape. And when the creature spoke, it used Harry's mouth so that in his agony he felt his jaw move. Kill me now, Dumbledore. Blinded and dying, every part of him screaming for release, Harry felt the creature use him again. If death is nothing, Dumbledore, kill the boy. Let the pain stop, thought Harry. Let him kill us. End it, Dumbledore. Death is nothing compared to this. And I'll see Sirius again. And as Harry's heart filled with emotion, the creature's coils loosened. The pain was gone. Harry was lying face down on the floor, his glasses gone, shivering as though he lay upon ice, not wood. And there were voices echoing through the hall, more voices than there should have been. Harry opened his eyes, saw his glasses lying at the heel of the headless statue that had been guarding him, but which now lay flat on its back, cracked and immobile. He put them on and raised his head an inch to find Dumbledore's crooked nose inches from his own. Are you all right, Harry? Yes, said Harry, shaking so violently he could not hold his head up properly. Yeah, I'm... Where's Voldemort? Where... Who are all these... What's... The atrium was full of people. The floor was reflecting emerald green flames that had burst into life in all the fireplaces along one wall, and a stream of witches and wizards was emerging from them. As Dumbledore pulled him back to his feet, Harry saw the tiny gold statues of the house-elf and the goblin leading a stunned-looking Cornelius Fudge forward. He was there! shouted a scarlet-robed man with a ponytail, who was pointing at a pile of golden rubble on the other side of the hall, where Bellatrix had lain trapped moments before. I saw him, Mr. Fudge! I swear! It was you-know-who! He grabbed a woman and disapparated! I know, Williamson, I know! I saw him, too! gibbered Fudge, who was wearing pajamas under his pinstripe cloak and was gasping as though he had just run miles. Merlin's beard! Here! Here! In the Ministry of Magic! Great heavens above! It doesn't seem possible. My word! How can this be? If you proceed downstairs into the Department of Mysteries, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, apparently satisfied that Harry was all right, and walking forward so that the newcomers realized he was there for the first time. A few of them raised their wands, others simply looked amazed. The statues of the elf and goblin applauded, and Fudge jumped so much that his slipper-clad feet left the floor. You will find several escaped Death Eaters contained in the Death Chamber, bound by an anti-disapparation jinx, and awaiting your decision as to what to do with them. Dumbledore! gasped Fudge, apparently beside himself with amazement. You? Here? I? I? He looked wildly around at the aurors he had brought with him, and it could not have been clearer that he was in half a mind to cry, seize him. Cornelius, I am ready to fight your men and win again, said Dumbledore in a thunderous voice. But a few minutes ago you saw proof with your own eyes that I have been telling you the truth for a year. 
Lord Voldemort has returned. You have been chasing the wrong men for twelve months, and it is time you listen to sense. I don't... Well, blustered Fudge, looking around as though hoping somebody was going to tell him what to do. When nobody did, he said, Very well. Dawlish, Williamson, go down to the Department of Mysteries and see. Dumbledore, you... you will need to tell me exactly the Fountain of Magical Brethren. What happened? He added in a kind of whimper, staring around at the floor, where the remains of the statues of the witch, wizard, and centaur now lay scattered. We can discuss that after I have sent Harry back to Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. Harry? Harry Potter? Fudge wheeled around and stared at Harry, who was still standing against the wall beside the fallen statue that had been guarding him during Dumbledore and Voldemort's duel. He? Here? said Fudge, goggling at Harry. Why, what's all this about? I shall explain everything, repeated Dumbledore, when Harry is back at school. He walked away from the pool to the place where the golden wizard's head lay on the floor. He pointed his wand at it and muttered, Portus! The head glowed blue and trembled noisily against the wooden floor for a few seconds, then became still once more. Now see here, Dumbledore, said Fudge, as Dumbledore picked up the head and walked back to Harry, carrying it. You haven't got authorization for that port key. You can't do things like that right in front of the Minister of Magic. You, you... His voice faltered as Dumbledore surveyed him magisterially over his half-moon spectacles. You will give the order to remove Dolores Umbridge from Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. You will tell your Aurors to stop searching for my care of magical creatures, teacher, so that he can return to work. I will give you... Dumbledore pulled a watch with twelve hands from his pocket and surveyed it. Half an hour of my time tonight, in which I think we shall be more than able to cover the important points of what has happened here. After that, I shall need to return to my school. If you need more help from me, you are, of course, more than welcome to contact me at Hogwarts. Letters addressed to the headmaster will find me. Fudge goggled worse than ever. His mouth was open and his round face grew pinker under his rumpled grey hair. I... you... Dumbledore turned his back on him. Take this port key, Harry. He held out the golden head of the statue, and Harry placed his hand upon it past caring what he did next or where he went. I shall see you in half an hour, said Dumbledore quietly. One, two, three. Harry felt the familiar sensation of a hook being jerked behind his navel. The polished wooden floor was gone from beneath his feet. The atrium, fudge, and Dumbledore had all disappeared, and he was flying forward in a whirlwind of color and sound. Chapter 37 The Lost Prophecy Harry's feet hit solid ground again, his knees buckled a little, and the golden wizard's head fell with a resounding clunk to the floor. He looked around and saw that he had arrived in Dumbledore's office. Everything seemed to have repaired itself during the headmaster's absence. The delicate silver instruments stood again upon the spindle-legged tables, puffing and whirring serenely. The portraits of the headmasters and headmistresses were snoozing in their frames, heads lolling back in armchairs or against the edge of their pictures. 
Harry looked through the window. There was a cool line of pale green along the horizon. Dawn was approaching. The silence and the stillness, broken only by the occasional grunt or snuffle of a sleeping portrait, was unbearable to him. If his surroundings could have reflected the feelings inside him, the pictures would have been screaming in pain. He walked around the quiet, beautiful office, breathing quickly, trying not to think. But he had to think. There was no escape. It was his fault Sirius had died. It was all his fault. If he, Harry, had not been stupid enough to fall for Voldemort's trick, if he had not been so convinced that what he had seen in his dream was real, if he had only opened his mind to the possibility that Voldemort was, as Hermione had said, banking on Harry's love of playing the hero. It was unbearable. He would not think about it. He could not stand it. There was a terrible hollow inside him he did not want to feel or examine, a dark hole where Sirius had been, where Sirius had vanished. He did not want to have to be alone with that great silent space. He could not stand it. A picture behind him gave a particularly loud grunting snore, and a cool voice said, Ah, Harry Potter. Phineas Nigellus gave a long yawn, stretching his arms as he surveyed Harry out of shrewd, narrow eyes. And what brings you here in the early hours of the morning? said Phineas. This office is supposed to be barred to all but the rightful headmaster. Or has Dumbledore sent you here? Oh, don't tell me. He gave another shuddering yawn. Another message for my worthless great-great-grandson? Harry could not speak. Phineas Nigellus did not know that Sirius was dead, but Harry could not tell him. To say it aloud would be to make it final, absolute, irretrievable. A few more of the portraits had stirred now. Terror of being interrogated made Harry stride across the room and seize the doorknob. It would not turn. He was shut in. I hope this means said the corpulent red-nosed wizard who hung on the wall behind Dumbledore's desk. The Dumbledore will soon be back with us. Harry turned. The wizard was surveying him with great interest. Harry nodded. He tugged again on the doorknob behind his back, but it remained immovable. Oh, good, said the wizard. It has been very dull without him, very dull indeed. He settled himself on the throne-like chair on which he had been painted and smiled benignly upon Harry. Dumbledore thinks very highly of you, as I am sure you know, he said comfortably. Oh, yes, hold you in great esteem. The guilt filling the whole of Harry's chest like some monstrous weighty parasite now writhed and squirmed. Harry could not stand this. He could not stand being Harry anymore. He had never felt more trapped inside his own head and body, never wished so intensely that he could be somebody, anybody else. The empty fireplace burst into emerald green flame, making Harry leap away from the door, staring at the man spinning inside the grate. As Dumbledore's tall form unfolded itself from the fire, the wizards and witches on the surrounding walls jerked awake. Many of them gave cries of welcome. Thank you, said Dumbledore softly. He did not look at Harry at first, but walked over to the perch beside the door and withdrew from an inside pocket of his robes the tiny, ugly, featherless forks, whom he placed gently on the tray of soft ashes beneath the golden post where the full-grown forks usually stood. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore, finally turning away from the baby bird. 
You will be pleased to hear that none of your fellow students are going to suffer lasting damage from the night's events. Harry tried to say, good, but no sound came out. It seemed to him that Dumbledore was reminding him of the amount of damage he had caused by his actions tonight, and although Dumbledore was for once looking at him directly, and though his expression was kindly rather than accusatory, Harry could not bear to meet his eyes. Madame Pomfrey is patching everybody up now, said Dumbledore. Nymphadora Tonks may need to spend a little time in St. Mungo's, but it seems that she will make a full recovery. Harry contented himself with nodding at the carpet, which was growing lighter as the sky outside grew paler. He was sure that all the portraits around the room were listening closely to every word Dumbledore spoke, wondering where Dumbledore and Harry had been, and why there had been injuries. I know how you are feeling, Harry, said Dumbledore very quietly. No, you don't, said Harry, and his voice was suddenly loud and strong. White-hot anger leapt inside him. Dumbledore knew nothing about his feelings. You see, Dumbledore, said Phineas Nigellus slyly. Never try to understand the students. They hate it. They would much rather be tragically misunderstood, wallow in self-pity, stew in their own... That's enough, Phineas, said Dumbledore. Harry turned his back on Dumbledore and stared determinedly out of the opposite window. He could see the Quidditch Stadium in the distance. Sirius had appeared there once, disguised as the shaggy black dog, so he could watch Harry play. He had probably come to see whether Harry was as good as James had been. Harry had never asked him. There is no shame in what you are feeling, Harry, said Dumbledore's voice. On the contrary, the fact that you can feel pain like this is your greatest strength. Harry felt the white-hot anger lick his insides, blazing in the terrible emptiness, filling him with a desire to hurt Dumbledore for his calmness and his empty words. My greatest strength, is it? said Harry, his voice shaking as he stared out at the Quidditch Stadium, no longer seeing it. You haven't got a clue. You don't know. What don't I know? asked Dumbledore calmly. It was too much. Harry turned around, shaking with rage. I don't want to talk about how I feel, all right? Harry, suffering like this proves you are still a man. This pain is part of being human. Then I don't want to be human, Harry roared and he seized one of the delicate silver instruments from the spindle-legged table beside him and flung it across the room. It shattered into a hundred tiny pieces against the wall. Several of the pictures let out yells of anger and fright, and the portrait of Armando Dippet said, Really? I don't care! Harry yelled at them, snatching up a lunar scope and throwing it into the fireplace. I've had enough! I've seen enough! I want out! I want it to end! I don't care anymore! He seized the table on which the silver instrument had stood and threw that too. It broke apart on the floor and the legs rolled in different directions. You do care, said Dumbledore. He had not flinched or made a single move to stop Harry demolishing his office. His expression was calm, almost detached. You care so much you feel as though you will bleed to death with the pain of it. I don't, Harry screamed so loudly that he felt his throat might tear and for a second he wanted to rush at Dumbledore and break him too, shatter that calm old face, shake him, hurt him, make him feel some tiny part of the horror inside Harry. Oh, yes, you do, said Dumbledore, still more calmly. You have now lost your mother, your father, and the closest thing to a parent you have ever known. Of course you care.
You don't know how I feel, Harry roared. You, standing there, you... But words were no longer enough. Smashing things was no more help. He wanted to run. He wanted to keep running and never look back. He wanted to be somewhere he could not see the clear blue eyes staring at him, that hatefully calm old face. He turned on his heel and ran to the door, seized the doorknob again, and wrenched at it. But the door would not open. Harry turned back to Dumbledore. Let me out, he said. He was shaking from head to foot. No, said Dumbledore simply. For a few seconds they stared at each other. Let me out, Harry said again. No, Dumbledore repeated. If you don't, if you keep me in here, if you don't let me... By all means continue destroying my possessions, said Dumbledore serenely. I dare say I have too many. He walked around his desk and sat down behind it, watching Harry. Let me out, Harry said yet again, in a voice that was cold and almost as calm as Dumbledore's. Not until I have had my say, said Dumbledore. Do you, do you think I want to, do you think I give a, I don't care what you've got to say, Harry roared. I don't want to hear anything you've got to say. You will, said Dumbledore sadly, because you are not nearly as angry with me as you ought to be. If you are to attack me, as I know you are close to doing, I would like to have thoroughly earned it. What are you talking? It is my fault that Sirius died, said Dumbledore clearly. Oh, I should say almost entirely my fault. I will not be so arrogant as to claim responsibility for the whole. Sirius was a brave, clever, and energetic man, and such men are not usually content to sit at home in hiding while they believe others to be in danger. Nevertheless, you should never have believed for an instant that there was any necessity for you to go to the Department of Mysteries tonight. If I had been open with you, Harry, as I should have been, you would have known a long time ago that Voldemort might try and lure you to the Department of Mysteries, and you would never have been tricked into going there tonight. And Sirius would not have had to come after you. That blame lies with me, and with me alone. Harry was still standing with his hand on the doorknob, but he was unaware of it. He was gazing at Dumbledore, hardly breathing, listening yet barely understanding what he was hearing. Please sit down, said Dumbledore. It was not an order, it was a request. Harry hesitated, then walked slowly across the room, now littered with silver cogs and fragments of wood and took the seat facing Dumbledore's desk. Am I to understand, said Phineas Nigellus slowly from Harry's left, that my great-great-grandson, the last of the blacks, is dead? Yes, Phineas, said Dumbledore. I don't believe it, said Phineas brusquely. Harry turned his head in time to see Phineas marching out of his portrait and knew that he had gone to visit his other painting in grim old place. He would walk, perhaps, from portrait to portrait, calling for Sirius through the house. Harry, I owe you an explanation, said Dumbledore. An explanation of an old man's mistakes. For I see now that what I have done and not done with regard to you bears all the hallmarks of the failings of age. Youth cannot know how age thinks and feels, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young, and I seem to have forgotten lately. The sun was rising properly now, 
There was a rim of dazzling orange visible over the mountains, and the sky above it was colorless and bright. The light fell upon Dumbledore, upon the silver of his eyebrows and beard, upon the lines gouged deeply into his face. I guessed fifteen years ago, said Dumbledore, when I saw the scar upon your forehead, what it might mean. I guessed that it might be the sign of a connection forged between you and Voldemort. You've told me this before, Professor, said Harry bluntly. He did not care about being rude. He did not care about anything very much any more. Yes, said Dumbledore apologetically. Yes, but you see, it is necessary to start with your scar, for it became apparent shortly after you rejoined the magical world that I was correct, and that your scar was giving you warnings when Voldemort was close to you, or else feeling powerful emotion. I know, said Harry wearily. And this ability of yours to detect Voldemort's presence, even when he is disguised, and to know what he is feeling when his emotions are roused, has become more and more pronounced since Voldemort returned to his own body and his full powers. Harry did not bother to nod. He knew all of this already. More recently, said Dumbledore, I became concerned that Voldemort might realize that this connection between you exists. Sure enough, there came a time when you entered so far into his mind and thoughts that he sensed your presence. I am speaking, of course, of the night when you witnessed the attack on Mr. Weasley. Yeah, Snape told me, Harry muttered. Professor Snape, Harry, Dumbledore corrected him quietly. But did you not wonder why it was not I who explained this to you? Why I did not teach you occlumency? Why I had not so much as looked at you for months? Harry looked up. He could see now that Dumbledore looked sad and tired. Yeah, Harry mumbled. Yeah, I wondered. You see, continued Dumbledore heavily, I believed it could not be long before Voldemort attempted to force his way into your mind, to manipulate and misdirect your thoughts, and I was not eager to give him more incentives to do so. I was sure that if he realized that our relationship was, or had ever been, closer than that of headmaster and pupil, he would seize his chance to use you as a means to spy on me. I feared the uses to which he would put you, the possibility that he might try and possess you. Harry, I believe I was right to think that Voldemort would have made use of you in such a way. On those rare occasions when we had close contact, I thought I saw a shadow of him stir behind your eyes. I was trying in distancing myself from you to protect you. An old man's mistake. Harry remembered the feeling that a dormant snake had risen in him, ready to strike on the occasions when he and Dumbledore made eye contact. Voldemort's aim in possessing you, as he demonstrated tonight, would not have been my destruction. It would have been yours. He hoped, when he possessed you briefly a short while ago, that I would sacrifice you in the hope of killing him. He sighed deeply. Harry was letting the words wash over him. He would have been so interested to know all this a few months ago, and now it was meaningless compared to the gaping chasm inside him that was the loss of Sirius. None of it mattered. Sirius told me that you felt Voldemort awake inside you the very night that you had the vision of Arthur Weasley's attack. I knew at once that my worst fears were correct. Voldemort from that point had realized he could use you, 
In an attempt to arm you against Voldemort's assaults on your mind, I arranged occlumency lessons with Professor Snape. He paused. Harry watched the sunlight, which was sliding slowly across the polished surface of Dumbledore's desk, illuminate a silver inkpot and a handsome scarlet quill. Harry could tell that the portraits all around them were awake and listening raptly to Dumbledore's explanation. He could hear the occasional rustle of robes, the slight clearing of a throat. Phineas Nigellus had still not returned. Professor Snape discovered... Dumbledore resumed, that you had been dreaming about the door to the Department of Mistress for months. Voldemort, of course, had been obsessed with the possibility of hearing the prophecy ever since he regained his body. And as he dwelled on the door, so did you, though you did not know what it meant. And then you saw Rookwood, who worked in the Department of Mistress before his arrest, telling Voldemort what we had known all along that the prophecies held in the Ministry of Magic are heavily protected. Only the people to whom they refer can lift them from the shelves without suffering madness. In this case, either Voldemort himself would have to enter the Ministry of Magic and risk revealing himself at last, or else you would have to take it for him. It became a matter of even greater urgency that you should master occlumency. But I didn't, muttered Harry. He said it aloud to try and ease the dead weight of guilt inside him. A confession must surely relieve some of the terrible pressure squeezing his heart. I didn't practice. I didn't bother. I could have stopped myself having those dreams. Hermione kept telling me to do it. If I had, he'd never have been able to show me where to go, and Sirius wouldn't. Sirius wouldn't. Something was erupting inside Harry's head. A need to justify himself to explain. I tried to check he'd really taken Sirius. I went to Umbridge's office. I spoke to Creature in the fire, and he said Sirius wasn't there. He said he'd gone. Creature lied, said Dumbledore calmly. You are not his master. He could lie to you without even needing to punish himself. Creature intended you to go to the Ministry of Magic. He, he sent me on purpose. Oh, yes. Creature, I'm afraid, has been serving more than one master for months. How? said Harry blankly. He hasn't been out of Grimald Place for years. Creature seized his opportunity shortly before Christmas, said Dumbledore, when Sirius apparently shouted at him to get out. He took Sirius at his word and interpreted this as an order to leave the house. He went to the only black family member for whom he had any respect left, Black's cousin Narcissa, sister of Bellatrix and wife of Lucius Malfoy. How do you know all this? Harry said. His heart was beating very fast. He felt sick. He remembered worrying about Creature's odd absence over Christmas, remembered him turning up again in the attic. Creature told me last night, said Dumbledore. You see... When you gave Professor Snape that cryptic warning, he realized that you had had a vision of Sirius trapped in the bowels of the Department of Mysteries. He, like you, attempted to contact Sirius at once. I should explain that members of the Order of the Phoenix have more reliable methods of communicating than the fire in Dolores Umbridge's office. Professor Snape found that Sirius was alive and safe in Grimald Place. When, however, you did not return from your trip into the forest with Dolores Umbridge, Professor Snape grew worried that you still believe Sirius to be a captive of Lord Voldemort's. He alerted certain order members at once. Dumbledore heaved a great sigh and then said, 
Alistair Moody, Nymphadora Tonks, Kingsley Shacklebolt, and Remus Lupin were at headquarters when he made contact. All agreed to go to your aid at once. Professor Snape requested that Sirius remain behind, as he needed somebody to remain at headquarters to tell me what had happened, for I was due there at any moment. In the meantime, he, Professor Snape, intended to search the forest for you. But Sirius did not wish to remain behind while the others went to search for you. He delegated to Creature the task of telling me what had happened. And so it was that when I arrived in Grimald Place shortly after they had all left for the Ministry, it was the elf who told me, laughing fit to burst, where Sirius had gone. He was laughing? said Harry in a hollow voice. Oh, yes, said Dumbledore. You see, Creature was not able to betray us totally. He is not secret keeper for the Order. He could not give the Malfoys our whereabouts or tell them any of the Order's confidential plans that he had been forbidden to reveal. He was bound by the enchantments of his kind, which is to say that he could not disobey a direct order from his master Sirius. But he gave Narcissa information of the sort that is very valuable to Voldemort, yet must have seemed much too trivial for Sirius to think of banning him from repeating it. Like what? said Harry. Like the fact that the person Sirius cared most about in the world was you, said Dumbledore quietly. Like the fact that you were coming to regard Sirius as a mixture of father and brother. Voldemort knew already, of course, that Sirius was in the Order, that you knew where he was, but Creature's information made him realize that the one person whom you would go to any lengths to rescue was Sirius Black. Harry's lips were cold and numb. So when I asked Creature if Sirius was there last night, the Malfoys, undoubtedly on Voldemort's instructions, had told him he must find a way of keeping Sirius out of the way once you had seen the vision of Sirius being tortured. Then, if you decided to check whether Sirius was at home or not, Creature would be able to pretend he was not. Creature injured Buckbeak the Hippogriff yesterday, and at the moment when you made your appearance in the fire, Sirius was upstairs trying to tend to him. There seemed to be very little air in Harry's lungs. His breathing was quick and shallow. And Creature told you all this, and laughed, he croaked. He did not wish to tell me, said Dumbledore, but I am a sufficiently accomplished legilimens myself to know when I am being lied to, and I persuaded him to tell me the full story before I left for the Department of Mysteries. And whispered Harry, his hands curled in cold fists on his knees, and Hermione kept telling us to be nice to him. She was quite right, Harry, said Dumbledore. I warned Sirius when we adopted twelve Grimald Place as our headquarters that Creature must be treated with kindness and respect. I also told him that Creature could be dangerous to us. I do not think that Sirius took me very seriously, or that he ever saw Creature as a being with feelings as acute as a human's. Don't you blame, don't you talk about Sirius like... Harry's breath was constricted. He could not get the words out properly. But the rage that had subsided so briefly had flared in him again. He would not let Dumbledore criticize Sirius. Creatures are lying, foul. He deserved... Creature is what he has been made by wizards, Harry, said Dumbledore. Yes, he is to be pitied. His existence has been as miserable as your friend Dobby's. 
He was forced to do Sirius's bidding because Sirius was the last of the family to which he was enslaved. But he felt no true loyalty to him, and whatever Creature's faults, it must be admitted that Sirius did nothing to make Creature's lot easier. Don't talk about Sirius like that, Harry yelled. He was on his feet again, furious, ready to fly at Dumbledore, who had plainly not understood Sirius at all. How brave he was, how much he had suffered. What about Snape? Harry spat. You're not talking about him, are you? When I told him Voldemort had Sirius, he just sneered at me as usual. Harry, you know that Professor Snape had no choice but to pretend not to take you seriously in front of Dolores Umbridge, said Dumbledore steadily. But as I have explained, he informed the Order as soon as possible about what you had said. It was he who deduced where you had gone when you did not return from the forest. It was he, too, who gave Professor Umbridge fake Veritas serum when she was attempting to force you to tell of Sirius's whereabouts. Harry disregarded this. He felt a savage pleasure in blaming Snape. It seemed to be easing his own sense of dreadful guilt, and he wanted to hear Dumbledore agree with him. Snape, Snape goaded Sirius about staying in the house. He made out Sirius was a coward. Sirius was much too old and clever to have allowed such feeble taunts to hurt him, said Dumbledore. Snape stopped giving me occlumency lessons, Harry snarled. He threw me out of his office. I am aware of it, said Dumbledore heavily. I have already said that it was a mistake for me not to teach you myself, though I was sure at the time that nothing could have been more dangerous than to open your mind even further to Voldemort while in my presence. Snape made it worse. My scar always hurt worse after lessons with him. Harry remembered Ron's thoughts on the subject and plunged on. How do you know he wasn't trying to soften me up for Voldemort? Make it easier for him to get inside my... I trust Severus Snape, said Dumbledore simply. But I forgot, another old man's mistake, that some wounds run too deep for the healing. I thought Professor Snape could overcome his feelings about your father. I was wrong. But that's okay, is it? yelled Harry, ignoring the scandalized faces and disapproving mutterings of the portraits covering the walls. It's okay for Snape to hate my dad, but it's not okay for Sirius to hate Creature? Sirius did not hate Creature, said Dumbledore. He regarded him as a servant unworthy of much interest or notice. Indifference and neglect often do much more damage than outright dislike. The fountain we destroyed tonight told a lie. We wizards have mistreated and abused our fellows for too long, and we are now reaping our reward. So Sirius deserved what he got, did he? Harry yelled. I did not say that, nor will you ever hear me say it, Dumbledore replied quietly. Sirius was not a cruel man. He was kind to house elves in general. He had no love for Creature, because Creature was a living reminder of the home Sirius had hated. Yeah, he did hate it, said Harry, his voice cracking, turning his back on Dumbledore and walking away. The sun was bright inside the room now, and the eyes of all the portraits followed him as he walked, without realizing what he was doing, without seeing the office at all. You made him stay shut up in that house, and he hated it. That's why he wanted to get out last night. I was trying to keep Sirius alive, said Dumbledore quietly. People don't like being locked up. Harry said furiously, rounding on him. You did it to me all last summer. 
Dumbledore closed his eyes and buried his face in his long-fingered hands. Harry watched him, but this uncharacteristic sign of exhaustion or sadness or whatever it was from Dumbledore did not soften him. On the contrary, he felt even angrier that Dumbledore was showing signs of weakness. He had no business being weak when Harry wanted to rage and storm at him. Dumbledore lowered his hands and surveyed Harry through his half-moon glasses. It is time, he said, for me to tell you what I should have told you five years ago, Harry. Please sit down. I'm going to tell you everything. I ask only a little patience. You will have your chance to rage at me to do whatever you like when I've finished. I will not stop you. Harry glared at him for a moment, then flung himself back into the chair opposite Dumbledore and waited. Dumbledore stared for a moment at the sunlit grounds outside the window, then looked back at Harry and said, Five years ago you arrived at Hogwarts, Harry, safe and whole as I had planned and intended. Well, not quite whole. You had suffered. I knew you would when I left you on your aunt and uncle's doorstep. I knew I was condemning you to ten dark and difficult years. He paused. Harry said nothing. You might ask, and with good reason, why it had to be so. Why could some wizarding family not have taken you in? Many would have done so more than gladly, would have been honored and delighted to raise you as a son. My answer is that my priority was to keep you alive. You were in more danger than perhaps anyone but myself realized. Voldemort had been vanquished hours before, but his supporters, and many of them are almost as terrible as he, were still at large, angry, desperate, and violent. And I had to make my decision, too, with regard to the years ahead. Did I believe that Voldemort was gone forever? No. I knew not whether it would be ten, twenty, or fifty years before he returned, but I was sure he would do so, and I was sure, too, knowing him as I have done, that he would not rest until he killed you. I knew that Voldemort's knowledge of magic is perhaps more extensive than any wizard alive. I knew that even my most complex and powerful protective spells and charms were unlikely to be invincible if he ever returned to full power. But I knew too where Voldemort was weak, and so I made my decision. You would be protected by an ancient magic of which he knows, which he despises, and which he has always therefore underestimated to his cost. I am speaking, of course, of the fact that your mother died to save you. She gave you a lingering protection he never expected, a protection that flows in your veins to this day. I put my trust, therefore, in your mother's blood. I delivered you to her sister, her only remaining relative. She doesn't love me, said Harry at once. She doesn't give a damn. But she took you, Dumbledore cut across him. She may have taken you grudgingly, furiously, unwillingly, bitterly, yet. Still, she took you, and in doing so, she sealed the charm I placed upon you. Your mother's sacrifice made the bond of blood the strongest shield I could give you. I still don't. While you can still call home the place where your mother's blood dwells, there you cannot be touched or harmed by Voldemort. He shed her blood, but it lives on in you and her sister. Her blood became your refuge. You need return there only once a year, but as long as you can still call it home, there he cannot hurt you. 
Your aunt knows this. I explained what I had done in the letter I left with you on her doorstep. She knows that allowing you house room may well have kept you alive for the past fifteen years. Wait, said Harry. Wait a moment. He sat up straighter in his chair, staring at Dumbledore. You sent that howler. You told her to remember. It was your voice. I thought, said Dumbledore, inclining his head slightly, that she might need reminding of the pact she had sealed by taking you. I suspected the Dementor attack might have awoken her to the dangers of having you as a surrogate son. It did, said Harry quietly. Well, my uncle more than her. He wanted to chuck me out, but after the howler came, she, she said I had to stay. He stared at the floor for a moment, then said, But what's this got to do with... He could not say Sirius's name. Five years ago, then, continued Dumbledore, as though he had not paused in his story. You arrived at Hogwarts, neither as happy nor as well-nourished as I would have liked, perhaps, yet alive and healthy. You are not a pampered little prince, but as normal a boy as I could have hoped under the circumstances. Thus far my plan was working well. And then, well, you will remember the events of your first year at Hogwarts quite as clearly as I do. You rose magnificently to the challenge that faced you, and sooner, much sooner than I had anticipated, you found yourself face to face with Voldemort. You survived again. You did more. You delayed his return to full power and strength. You fought a man's fight. I was prouder of you than I can say. Yet there was a flaw in this wonderful plan of mine, said Dumbledore. An obvious flaw that I knew, even then, might be the undoing of it all. And yet, knowing how important it was that my plan should succeed, I told myself that I would not permit this flaw to ruin it. I alone could prevent this, so I alone must be strong. And here was my first test, as you lay in the hospital wing, weak from your struggle with Voldemort. I don't understand what you're saying, said Harry. Don't you remember asking me as you lay in the hospital wing why Voldemort had tried to kill you when you were a baby? Harry nodded. Ought I to have told you then? Harry stared into the blue eyes and said nothing, but his heart was racing again. Do you not see the flaw in the plan yet? No, perhaps not. Well, as you know, I decided not to answer you. Eleven, I told myself, was much too young to know. I had never intended to tell you when you were eleven. The knowledge would be too much at such a young age. I should have recognized the danger signs then. I should have asked myself why I did not feel more disturbed that you had already asked me the question to which I knew one day I must give a terrible answer. I should have recognized that I was too happy to think that I did not have to do it on that particular day. You were too young, much too young. And so we entered your second year at Hogwarts, and once again you met challenges even grown wizards have never faced. Once again you acquitted yourself beyond my wildest dreams. You did not ask me again, however, why Voldemort had left that mark upon you. We discussed your scar, oh yes. We came very, very close to the subject. Why did I not tell you everything? 
Well, it seemed to me that twelve was, after all, hardly better than eleven to receive such information. I allowed you to leave my presence bloodstained, exhausted but exhilarated, and if I felt a twinge of unease that I ought perhaps have told you then, it was swiftly silenced. You were still so young, you see, and I could not find it in me to spoil that night of triumph. Do you see, Harry? Do you see the flaw in my brilliant plan now? I had fallen into the trap I had foreseen, that I had told myself I could avoid, that I must avoid. I don't... I cared about you too much, said Dumbledore simply. I cared more for your happiness than your knowing the truth. More for your peace of mind than my plan. More for your life than the lives that might be lost if the plan failed. In other words, I acted exactly as Voldemort expects we fools who love to act. Is there a defense? I defy anyone who has watched you as I have, and I have watched you more closely than you can have imagined, not to want to save you more pain than you had already suffered. What did I care if numbers of nameless and faceless people and creatures were slaughtered in the vague future? If in the here and now you were alive and well and happy, I never dreamed that I would have such a person on my hands. We entered your third year. I watched from afar as you struggled to repel Dementors, as you found Sirius, learned what he was, and rescued him. Was I to tell you then, at the moment when you had triumphantly snatched your godfather from the jaws of the Ministry? But now, at the age of thirteen, my excuses were running out. Young you might be, but you had proved you were exceptional. My conscience was uneasy, Harry. I knew the time must come soon. But you came out of the maze last year, having watched Cedric Diggory die, having escaped death so narrowly yourself— and I did not tell you, though I knew now Voldemort had returned, I must do it soon. And now, tonight, I know you have long been ready for the knowledge I have kept from you for so long, because you have proved that I should have placed the burden upon you before this. My only defense is this. I have watched you struggling under more burdens than any student who has ever passed through this school, and I could not bring myself to add another, the greatest one of all. Harry waited, but Dumbledore did not speak. I still don't understand. Voldemort tried to kill you when you were a child because of a prophecy made shortly before your birth. He knew the prophecy had been made, though he did not know its full contents. He set out to kill you when you were still a baby, believing he was fulfilling the terms of the prophecy. He discovered to his cost that he was mistaken. When the curse intended to kill you backfired. And so, since his return to his body, and particularly since your extraordinary escape from him last year, he has been determined to hear that prophecy in its entirety. This is the weapon he has been seeking so assiduously since his return, the knowledge of how to destroy you. The sun had risen fully now. Dumbledore's office was bathed in it. The glass case in which the sword of Godric Gryffindor resided gleamed white and opaque. The fragments of the instruments Harry had thrown to the floor glistened like raindrops, and behind him the baby forks made soft chirruping noises in his nest of ashes. The prophecy's smashed, Harry said blankly. I was pulling Neville up those benches in the, the room where the archway was, and I ripped his robes, and it fell. 
The thing that smashed was merely the record of the prophecy kept by the Department of Mysteries. But the prophecy was made to somebody, and that person has the means of recalling it perfectly. Who heard it? asked Harry, though he thought he knew the answer already. I did, said Dumbledore, on a cold, wet night sixteen years ago, in a room above the bar at the Hogshead Inn. I had gone there to see an applicant for the post of divination teacher, though it was against my inclination to allow the subject of divination to continue at all. The applicant, however, was the great-great-granddaughter of a very famous, very gifted seer, and I thought it common politeness to meet her. I was disappointed. It seemed to me that she had not a trace of the gift herself. I told her, courteously, I hope, that I did not think she would be suitable for the post. I turned to leave. Dumbledore got to his feet and walked past Harry to the black cabinet that stood beside Fawkes's perch. He bent down, slid back a catch, and took from inside it the shallow stone basin, carved with ruins around the edges, in which Harry had seen his father tormenting Snape. Dumbledore walked back to the desk, placed the pensive upon it, and raised his wand to his own temple. From it he withdrew silvery gossamer fine strands of thought clinging to the wand and deposited them in the basin. He sat back down behind his desk and watched his thoughts swirl and drift inside the pensive for a moment. Then, with a sigh, he raised his wand and prodded the silvery substance with its tip. A figure rose out of it, draped in shawls, her eyes magnified to enormous size behind her glasses, and she revolved slowly, her feet in the basin. But when Sybil Trelawney spoke, it was not in her usual ethereal mystic voice, but in the harsh, hoarse tones Harry had heard her use once before. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, but he will have power the Dark Lord knows not, and either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. The slowly revolving Professor Trelawney sank back into the silver mass below and vanished. The silence within the office was absolute. Neither Dumbledore nor Harry nor any of the portraits made a sound. Even Fawkes had fallen silent. Professor Dumbledore, Harry said very quietly, for Dumbledore, still staring at the pensive, seemed completely lost in thought. It... did that mean... what did that mean? It meant, said Dumbledore, that the person who has the only chance of conquering Lord Voldemort for good was born at the end of July nearly sixteen years ago. This boy would be born to parents who had already defied Voldemort three times. Harry felt as though something was closing in upon him. His breathing seemed difficult again. It means... me? Dumbledore surveyed him for a moment through his glasses. The odd thing is, Harry, he said softly, that it may not have meant you at all. Sybil's prophecy could have applied to two wizard boys, both born at the end of July that year, both of whom had parents in the Order of the Phoenix, both sets of parents having narrowly escaped Voldemort three times. One, of course, was you, the other was Neville Longbottom. But then, 
But then why was it my name on the prophecy and not Neville's? The official record was relabeled after Voldemort's attack on you as a child, said Dumbledore. It seemed plain to the keeper of the Hall of Prophecy that Voldemort could only have tried to kill you because he knew you to be the one to whom Sybil was referring. Then it might not be me, said Harry. I am afraid, said Dumbledore slowly, looking as though every word cost him a great effort, that there is no doubt that it is you. But you said Neville was born at the end of July, too, and his mum and dad. You are forgetting the next part of the prophecy, the final identifying feature of the boy who could vanquish Voldemort. Voldemort himself would mark him as his equal. And so he did, Harry. He chose you, not Neville. He gave you the scar that has proved both blessing and curse. But he might have chosen wrong, said Harry. He might have marked the wrong person. He chose the boy he thought most likely to be a danger to him, said Dumbledore. And notice this, Harry. He chose not the pure blood, which according to his creed is the only kind of wizard worth being or knowing, but the half-blood, like himself. He saw himself in you before he had ever seen you, and in marking you with that scar, he did not kill you as he intended, but gave you powers and a future which have fitted you to escape him not once, but four times so far. Something that neither your parents nor Neville's parents ever achieved. Why did he do it then? said Harry, who felt numb and cold. Why did he try and kill me as a baby? He should have waited to see whether Neville or I looked more dangerous when we were older and tried to kill whoever it was then. That might indeed have been the more practical course, said Dumbledore, except that Voldemort's information about the prophecy was incomplete. The Hogshead Inn, which Sybil chose for its cheapness, has long attracted, shall we say, a more interesting clientele than the three broomsticks, as you and your friends found out to your cost, and I to mine that night. It is a place where it is never safe to assume you are not being overheard. Of course I had not dreamed when I set out to meet Sybil Trelawney that I would hear anything worth overhearing. My hour, one stroke of good fortune, was that the eavesdropper was detected only a short way into the prophecy and thrown from the building. So he only heard. He heard only the first part, the part foretelling the birth of a boy in July to parents who had thrice defied Voldemort. Consequently, he could not warn his master that to attack you would be to risk transferring power to you, again marking you as his equal. So Voldemort never knew that there might be danger in attacking you, that it might be wise to wait or to learn more. He did not know that you would have power the Dark Lord knows not. But I don't, said Harry in a strangled voice. I haven't any powers he hasn't got. I couldn't fight the way he did tonight. I can't possess people or, or kill them. There is a room in the Department of Mysteries, interrupted Dumbledore, that is kept locked at all times. It contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. It is also, perhaps, the most mysterious of the many subjects for study that reside there. It is the power held within that room that you possess in such quantities, and which Voldemort has not at all. That power took you to save Sirius tonight. That power also saved you from possession by Voldemort, 
because he could not bear to reside in a body so full of the force he detests. In the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Harry closed his eyes. If he had not gone to save Sirius, Sirius would not have died. More to stave off the moment when he would have to think of Sirius again, Harry asked without caring much about the answer. The end of the prophecy. It was something about neither can live while the other survives, said Dumbledore. So, said Harry, dredging up the words from what felt like a deep well of despair inside him. So, does that mean that, that one of us has got to kill the other one? In the end? Yes, said Dumbledore. For a long time, neither of them spoke. Somewhere far beyond the office walls, Harry could hear the sound of voices, students heading down to the Great Hall for an early breakfast, perhaps. It seemed impossible that there could be people in the world who still desired food, who laughed, who neither knew nor cared that Sirius Black was gone forever. Sirius seemed a million miles away already, even if a part of Harry still believed that if he had only pulled back that veil, he would have found Sirius looking back at him, greeting him, perhaps, with his laugh like a bark. I feel I owe you another explanation, Harry, said Dumbledore hesitantly. You may perhaps have wondered why I never chose you as a prefect. I must confess that I rather thought you had enough responsibility to be going on with. Harry looked up at him and saw a tear trickling down Dumbledore's face into his long silver beard. Chapter 38 The Second War Begins He who must not be named returns. In a brief statement Friday night, Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge confirmed that he who must not be named has returned to this country and is active once more. It is with great regret that I must confirm that the wizard styling himself Lord, well, you know who I mean, is alive and among us again, said Fudge, looking tired and flustered as he addressed reporters. It is with almost equal regret that we report the mass revolt of the Dementors of Azkaban, who have shown themselves averse to continuing in the Ministry's employ. We believe that the Dementors are currently taking direction from Lord Thingy. We urge the magical population to remain vigilant. The Ministry is currently publishing guides to elementary home and personal defense that will be delivered free to all wizarding homes within the coming month. The Minister's statement was met with dismay and alarm from the wizarding community, which, as recently as last Wednesday, was receiving Ministry assurances that there was no truth whatsoever in these persistent rumors that you know who is operating amongst us once more. Details of the events that led to the Ministry turnaround are still hazy, though it is believed that he who must not be named and a select band of followers known as Death Eaters gained entry to the Ministry of Magic itself on Friday evening. Albus Dumbledore, newly reinstated headmaster of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, reinstated member of the International Confederation of Wizards, and reinstated chief warlock of the Wizengamot, was unavailable for comment last night. He has insisted for a year that you-know-who was not dead, as was widely hoped and believed, but recruiting followers once more for a fresh attempt to seize power. Meanwhile, the boy who lived... There you are, Harry. I knew they'd drag you into it somehow, said Hermione, looking over the top of the paper at him.
They were in the hospital wing. Harry was sitting on the end of Ron's bed, and they were both listening to Hermione read the front page of the Sunday Prophet. Ginny, whose ankle had been mended in a trice by Madame Pomfrey, was curled up at the foot of Hermione's bed. Neville, whose nose had likewise been returned to its normal size and shape, was in a chair between the two beds. And Luna, who had dropped in to visit, clutching the latest edition of the Quibbler, was reading the magazine upside down and apparently not taking in a word Hermione was saying. He's the boy who lived again now, though, isn't he? said Ron darkly. Not such a show-off maniac anymore, eh? He helped himself to a handful of chocolate frogs from the immense pile on his bedside cabinet, threw a few to Harry, Ginny, and Neville, and ripped off the wrapper of his own with his teeth. There were still deep welts on his forearms where the brain's tentacles had wrapped around him. According to Madame Pomfrey, thoughts could leave deeper scarring than almost anything else. Though since she had started applying copious amounts of Dr. Ubley's oblivious unction, there seemed to be some improvement. Yes, they're very complimentary about you now, Harry, said Hermione, now scanning down the article. A lone voice of truth, perceived as unbalanced, yet never wavered in his story, forced to bear ridicule and slander. Hmm, said Hermione, frowning. I notice they don't mention the fact that it was them doing all the ridiculing and slandering, though. She winced slightly and put a hand to her ribs. The curse Dolohov had used on her, though less effective than it would have been had he been able to say the incantation aloud, had nevertheless caused, in Madame Pomfrey's words, quite enough damage to be going on with. Hermione was having to take ten different types of potion every day, and although she was improving greatly, was already bored with the hospital wing. You know whose last attempt to take over, pages two to four. What the Ministry should have told us, page five. Why nobody listened to Albus Dumbledore, pages six to eight. Exclusive interview with Harry Potter, page nine. Well, said Hermione, folding up the newspaper and throwing it aside, it's certainly given them lots to write about. And that interview with Harry isn't exclusive. It's the one that was in the Quibbler months ago. Daddy sold it to them, said Luna vaguely, turning a page of the quibbler. He got a very good price for it, too. So we're going to go on an expedition to Sweden this summer and see if we can catch a crumple-horn snorkack. Hermione seemed to struggle with herself for a moment, then said, That sounds lovely. Ginny caught Harry's eye and looked away quickly, grinning. So, anyway said Hermione, sitting up a little straighter and wincing again. What's going on in school? Well, Flitwick's got rid of Fred and George's swamp, said Ginny. He did it in about three seconds, but he left a tiny patch under the window, and he's roped it off. Why? said Hermione, looking startled. Oh, he just says it was a really good bit of magic, said Ginny, shrugging. I think he left it as a monument to Fred and George said Ron through a mouthful of chocolate. They sent me all these, you know, he told Harry, pointing at the small mountain of frogs beside him. Must be doing all right out of that joke crop, eh? Hermione looked rather disapproving and asked, So has all the trouble stopped now Dumbledore's back? Yes, said Neville. Everything's settled right back down again. I suppose Filch is happy, is he? asked Ron, propping a chocolate frog card featuring Dumbledore against his water jug. Not at all, said Ginny. He's really, really miserable, actually. She lowered her voice to a whisper. 
He keeps saying Umbridge was the best thing that ever happened to Hogwarts. All six of them looked around. Professor Umbridge was lying in a bed opposite them, gazing up at the ceiling. Dumbledore had strode alone into the forest to rescue her from the centaurs. How he had done it, how he had emerged from the trees, supporting Professor Umbridge without so much as a scratch on him, nobody knew. And Umbridge was certainly not telling. Since she had returned to the castle, she had not, as far as any of them knew, uttered a single word. Nobody really knew what was wrong with her, either. Her usual neat, mousy hair was very untidy, and there were bits of twig and leaf in it. But otherwise, she seemed to be quite unscathed. "'Madam Pomfrey says she's just in shock,' whispered Hermione. "'Sulking, more like,' said Ginny. "'Yeah. She shows signs of life if you do this,' said Ron and with his tongue he made soft clip-clopping noises. Umbridge sat bolt upright, looking wildly around. "'Anything wrong, Professor?' called Madam Pomfrey, poking her head around her office door. "'No, no,' said Umbridge, sinking back into her pillows. "'No, I must have been dreaming.' Hermione and Ginny muffled their laughter in the bedclothes. "'Speaking of centaurs,' said Hermione when she had recovered a little, Who's divination teacher now? Is Ferenzi staying? He's got to, said Harry. The other centaurs won't take him back, will they? It looks like he and Trelawney are both going to teach, said Ginny. Bet Dumbledore wishes he could have got rid of Trelawney for good, said Ron, now munching on his fourteenth frog. Mind you, the whole subject's useless, if you ask me. Ferenzi isn't a lot better. How can you say that? Hermione demanded, after we've just found out that there are real prophecies. Harry's heart began to race. He had not told Ron, Hermione, or anyone else what the prophecy had contained. Neville had told them it had smashed while Harry was pulling him up the steps in the death room, and Harry had not yet corrected this impression. He was not ready to see their expressions when he told them that he must be either murderer or victim. There was no other way. It is a pity it broke said Hermione quietly, shaking her head. Yeah, it is, said Ron. Still, at least you know who never found out what was in it, either. Where are you going? He added, looking both surprised and disappointed as Harry stood up. Uh, Hagrid's, said Harry. You know, he's just got back, and I promised I'd go down and see him, tell him how you two are. Oh, all right, then, said Ron grumpily, looking out of the dormitory window at the patch of bright blue sky beyond. Wish we could come. Say hello to him for us, called Hermione as Harry proceeded down the ward, and ask him what's happening about, about his little friend. Harry gave a wave of his hand to show that he had heard and understood as he left the dormitory. The castle seemed very quiet, even for a Sunday. Everybody was clearly out in the sunny grounds, enjoying the end of their exams and the prospect of a last few days of term unhampered by studying or homework. Harry walked slowly along the deserted corridor, peering out of windows as he went. He could see people messing around in the air over the Quidditch pitch, and a couple of students swimming in the lake, accompanied by the giant squid. He was finding it hard at the moment to decide whether he wanted to be with people or not. Whenever he was in company, he wanted to get away, and whenever he was alone, he wanted company. He thought he might really go and visit Hagrid, though, he had not talked to him properly since he had returned. Harry had just descended the last marble step into the entrance hall when Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle emerged from a door on the right 
that Harry knew led down to the Slithering common room. Harry stopped dead, so did Malfoy and the others. For a few moments the only sounds were the shouts, laughter, and splashes drifting into the hall from the grounds through the open front doors. Malfoy glanced around. Harry knew he was checking for signs of teachers. Then he looked back at Harry and said in a low voice, "'You're dead, Potter.' Harry raised his eyebrows. "'Funny,' he said. "'You'd think I'd have stopped walking around.' Malfoy looked angrier than Harry had ever seen him. He felt a kind of detached satisfaction at the sight of his pale, pointed face contorted with rage. "'You're going to pay,' said Malfoy in a voice barely louder than a whisper. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to my father. Well, I'm terrified now, said Harry sarcastically. I suppose Lord Voldemort's just a warm-up act compared to you three. What's the matter, he said, for Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle had all looked stricken at the sound of the name. He's your dad's mate, isn't he? Not scared of him, are you? You think you're such a big man, Potter said Malfoy, advancing now, Crabbe and Goyle flanking him. You wait, I'll have you. You can't land my father in prison. I thought I just had, said Harry. The Dementors have left Azkaban, said Malfoy quietly. Dad and the others will be out in no time. Yeah, I expect they will, said Harry. Still, at least everyone knows what scumbags they are now. Malfoy's hand flew toward his wand. But Harry was too quick for him. He had drawn his own wand before Malfoy's fingers had even entered the pocket of his robes. Potter! The voice rang across the entrance hall. Snape had emerged from the staircase leading down to his office, and at the sight of him, Harry felt a great rush of hatred beyond anything he felt toward Malfoy. Whatever Dumbledore said, he would never forgive Snape. Never. What are you doing, Potter? said Snape coldly as ever, as he strode over to the four of them. "'I'm trying to decide what curse to use on Malfoy, sir,' said Harry fiercely. Snape stared at him. "'Put that wand away at once,' he said curtly. Ten points from Griff.' Snape looked toward the giant hourglasses on the walls and gave a sneering smile. "'Ah!' I see there are no longer any points left in the Gryffindor hourglass to take away. In that case, Potter, we will simply have to add some more. Professor McGonagall had just stumped up the stone steps into the castle. She was carrying a tartan carpet bag in one hand and leaning heavily on a walking stick with her other, but otherwise looked quite well. Professor McGonagall, said Snape, striding forward. Out of some mongos, I see. Yes, Professor Snape, said Professor McGonagall, shrugging off her traveling cloak. I'm quite as good as new. You too, Crab. Goyle. She beckoned them forward imperiously, and they came, shuffling their large feet and looking awkward. Here, said Professor McGonagall, thrusting her carpet bag into Crab's chest and her cloak into Goyle's. Take these up to my office for me. They turned and stumped away up the marble staircase. Right then said Professor McGonagall, looking up at the hourglasses on the wall. Well, I think Potter and his friends ought to have fifty points apiece for alerting the world to the return of you-know-who. What say you, Professor Snape? What? snapped Snape, though Harry knew he had heard perfectly well. Oh, well, I suppose. 
So that's fifty each for Potter, the two Weasleys, Longbottom and Miss Granger, said Professor McGonagall, and a shower of rubies fell down into the bottom bulb of Gryffindor's hourglass as she spoke. Oh, and fifty for Miss Lovegood, I suppose, she added, and a number of sapphires fell into Ravenclaw's glass. Now, you wanted to take ten from Mr. Potter, I think, Professor Snape. So, there we are. A few rubies retreated into the upper bulb, leaving a respectable amount below, nevertheless. Well, Potter Malfoy, I think you ought to be outside on a glorious day like this, Professor McGonagall continued briskly. Harry did not need telling twice. He thrust his wand back inside his robes and headed straight for the front doors without another glance at Snape and Malfoy. The hot sun hit him with a blast as he walked across the lawns toward Hagrid's cabin. Students lying around on the grass, sunbathing, talking, reading the Sunday prophet, and eating sweets, looked up at him as he passed. Some called out to him, or else waved, clearly eager to show that they, like the prophet, had decided he was something of a hero. Harry said nothing to any of them. He had no idea how much they knew of what had happened three days ago, but he had so far avoided being questioned and preferred it that way. He thought at first, when he knocked on Hagrid's cabin door, that he was out. But then Fang came charging around the corner and almost bowled him over with the enthusiasm of his welcome. Hagrid, it transpired, was picking runner beans in his back garden. All right, Harry, he said, beaming, when Harry approached the fence. Come in, come in. We'll have a cup of dandelion juice. How's things? Hagrid asked him as they settled down at his wooden table with a glass apiece of ice juice. You, uh, feeling all right, are you? Harry knew from the look of concern on Hagrid's face that he was not referring to Harry's physical well-being. I'm fine, Harry said quickly, because he could not bear to discuss the thing that he knew was in Hagrid's mind. So, where have you been? Been hiding out in the mountains, said Hagrid, up in a cave, like Sirius did when he... Hagrid broke off, cleared his throat gruffly, looked at Harry and took a long draught of juice. Anyway, back now, he said feebly. You, you look better, said Harry, who was determined to keep the conversation moving away from Sirius. What? said Hagrid, raising a massive hand and feeling his face. Oh, oh yeah. Well, Gropis, loads better behave now, loads. Seem right pleased to see me when I got back, to tell you the truth. He's a good lad, really. I've been thinking about trying to find him a lady friend, actually. Harry would normally have tried to persuade Hagrid out of this idea at once. The prospect of a second giant taking up residence in the forest, possibly even wilder and more brutal than Grawp, was positively alarming, but somehow Harry could not muster the energy necessary to argue the point. He was starting to wish he was alone again and with the idea of hastening his departure, he took several large gulps of his dandelion juice, half-emptying his glass. "'Everyone knows you've been telling the truth now, Harry,' said Hagrid softly and unexpectedly. He was watching Harry closely. "'That's got to be better, hasn't it?' Harry shrugged. "'Look!' Hagrid leaned toward him across the table. "'I knew Sirius longer than you did.' He died in battle, and that's the way he'd have wanted to go. He didn't want to go at all, said Harry angrily. Hagrid bowed his great shaggy head. 
No, I don't reckon he did, he said quietly. But still, Harry, he was never one to sit around at home and let other people do the fighting. He couldn't have lived with himself if he hadn't gone to help. Harry leapt up again. I've got to go and visit Ron and Hermione in the hospital wing, he said mechanically. Oh, said Hagrid, looking rather upset. Oh, all right then, Harry. Take care of yourself then, and drop back in if you've got a mole. Yeah, right. Harry crossed to the door as fast as he could and pulled it open. He was out in the sunshine again before Hagrid had finished saying goodbye and walked away across the lawn. Once again, people called out to him as he passed. He closed his eyes for a few moments, wishing they would all vanish, that he could open his eyes and find himself alone in the grounds. A few days ago, before his exams had finished and he had seen the vision Voldemort had planted in his mind, he would have given almost anything for the wizarding world to know that he had been telling the truth, for them to believe that Voldemort was back and know that he was neither a liar nor mad. Now, however, he walked a short way around the lake, sat down on its bank, sheltered from the gaze of passers-by behind a tangle of shrubs, and stared out over the gleaming water, thinking. Perhaps the reason he wanted to be alone was because he had felt isolated from everybody since his talk with Dumbledore. An invisible barrier separated him from the rest of the world. He was, he had always been, a marked man. It was just that he had never really understood what that meant. And yet, sitting here on the edge of the lake with the terrible weight of grief dragging at him, with the loss of Sirius so raw and fresh inside, he could not muster any great sense of fear. It was sunny, and the grounds around him were full of laughing people, and even though he felt as distant from them as though he belonged to a different race, it was still very hard to believe as he sat here that his life must include, or end in, murder. He sat there for a long time, gazing out at the water, trying not to think about his godfather, or to remember that it was directly across from here, on the opposite bank, that Sirius had collapsed, trying to fend off a hundred Dementors. The sun had fallen before he realized that he was cold. He got up and returned to the castle, wiping his face on his sleeve as he went. Ron and Hermione left the hospital wing completely cured three days before the end of term. Hermione showed signs of wanting to talk about Sirius, but Ron tended to make hushing noises every time she mentioned his name. Harry was not sure whether or not he wanted to talk about his godfather yet. His wishes varied with his mood. He knew one thing, though. Unhappy as he felt at the moment, he would greatly miss Hogwarts in a few days' time when he was back at Number 4 Privet Drive. Even though he now understood exactly why he had to return there every summer, he did not feel any better about it. Indeed, he had never dreaded his return more. Professor Umbridge left Hogwarts the day before the end of term. It seemed that she had crept out of the hospital wing during dinner time, evidently hoping to depart undetected, but unfortunately for her, she met Peeves on the way, who seized his last chance to do as Fred had instructed, and chased her gleefully from the premises, whacking her alternately with a walking stick and a sock full of chalk. Many students ran out into the entrance hall to watch her running away down the path, and the heads of houses tried only half-heartedly to restrain their pupils. Indeed, Professor McGonagall sank back into her chair at the staff table after a few feeble remonstrances, and was clearly heard to express a regret that she could not run cheering after Umbridge herself, because Peeves had borrowed her walking stick. 
Their last evening at school arrived. Most people had finished packing and were already heading down to the end-of-term feast, but Harry had not even started. Just do it tomorrow, said Ron, who was waiting by the door of their dormitory. Come on, I'm starving. I won't be long. Look, you go ahead. But when the dormitory door closed behind Ron, Harry made no effort to speed up his packing. The very last thing he wanted to do was to attend the end-of-term feast. He was worried that Dumbledore would make some reference to him in his speech. He was sure to mention Voldemort's return. He had talked to them about it last year, after all. Harry pulled some crumpled robes out of the very bottom of his trunk to make way for folded ones, and, as he did so, noticed a badly wrapped package lying in a corner of it. He could not think what it was doing there. He bent down, pulled it out from underneath his trainers, and examined it. He realized what it was within seconds. Sirius had given it to him just inside the front door of Twelve Grim Old Place. Use it if you need me, all right? Harry sank down onto his bed and unwrapped the package. Out fell a small, square mirror. It looked old. It was certainly dirty. Harry held it up to his face and saw his own reflection looking back at him. He turned the mirror over. There, on the reverse side, was a scribbled note from Sirius. This is a two-way mirror. I've got the other. If you need to speak to me, just say my name into it. You'll appear in my mirror, and I'll be able to talk in yours. James and I used to use them when we were in separate detentions. And Harry's heart began to race. He remembered seeing his dead parents in the mirror of Erised four years ago. He was going to be able to talk to Sirius again. Right now, he knew it. He looked around to make sure there was nobody else there. The dormitory was quite empty. He looked back at the mirror, raised it in front of his face with trembling hands, and said, loudly and clearly, Sirius! His breath misted the surface of the glass. He held the mirror even closer, excitement flooding through him, but the eyes blinking back at him through the fog were definitely his own. He wiped the mirror clear again and said, so that every syllable rang clearly through the room, Sirius Black! Nothing happened. The frustrated face looking back out of the mirror was still definitely his own. Sirius didn't have his mirror on him when he went through the archway, said a small voice in Harry's head. That's why it's not working. Harry remained quite still for a moment, then hurled the mirror back into the trunk where it shattered. He had been convinced for a whole shining minute that he was going to see Sirius, talk to him again. Disappointment was burning in his throat. He got up and began throwing his things pell-mell into the trunk on top of the broken mirror. But then an idea struck him, a better idea than a mirror, a much bigger, more important idea. How had he never thought of it before? Why had he never asked? He was sprinting out of the dormitory and down the spiral staircase, hitting the walls as he ran and barely noticing. He hurtled across the empty common room, through the portrait hole and off along the corridor, ignoring the fat lady who called after him, The feast is about to start, you know, your cutting is very fine. But Harry had no intention of going to the feast. How could it be that the place was full of ghosts whenever you didn't need one? Yet now... He ran down staircases and along corridors and met nobody either alive or dead. They were all clearly in the great hall. Outside his charms classroom he came to a halt, 
panting and thinking disconsolately that he would have to wait until later, until after the end of the feast. But just as he had given up hope, he saw it, a translucent somebody drifting across the end of the corridor. Hey! Hey, Nick! Nick! The ghost stuck its head back out of the wall, revealing the extravagantly plumed hat and dangerously wobbling head of Sir Nicholas de Mimsey Porpington. Good evening, he said, withdrawing the rest of his body from the solid stone and smiling at Harry. I am not the only one who is late then, though, he sighed, in rather different senses, of course. Nick, can I ask you something? A most peculiar expression stole over nearly headless Nick's face as he inserted a finger in the stiff ruff at his neck and tugged it a little straighter, apparently to give himself thinking time. He desisted only when his partially severed neck seemed about to give way completely. Uh, now, Harry, said Nick, looking discomforted, can't it wait until after the feast? No, Nick, please, said Harry, I really need to talk to you. Can we go in here? Harry opened the door of the nearest classroom, and nearly headless Nick sighed. Oh, very well, he said, looking resigned. I can't pretend I haven't been expecting it. Harry was holding the door open for him, but he drifted through the wall instead. Expecting what? Harry asked as he closed the door. You to come and find me, said Nick now gliding over to the window and looking out at the darkening grounds. It happens sometimes, when somebody has suffered a loss. Well, said Harry, refusing to be deflected, you were right, I've, I've come to find you. Nick said nothing. It's, said Harry, who was finding this more awkward than he had anticipated. It's just, you're dead, but you're still here, aren't you? Nick sighed and continued to gaze out at the grounds. That's right, isn't it? Harry urged him. You died, but I'm talking to you. You can walk around Hogwarts and everything, can't you? Yes, said nearly headless Nick quietly. I walk and talk, yes. So you came back, didn't you? said Harry urgently. People can come back, right? As ghosts. They don't have to disappear completely. Well he added impatiently, when Nick continued to say nothing. Nearly headless Nick hesitated, then said, Not everyone can come back as a ghost. What do you mean? said Harry quickly. Only, only wizards. Oh, said Harry, and he almost laughed with relief. Well, that's okay then. The person I'm asking about is a wizard, so he can come back, right? Nick turned away from the window and looked mournfully at Harry. He won't come back. Who? Sirius Black, said Nick. But you did, said Harry angrily. You came back. You're dead and you didn't disappear. Wizards can leave an imprint of themselves upon the earth to walk palely where their living selves once trod, said Nick miserably. But very few wizards choose that path. Why not, said Harry. Anyway... It doesn't matter. Sirius won't care if it's unusual. He'll come back. I know he will. And so strong was his belief that Harry actually turned his head to check the door, sure, for a split second, that he was going to see Sirius, pearly white and transparent, but beaming, walking through it toward him. He will not come back, repeated Nick quietly. 
He will have gone on. What do you mean, gone on? said Harry quickly. Gone on where? Listen, what happens when you die, anyway? Where do you go? Why doesn't everyone come back? Why isn't this place full of ghosts? Why? I cannot answer, said Nick. You're dead, aren't you? said Harry exasperatedly. Who can answer better than you? I was afraid of death, said Nick. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't to have. Well, that is neither here nor there. In fact, I am neither here nor there. He gave a small, sad chuckle. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I believe learned wizards study the matter in the Department of Mysteries. Don't talk to me about that place, said Harry fiercely. I am sorry not to have been more help, said Nick gently. Well, well, do excuse me. The feast, you know. And he left the room, leaving Harry there alone, gazing blankly at the wall through which Nick had disappeared. Harry felt almost as though he had lost his godfather all over again, in losing the hope that he might be able to see or speak to him once more. He walked slowly and miserably back up through the empty castle, wondering whether he would ever feel cheerful again. He had turned the corner toward the fat lady's corridor when he saw somebody up ahead fastening a note to a board on the wall. A second glance showed him that it was Luna. There were no good hiding places nearby, she was bound to have heard his footsteps, and in any case, Harry could hardly muster the energy to avoid anyone at the moment. Hello, said Luna vaguely, glancing around at him as she stepped back from the notice. How come you're not at the feast? Harry asked. Well, I've lost most of my possessions, said Luna serenely. People take them and hide them, you know. But as it's the last night, I really do need them back so I've been putting up signs. She gestured toward the notice board, upon which, sure enough, she had pinned a list of all her missing books and clothes, with a plea for their return. An odd feeling rose in Harry, an emotion quite different from the anger and grief that had filled him since Sirius's death. It was a few moments before he realized that he was feeling sorry for Luna. How come people hide your stuff? he asked her, frowning. Oh, well, she shrugged. I think they think I'm a bit odd, you know. Some people call me Looney Lovegood, actually. Harry looked at her and the new feeling of pity intensified rather painfully. That's no reason for them to take your things, he said flatly. Do you want help finding them? Oh, no, she said, smiling at him. They'll come back, they always do in the end. It was just that I wanted to pack tonight, anyway. Why aren't you at the feast? Harry shrugged. Just didn't feel like it. No, said Luna, observing him with those oddly misty, protuberant eyes. I don't suppose you do. That man the Death Eaters killed was your godfather, wasn't he? Ginny told me. Harry nodded curtly but found that for some reason he did not mind Luna talking about Sirius. He had just remembered that she too could see Thestrals. Have you, he began, I mean, who, has anyone you've known ever died? Yes, said Luna simply. My mother, 
She was a quite extraordinary witch, you know, but she did like to experiment, and one of her spells went rather badly wrong one day. I was nine. I'm sorry, Harry mumbled. Yes, it was rather horrible, said Luna conversationally. I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I've still got Dad, and anyway... It's not as though I'll never see Mum again, is it? Uh, isn't it? said Harry uncertainly. She shook her head in disbelief. Oh, come on. You heard them just behind the veil, didn't you? You mean... In that room with the archway. They were just lurking out of sight, that's all. You heard them? They looked at each other. Luna was smiling slightly. Harry did not know what to say or to think. Luna believed so many extraordinary things, yet he had been sure he had heard voices behind the veil, too. Are you sure you don't want me to help you look for your stuff? he said. Oh, no, said Luna. No, I think I'll just go down and have some pudding and wait for it all to turn up. It always does in the end. Well... Have a nice holiday, Harry. Yeah, yeah, you too. She walked away from him, and as he watched her go, he found that the terrible weight in his stomach seemed to have lessened slightly. The journey home on the Hogwarts Express next day was eventful in several ways. Firstly, Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle, who had clearly been waiting all week for the opportunity to strike without teacher witnesses, attempted to ambush Harry halfway down the train as he made his way back from the toilet. The attack might have succeeded had it not been for the fact that they unwittingly chose to stage the attack right outside a compartment full of DA members, who saw what was happening through the glass and rose as one to rush to Harry's aid. By the time Ernie McMillan, Hannah Abbott, Susan Bones, Justin Finch-Fletchley, Anthony Goldstein, and Terry Boot had finished using a wide variety of the hexes and jinxes Harry had taught them, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle resembled nothing so much as three gigantic slugs squeezed into Hogwarts uniforms, as Harry, Ernie, and Justin hoisted them into the luggage rack and left them there to ooze. I must say I'm looking forward to seeing Malfoy's mother's face when he gets off the train, said Ernie, with some satisfaction, as he watched Malfoy squirm above him. Ernie had never quite got over the indignity of Malfoy docking points from Hufflepuff during his brief spell as a member of the Inquisitorial Squad. Goyle's mum'll be really pleased, though, said Ron, who had come to investigate the source of the commotion. He's loads better looking now. Anyway, Harry, the food trolley's just stopped if you want anything. Harry thanked the others and accompanied Ron back to their compartment, where he bought a large pile of cauldron cakes and pumpkin pasties. Hermione was reading the Daily Prophet again, Ginny was doing a quiz in the Quibbler, and Neville was stroking his mimbulous Mimbletonia, which had grown a great deal over the year, and now made odd crooning noises when touched. Harry and Ron whiled away most of the journey playing wizard chess, while Hermione read out snippets from the Prophet. It was now full of articles about how to repel Dementors, attempts by the Ministry to track down Death Eaters, and hysterical letters claiming that the writer has seen Lord Voldemort walking past their house that very morning. It hasn't really started yet, sighed Hermione gloomily, folding up the newspaper again. But it won't be long now. Hey, Harry, 
said Ron, nodding toward the glass window onto the corridor. Harry looked around. Cho was passing, accompanied by Marietta Edgecombe, who was wearing a balaclava. His and Cho's eyes met for a moment. Cho blushed and kept walking. Harry looked back down at the chessboard just in time to see one of his pawns chased off its square by Ron's knight. What's uh, going on with you and her, anyway? Ron asked quietly. Nothing, said Harry truthfully. I uh, heard she's going out with someone else now, said Hermione tentatively. Harry was surprised to find that this information did not hurt at all. Wanting to impress Cho seemed to belong to a past that was no longer quite connected with him. So much of what he had wanted before Sirius's death felt that way these days. The week that had elapsed since he had last seen Sirius seemed to have lasted much, much longer. It stretched across two universes, the one with Sirius in it and the one without. "'You're well out of it, mate,' said Ron forcefully. "'I mean, she's quite good-looking and all that, but you want someone a bit more cheerful.' "'She's probably cheerful enough with someone else,' said Harry, shrugging. "'Who's she with now, anyway?' Ron asked Hermione, but it was Ginny who answered. "'Michael Corner,' she said. "'Michael? But,' said Ron, craning around in his seat to stare at her. "'But you were going out with him?' "'Not any more,' said Ginny resolutely. "'He didn't like Gryffindor beating Ravenclaw at Quidditch and got really sulky. "'So I ditched him and he ran off to comfort Cho instead.' "'She scratched her nose absently with the end of her quill, "'turned the quibbler upside down and began marking her answers.' Ron looked highly delighted. "'Well, I always thought he was a bit of an idiot,' he said, prodding his queen forward toward Harry's quivering castle. "'Good for you. Just choose someone better next time.' He cast Harry an oddly furtive look as he said it. "'Well, I've chosen Dean Thomas. Would you say he's better?' asked Ginny vaguely. "'What?' shouted Ron, upending the chessboard. Crookshanks went plunging after the pieces, and Hedwig and Pigwidgeon twittered and hooted angrily from overhead. As the train slowed down in the approach to King's Cross, Harry thought he had never wanted to leave it less. He even wondered fleetingly what would happen if he simply refused to get off, but remained stubbornly sitting there until the first of September, when it would take him back to Hogwarts. When it finally puffed to a standstill, however, he lifted down Hedwig's cage and prepared to drag his trunk from the train as usual. When the ticket inspector signaled to him, Ron and Hermione, that it was safe to walk through the magical barrier between platforms nine and ten, however, he found a surprise awaiting him on the other side, a group of people standing there to greet him, whom he had not expected at all. There was Mad-Eye Moody, looking quite as sinister with his bowler hat pulled low over his magical eye, as he would have done without it his gnarled hands clutching a long staff, his body wrapped in a voluminous traveling cloak. Tonk stood just behind him, her bright bubblegum pink hair gleaming in the sunlight filtering through the dirty glass station ceiling, wearing heavily patched jeans and a bright purple T-shirt bearing the legend The Weird Sisters. Next to Tonks was Lupin, his face pale, his hair graying, a long and threadbare overcoat covering a shabby jumper and trousers. At the front of the group stood Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, dressed in their muggle best, and Fred and George, who were both wearing brand-new jackets in some lurid green scaly material. "'Ron! Ginny!' called Mrs. Weasley, hurrying forward and hugging her children tightly. "'Oh, and Harry, dear, how are you?' "'Fine,' 
lied Harry as she pulled him into a tight embrace. Over her shoulder he saw Ron goggling at the twins' new clothes. What are they supposed to be? he asked, pointing at the jackets. Finest dragonskin, little bro, said Fred, giving his zip a little tweak. Business is booming and we thought we'd treat ourselves. Hello, Harry, said Lupin, as Mrs. Weasley let go of Harry and turned to greet Hermione. Hi, said Harry. I didn't expect. What are you all doing here? Well, said Lupin with a slight smile, we thought we might have a little chat with your aunt and uncle before letting them take you home. I don't know if that's a good idea, said Harry at once. Oh, I think it is, growled Moody, who had limped a little closer. That'll be them, will it, Potter? He pointed with his thumb over his shoulder. His magical eye was evidently peering through the back of his head and his bowler hat. Harry leaned an inch or so to the left to see where Mad-Eye was pointing, and there, sure enough, were the three Dursleys who looked positively appalled to see Harry's reception committee. "'Oh, Harry!' said Mr. Weasley, turning from Hermione's parents, whom he had been greeting enthusiastically, and who were taking it in turns to hug Hermione. "'Well, shall we do it, then?' "'Yeah, I reckon so, Arthur.' said Moody. He and Mr. Weasley took the lead across the station toward the place where the Dursleys stood, apparently rooted to the floor. Hermione disengaged herself gently from her mother to join the group. "'Good afternoon,' said Mr. Weasley pleasantly to Uncle Vernon, coming to a halt right in front of him. "'You might remember me. My name's Arthur Weasley.' As Mr. Weasley had single-handedly demolished most of the Dursleys' living room two years previously, Harry would have been very surprised if Uncle Vernon had forgotten him. Sure enough, Uncle Vernon turned a deeper shade of puce and glared at Mr. Weasley, but chose not to say anything, partly, perhaps, because the Dursleys were outnumbered two to one. Aunt Petunia looked both frightened and embarrassed. She kept glancing around as though terrified somebody she knew would see her in such company. Dudley, meanwhile, seemed to be trying to look small and insignificant, a feat at which he was failing extravagantly. "'We thought we'd just have a few words with you about Harry,' said Mr. Weasley, still smiling. "'Yeah,' growled Moody, "'about how he's treated when he's at your place.' Uncle Vernon's moustache seemed to bristle with indignation, possibly because the bowler hat gave him the entirely mistaken impression that he was dealing with a kindred spirit, he addressed himself to Moody. I am not aware that it is any of your business what goes on in my house. I expect what you're not aware of would fill several books, Dursley, growled Moody. Anyway, that's not the point, interjected Tonks, whose pink hair seemed to offend Aunt Petunia more than all the rest put together, for she closed her eyes rather than look at her. The point is, if we find out you've been horrible to Harry, and make no mistake, we'll hear about it added Lupin pleasantly. "'Yes,' said Mr. Weasley, "'even if you won't let Harry use the felitone. "'Telephone,' whispered Hermione. "'Yeah, if we get any hint that Potter's been mistreated in any way, "'you'll have us to answer to,' said Moody. "'Uncle Vernon swelled ominously. "'His sense of outrage seemed to outweigh even his fear of this bunch of oddballs. "'Are you threatening me, sir?' he said so loudly that passers-by actually turned to stare. "'Yes, I am,' said Mad-Eye, who seemed rather pleased that Uncle Vernon had grasped this fact so quickly. "'And 
Do I look like the kind of man who can be intimidated? barked Uncle Vernon. Well, said Moody, pushing back his bowler hat to reveal his sinisterly revolving magical eye. Uncle Vernon leapt backward in horror and collided painfully with a luggage trolley. Yes, I'd have to say you do, Dursley. He turned away from Uncle Vernon to survey Harry. So, Potter, give us a shout if you need us. If we don't hear from you for three days in a row, we'll send someone along. Aunt Petunia whimpered piteously. It could not have been plainer that she was thinking of what the neighbors would say if they caught sight of these people marching up the garden path. Bye then, Potter, said Moody, grasping Harry's shoulder for a moment with a gnarled hand. Take care, Harry, said Lupin quietly. Keep in touch. Harry, we'll have you away from there as soon as we can, Mrs. Weasley whispered, hugging him again. We'll see you soon, mate, said Ron anxiously, shaking Harry's hand. Really soon, Harry, said Hermione earnestly. We promise. Harry nodded. He somehow could not find words to tell them what it meant to him, to see them all ranged there on his side. Instead, he smiled, raised a hand in farewell, turned around, and led the way out of the station toward the sunlit street, with Uncle Vernon, Aunt Petunia, and Dudley hurrying along in his wake. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix was read by Jim Dale. Text copyright, J.K. Rowling, 2003. Recording copyright, Listening Library, 2003. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Digitally remastered by Pottermore at Pinewood Studios in 2015. Pottermore is the digital entertainment, news and e-commerce company from J.K. Rowling, inspired by her Harry Potter books and the wider wizarding world. Pottermore is a place for Harry Potter fans to be entertained and discover more of the wizarding world they love through Pottermore.com experiences or products including Harry Potter e-books, digital audiobooks and more. Harry Potter characters, names and related indicia are trademarks and copyright of Warner Brothers Entertainment. The story continues. Find out what happens next in this preview of the digital audiobook Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince by J.K. Rowling. Text copyright J.K. Rowling 2005. Recording copyright Listening Library 2005. An imprint of the Penguin Random House Audio Publishing Group. Chapter 1 The Other Minister it was nearing midnight and the Prime Minister was sitting alone in his office, reading a long memo that was slipping through his brain without leaving the slightest trace of meaning behind. He was waiting for a call from the President of a far distant country, and between wondering when the wretched man would telephone and trying to suppress unpleasant memories of what had been a very long, tiring and difficult week, there was not much space in his head for anything else. The more he attempted to focus on the print on the page before him, the more clearly the Prime Minister could see the gloating face of one of his political opponents. This particular opponent had appeared on the news that very day. 
not only to enumerate all the terrible things that had happened in the last week as though anyone needed reminding, but also to explain why each and every one of them was the government's fault. The Prime Minister's pulse quickened at the very thought of these accusations, for they were neither fair nor true. How on earth was his government supposed to have stopped that bridge collapsing? It was outrageous for anybody to suggest that they were not spending enough on bridges. The bridge was fewer than ten years old, and the best experts were at a loss to explain why it had snapped cleanly in two, sending a dozen cars into the watery depths of the river below. And how dare anyone suggest that it was lack of policemen that had resulted in those two very nasty and well-publicized murders, or that the government should have somehow foreseen the freak hurricane in the West Country that had caused so much damage to both people and property. And was it his fault that one of his junior ministers, Herbert Chorley, had chosen this week to act so peculiarly that he was now going to be spending a lot more time with his family? A grim mood has gripped the country, the opponent had concluded, barely concealing his own broad grin. And unfortunately this was perfectly true. The Prime Minister felt it himself. People really did seem more miserable than usual. Even the weather was dismal, all this chilly mist in the middle of July. It wasn't right. It wasn't normal. He turned over the second page of the memo, saw how much longer it went on, and gave it up as a bad job. Stretching his arms above his head, he looked around his office mournfully. It was a handsome room, with a fine marble fireplace facing the long sash windows, firmly closed against the unseasonable chill. With a slight shiver, the Prime Minister got up and moved over to the window, looking out at the thin mist that was pressing itself against the glass. It was then, as he stood with his back to the room, that he heard a soft cough behind him. He froze, nose to nose, with his own scared-looking reflection in the dark glass. He knew that cough. He had heard it before. He turned very slowly to face the empty room. Hello, he said, trying to sound braver than he felt. For a brief moment he allowed himself the impossible hope that nobody would answer him. However, a voice responded at once, a crisp, decisive voice that sounded as though it were reading a prepared statement. It was coming, as the Prime Minister had known at the first cough, from the frog-like little man wearing a long silver wig who was depicted in a small, dirty oil painting in the far corner of the room. To the Prime Minister of Muggles, urgent we meet. Kindly respond immediately, sincerely, fudge. The man in the painting looked inquiringly at the Prime Minister. Ah, uh, said the Prime Minister, listen, it's not a very good time for me. I'm waiting for a telephone call, you see, from the President of... That can be rearranged, said the portrait at once. The Prime Minister's heart sank. He had been afraid of that. But I really was rather hoping to speak. We shall arrange for the President to forget to call. He will telephone tomorrow night instead, said the little man. Kindly respond immediately to Mr. Fudge. I, oh, very well, said the Prime Minister weakly. Yes, I'll see, Fudge. He hurried back to his desk, straightening his tie as he went. 
He had barely resumed his seat and arranged his face into what he hoped was a relaxed and unfazed expression when bright green flames burst into life in the empty grate beneath his marble mantelpiece. He watched, trying not to betray a flicker of surprise or alarm as a portly man appeared within the flames, spinning as fast as a top. Seconds later, he had climbed out onto a rather fine antique rug, brushing ash from the sleeves of his long pinstripe cloak, a lime-green bowler hat in his hand. Ah, oh, Prime Minister, said Cornelius Fudge, striding forward with his hand outstretched. Good to see you again. The Prime Minister could not honestly return this compliment, so said nothing at all. He was not remotely pleased to see Fudge, whose occasional appearances, apart from being downright alarming in themselves, generally meant that he was about to hear some very bad news. Furthermore, Fudge was looking distinctly careworn. He was thinner, balder, and grayer, and his face had a crumpled look. The Prime Minister had seen that kind of look in politicians before, and it never boded well. How can I help you? He said, shaking Fudge's hand very briefly and gesturing toward the hardest of the chairs in front of the desk. Difficult to know where to begin, muttered Fudge, pulling up the chair, sitting down, and placing his green bowler upon his knees. What a week! What a week! Had a bad one too, have you? asked the Prime Minister stiffly, hoping to convey by this that he had quite enough on his plate already without any extra helpings from Fudge. Yes, of course, said Fudge, rubbing his eyes wearily and looking morosely at the Prime Minister. I've been having the same week you have, Prime Minister. The Brockdale Bridge, the Bones Advanced Murders, not to mention the ruckus in the West Country. You were, your, I mean to say, some of your people were, were involved in those... Those things, were they? Fudge fixed the Prime Minister with a rather stern look. Of course they were, he said. Surely you've realized what's going on. I hesitated the Prime Minister. It was precisely this sort of behavior that made him dislike Fudge's visits so much. He was, after all, the Prime Minister and did not appreciate being made to feel like an ignorant schoolboy. But of course, it had been like this from his very first meeting with Fudge on his very first evening as Prime Minister. He remembered it as though it were yesterday and knew it would haunt him until his dying day. He had been standing alone in this very office, savoring the triumph that was his after so many years of dreaming and scheming, when he had heard a cough behind him just like tonight and turned to find that ugly little portrait talking to him, announcing that the Minister of Magic was about to arrive and introduce himself. Naturally, he had thought that the long campaign and the strain of the election had caused him to go mad. He had been utterly terrified to find a portrait talking to him, though this had been nothing to how he felt when a self-proclaimed wizard had bounced out of the fireplace and shaken his hand. He had remained speechless throughout Fudge's kindly explanation that there were witches and wizards still living in secret all over the world, and his reassurances that he was not to bother his head about them, as the Ministry of Magic took responsibility for the whole wizarding community and prevented the non-magical population from getting wind of them. It was, said Fudge, a difficult job that encompassed everything from regulations on responsible use of broomsticks 
to keeping the dragon population under control. The Prime Minister remembered clutching the desk for support at this point. Fudge had then patted the shoulder of the still dumbstruck Prime Minister in a fatherly sort of way. Not to worry, he had said. It's odds on you'll never see me again. I'll only bother you if there's something really serious going on our end, something that's likely to affect the muggles, the non-magical population, I should say. Otherwise, it's live and let live. And I must say you're taking it a lot better than your predecessor. He tried to throw me out the window. Thought I was a hoax, planned by the opposition. At this, the Prime Minister had found his voice at last. You're... you're not a hoax, then? It had been his last desperate hope. No, said Fudge gently. No, I'm afraid I'm not. Look. And he had turned the Prime Minister's teacup into a gerbil. But, said the Prime Minister breathlessly, watching his teacup chewing on the corner of his next speech. But why... Why has nobody told me? The Minister of Magic only reveals him or herself to the Muggle Prime Minister of the day, said Fudge, poking his wand back inside his jacket. We find it the best way to maintain secrecy. But then, bleated the Prime Minister, why hasn't a former Prime Minister warned me? That this Fudge had actually laughed. My dear Prime Minister, are you ever going to tell anybody? Still chortling, Fudge had thrown some powder into the fireplace, stepped into the emerald flames, and vanished with a whooshing sound. The Prime Minister had stood there quite motionless, and realized that he would never, as long as he lived, dare mention this encounter to a living soul. For who in the wide world would believe him? The shock had taken a little while to wear off. For a time, he had tried to convince himself that Fudge had indeed been a hallucination brought on by lack of sleep during his grueling election campaign. In a vain attempt to rid himself of all reminders of this uncomfortable encounter, he had given the gerbil to his delighted niece and instructed his private secretary to take down the portrait of the ugly little man who had announced Fudge's arrival. To the Prime Minister's dismay, however, the portrait had proved impossible to remove. When several carpenters, a builder or two, an art historian, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer had all tried unsuccessfully to prize it from the wall, the Prime Minister had abandoned the attempt and simply resolved to hope that the thing remained motionless and silent for the rest of his term in office. Occasionally he could have sworn he saw out of the corner of his eye the occupant of the painting yawning, or else scratching his nose, even once or twice simply walking out of his frame and leaving nothing but a stretch of muddy brown canvas behind. However, he had trained himself not to look at the picture very much, and always to tell himself firmly that his eyes were playing tricks on him when anything like this happened. Then, Three years ago, on a night very like tonight, the Prime Minister had been alone in his office when the portrait had, once again, announced the imminent arrival of Fudge, who had burst out of the fireplace, sopping wet, and in a state of considerable panic. Before the Prime Minister could ask why he was dripping all over the Axminster, Fudge had started ranting about a prison the Prime Minister had never heard of. A man named Sirius Black, something that sounded like Hogwarts, and a boy called Harry Potter, none of which made the remotest sense to the Prime Minister. I've just come from Azkaban, Fudge had panted, 
tipping a large amount of water out of the rim of his bowler hat into his pocket. Middle of the North Sea, you know, nasty flight. The Dementors are in uproar, he shuddered. They've never had a breakout before. Anyway, I had to come to you, Prime Minister. Black's a known muggle killer and may be planning to rejoin you-know-who. But of course, you don't even know who you-know-who is. He had gazed hopelessly at the Prime Minister for a moment, then said, Well, sit down, sit down. I'd better fill you in. Have a whiskey. The Prime Minister rather resented being told to sit down in his own office, let alone offered his own whiskey, but he sat nevertheless. Fudge pulled out his wand, conjured two large glasses full of amber liquid out of thin air, pushed one of them into the Prime Minister's hand, and drew up a chair. Fudge had talked for more than an hour. At one point, he had refused to say a certain name aloud, and wrote it instead on a piece of parchment, which he had thrust into the Prime Minister's whiskey-free hand. When at last Fudge had stood up to leave, the Prime Minister had stood up too. So... You think that... He had squinted down at the name in his left hand. Lord Vol... He who must not be named, snarled Fudge. I'm sorry. You think that he who must not be named is still alive, then? Well, Dumbledore says he is, said Fudge, as he had fastened his pinstripe cloak under his chin. But we've never found him. If you ask me, he's not dangerous unless he's got support. So, it's black we ought to be worrying about. You'll put out that warning, then. Excellent. Well, I hope we don't see each other again, Prime Minister. Good night. But they had seen each other again. Less than a year later, a harassed-looking fudge had appeared out of thin air in the cabinet room to inform the Prime Minister that there had been a spot of bother at the Kowidditch or that was what it had sounded like, World Cup, and that several muggles had been involved. But that the Prime Minister was not to worry. The fact that you-know-who's mark had been seen again meant nothing. Fudge was sure it was an isolated incident, and the muggle liaison office was dealing with all memory modifications as they spoke. Oh, and I almost forgot, Fudge had added. We're importing three foreign dragons and a sphinx for the Triwizard Tournament. Quite routine, but the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures tells me that it's down in the rulebook that we have to notify you if we're bringing highly dangerous creatures into the country. I... what? Dragons? spluttered the Prime Minister. Yes, three, said Fudge. And a sphinx. Well... Good day to you. The Prime Minister had hoped beyond hope that dragons and sphinxes would be the worst of it. But no. Less than two years later, Fudge had erupted out of the fire yet again, this time with the news that there had been a mass breakout from Azkaban. A mass breakout? repeated the Prime Minister hoarsely. No need to worry, no need to worry, shouted Fudge, already with one foot in the flames. We'll have them rounded up in no time. Just thought you ought to know. And before the Prime Minister could shout, Now wait just one moment, Fudge had vanished in a shower of green sparks. Whatever the press and the opposition might say, the Prime Minister was not a foolish man. 
It had not escaped his notice that, despite Fudge's assurances at their first meeting, they were now seeing rather a lot of each other, nor that Fudge was becoming more flustered with each visit. Little though he liked to think about the Minister of Magic, or, as he always called Fudge in his head, the Other Minister, the Prime Minister could not help but fear that the next time Fudge appeared, it would be with graver news still. The sight, therefore, of Fudge stepping out of the fire once more, looking disheveled and fretful, and sternly surprised that the Prime Minister did not know exactly why he was there, was about the worst thing that had happened in the course of this extremely gloomy week. How should I know what's going on in the, uh, wizarding community? snapped the Prime Minister now. I have a country to run and quite enough concerns at the moment without... We have the same concerns, Fudge interrupted. The Brockdale Bridge didn't wear out. That wasn't really a hurricane. Those murders were not the work of muggles. And Herbert Chawley's family would be safer without him. We are currently making arrangements to have him transferred to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. The move should be effected tonight. What do you... I'm afraid I... What? blustered the Prime Minister. Fudge took a great deep breath and said, Prime Minister, I'm very sorry to have to tell you that he's back. He who must not be named is back. Back? When you say back, he's alive? I mean... The Prime Minister groped in his memory for the details of that horrible conversation of three years previous, when Fudge had told him about the wizard who was feared above all others the wizard who had committed a thousand terrible crimes before his mysterious disappearance fifteen years earlier. Yes, alive, said Fudge. That is, I don't know, is a man alive if he can't be killed? I don't really understand it, and Dumbledore won't explain properly, but anyway, he's certainly got a body, and is walking and talking and killing. So, I suppose, for the purposes of our discussion, yes, he's alive. The Prime Minister did not know what to say to this, but a persistent habit of wishing to appear well-informed on any subject that came up made him cast around for any details he could remember of their previous conversations. Is Sirius Black with the, uh, he who must not be named? Black, Black said Fudge distractedly, turning his bowler rapidly in his fingers. Serious Black, you mean. Merlin's beard, no. Black's dead. Turns out we were, uh, mistaken about Black. He was innocent, after all. And he wasn't in league with he who must not be named, either. I mean, he added defensively, spinning the bowler hat still faster. All the evidence pointed. We had more than fifty eyewitnesses, but anyway, as I say, he's dead. Mm. Murdered, as a matter of fact, on Ministry of Magic premises. There's going to be an inquiry, actually. To his great surprise, the Prime Minister felt a fleeting stab of pity for Fudge at this point. It was, however, eclipsed almost immediately by a glow of smugness at the thought that, deficient though he himself might be in the area of materializing out of fireplaces, there had never been a murder in any of the government departments under his charge.
Not yet, anyway. While the Prime Minister surreptitiously touched the wood of his desk, Fudge continued, But black's by the by now. The point is, we're at war, Prime Minister, and steps must be taken. At war? repeated the Prime Minister nervously. Surely that's a little bit of an overstatement. He who must not be named has now been joined by those of his followers who broke out of Azkaban in January said Fudge, speaking more and more rapidly and twirling his bowler so fast that it was a lime-green blur. Since they have moved into the open, they have been wreaking havoc. The Brockdale Bridge, he did it, Prime Minister. He threatened a mass muggle killing, unless I stood aside for him and... Good grief! So it's your fault those people were killed! And I'm having to answer questions about rusted rigging and corroded expansion joints, and I don't know what else, said the Prime Minister furiously. My fault, said Fudge, coloring up. Are you saying you would have caved into blackmail like that? Maybe not, said the Prime Minister, standing up and striding about the room. But I would have put all my efforts into catching the blackmailer before he committed any such atrocity. Do you really think I wasn't already making every effort? demanded Fudge heatedly. Every auror in the ministry was, and is, trying to find him and round up his followers. But we happen to be talking about one of the most powerful wizards of all time, a wizard who has eluded capture for almost three decades. So, I suppose you're going to tell me he caused the hurricane in the West Country too? said the Prime Minister, his temper rising with every pace he took. It was infuriating to discover the reason for all these terrible disasters and not to be able to tell the public, almost worse than it had been the government's fault after all. That was no hurricane, said Fudge miserably. Excuse me, barked the Prime Minister, now positively stamping up and down. Trees uprooted, roofs ripped off, lampposts bent. Horrible injuries. It was the Death Eaters, said Fudge. He who must not be named followers. And, and, we suspect, giant involvement. The Prime Minister stopped in his tracks, as though he had hit an invisible wall. What involvement? Fudge grimaced. He used giants last time, when he wanted to go for the grand effect. He said, the Office of Misinformation has been working around the clock. We've had teams of obliviators out trying to modify the memories of all the muggles who saw what really happened. We've got most of the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures running around Somerset. But we can't find the giant. It's been a disaster. You don't say, said the Prime Minister furiously. I won't deny that morale is pretty low at the Ministry, said Fudge. What with all that, and then losing Amelia Bones. Losing who? Amelia Bones, head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. We think he who must not be named may have murdered her in person because she was a very gifted witch, and, and all the evidence was that she put up a real fight. Fudge cleared his throat and, with an effort, it seemed, stopped spinning his bowler hat. But that murder was in the newspapers, said the Prime Minister, momentarily diverted from his anger. Our newspapers. 
Amelia Bones. It just said she was a middle-aged woman who lived alone. It was a, a nasty killing, wasn't it? It's had rather a lot of publicity. The police are baffled, you see. Fudge sighed. Well, of course they are, he said. Killed in a room that was locked from the inside, wasn't she? We, on the other hand, know exactly who did it. Not that that gets us any further towards catching him. And then there was Emmeline Vance. Maybe you didn't hear about that one. Oh, yes, I did, said the Prime Minister. It happened just around the corner from here, as a matter of fact. The papers had a field day with it. Breakdown of law and order in the Prime Minister's backyard. And as if all that wasn't enough, said Fudge, barely listening to the Prime Minister. We've got Dementors swarming all over the place, attacking people left, right, and center. Once upon a happier time, this sentence would have been unintelligible to the Prime Minister, but he was wiser now. I thought Dementors guard the prisoners in Azkaban, he said cautiously. They did, said Fudge wearily, but not any more. They've deserted the prison and joined he who must not be named. I won't pretend that wasn't a blow. But, said the Prime Minister with a sense of dawning horror, didn't you tell me they're the creatures that drain hope and happiness out of people? That's right, and they're breeding. That's what's causing all this mist. The Prime Minister sank weak-kneed into the nearest chair. The idea of invisible creatures swooping through the towns and countryside, spreading despair and hopelessness in his voters, made him feel quite faint. Now, see here, Fudge. You've got to do something. It's your responsibility as Minister of Magic. My dear Prime Minister, you can't honestly think I'm still Minister of Magic after all this. I was sacked three days ago. The whole wizarding community has been screaming for my resignation for a fortnight. I've never known them so united in my whole term of office, said Fudge, with a brave attempt at a smile. The Prime Minister was momentarily lost for words. Despite his indignation at the position into which he had been placed, he still rather felt for the shrunken-looking man sitting opposite him. I'm very sorry, he said finally. If there's anything I can do... It's very kind of you, Prime Minister, but there is nothing. I was sent here tonight to bring you up to date on recent events and to introduce you to my successor. I rather thought he'd be here by now, but of course he's very busy at the moment with so much going on. Fudge looked around at the portrait of the ugly little man wearing the long curly silver wig, who was digging in his ear with a point of a quill. Catching Fudge's eye, the portrait said, He'll be here in a moment. He's just finishing a letter to Dumbledore. I wish him luck, said Fudge, sounding bitter for the first time. I've been writing to Dumbledore twice a day for the past fortnight, but he won't budge. If he'd just been prepared to persuade the boy, I might still be... Well, maybe Scrimjaw will have more success. Fudge subsided into what was clearly an aggrieved silence, but it was broken almost immediately by the portrait, which suddenly spoke in its crisp official voice. To the Prime Minister of Muggles, requesting a meeting. Urgent. Kindly respond immediately. Rufus Scrimjaw, Minister of Magic. Yes, yes, fine, 
said the Prime Minister distractedly, and he barely flinched as the flames in the grate turned emerald green again, rose up, and revealed a second spinning wizard in their heart, disgorging him moments later onto the antique rug. Fudge got to his feet, and after a moment's hesitation, the Prime Minister did the same, watching the new arrival straighten up, dust down his long black robes, and look around. The Prime Minister's first foolish thought was that Rufus Scrimjaw looked rather like an old lion. There were streaks of grey in his mane of tawny hair and his bushy eyebrows. He had keen yellowish eyes behind a pair of wire-rimmed spectacles and a certain rangy, loping grace even though he walked with a slight limp. There was an immediate impression of shrewdness and toughness. The Prime Minister thought he understood why the wizarding community prefers Scrimjaw to Fudge as a leader in these dangerous times. How do you do? said the Prime Minister politely, holding out his hand. Scrimjaw grasped it briefly, his eyes scanning the room, then pulled out a wand from under his robes. Fudge told you everything? he asked, striding over to the door and tapping the keyhole with his wand. The Prime Minister heard the lock click. Uh, yes, said the Prime Minister, and if you don't mind, I'd rather that door remained unlocked. I'd rather not be interrupted, said Scrimjaw shortly, or watched, he added, pointing his wand at the windows so that the curtains swept across them. Right, well, I'm a busy man, so let's get down to business. First of all, we need to discuss your security. The Prime Minister drew himself up to his fullest height and replied, I am perfectly happy with the security I've already got. Thank you very— Well, we're not, Scrimjaw cut in. It'll be a poor lookout for the muggles if their prime minister gets put under the imperious curse. The new secretary in your outer office— I am not getting rid of Kingsley Shacklebolt, if that's what you're suggesting, said the prime minister hotly. He's highly efficient, gets through twice the work the rest of them— That's because he's a wizard says Scrimjaw, without a flicker of a smile. A highly trained Auror who has been assigned to you for your protection. Now, wait a moment, declared the Prime Minister. You can't just put your people into my office. I decide who works for me. I thought you were happy with Shacklebolt, said Scrimjaw coldly. I am. That's to say, I, I was. Then there's no problem, is there? said Scrimjaw. I... Well, as long as Shacklebolt's work continues to be, uh, excellent, said the Prime Minister lamely, but Scrimjaw barely seemed to hear him. Now, about Herbert Chorley, your junior minister, he continued, the one who's been entertaining the public by impersonating a duck. What about him? asked the Prime Minister. He has clearly reacted to a poorly performed imperious curse, said Scrimjaw. It saddled his brains, but it could still be dangerous. He's only quacking, said the Prime Minister weakly. Surely a bit of a rest. Maybe go easy on the drink. A team of healers from St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries are examining him as we speak. So far, he has attempted to strangle three of them, said Scrimjaw. I think it best that we remove him from Muggle society for a while. I. Well, he'll be all right, won't he? said the Prime Minister anxiously. Scrimjaw merely shrugged, already moving back toward the fireplace.
Well, that's really all I had to say. I will keep you posted at developments, Prime Minister, or at least I shall probably be too busy to come personally, in which case I shall send Fudge here. He has consented to stay on in an advisory capacity. Fudge attempted to smile, but was unsuccessful. He merely looked as though he had a toothache. Scrimjaw was already rummaging in his pocket for the mysterious powder that turned the fire green. The Prime Minister gazed hopelessly at the pair of them for a moment. Then the words he had fought to suppress all evening burst from him at last. But for heaven's sake, you're wizards! You can do magic! Surely you can sort out, well, anything! Scrimjaw turned slowly on the spot and exchanged an incredulous look with Fudge, who really did manage a smile this time as he said kindly, The trouble is, the other side can do magic too, Prime Minister. And with that, the two wizards stepped, one after the other, into the bright green fire and vanished. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.